Greetings ladies and metal gents, and welcome to this new type of batch video, called a starter pack, which in this case contains all the chapters to current for the story, meaning after watching this video you will be up to current, unlike before where I was releasing separate batches. This is something new that I'm trying out to see how it performs, and if it performs decently I will be doing the same going forward. This also means that now that we've caught up with the story, we will be able to go in straight into maintenance mode, which means that I'll be doing the normal batch videos like the other maintenance series. And without further ado, this is the web novel Undead, written by Nine Keys, taken from the website Royal Road. This video contains chapters 1 to 26, and as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. P.S. All the chapters are timestamped down below in the pinned comment. Chapter 1. Breaking the Universe The lost soul blasted through the realm of the dead, overwhelmed by emotion that had long since forgotten. Confusion, fear, and hatred, consumed by desires, longing, hunger, vengeance, vengeance. It paused, bewildered by these new feelings. It had been so long since it had arrived here, and this great space filled with souls awaiting their end. All of its memories had been consumed by the Maelstrom ages ago, and with those memories its personality had gone. How could all of these emotions be surfacing now? And where was it traveling to with such speed, even though it had time and space both meant nothing here? The calling. It appeared again, stronger now, a voice that reached through the eternity. A pale ember ignited, and the soul found a pull that urged it to make haste, and it continued its journey, hesitation forgotten. Faster, faster. Wham! A wall, invisible and formless, an unbreachable barrier. The calling came from beyond. The soul grew restless. The emotions that had fueled its impulsive journey didn't tell, however, but grew stronger and longer it delayed. What was that wall to deny it leave? It swelled, growing in size in an attempt to force its way through. That didn't work. It pulled against the wall like putty. It shrunk then, hoping to slip through the cracks, but there weren't any to be found. No way around. No way through. Yet the soul was not resigned. The calling had come from the other side, so perhaps to send a call of its own. The soul focused within itself, seeking out the strongest emotion that it would be able to permeate the barrier. It was a jumbled mess within. Every vile instinct clamored to be heard and released. The soul suppressed and examined all of them in turn, seeking the one that screamed the loudest. Then it found it. Hatred. Bumbling, writhing, screaming hate, it rose from within, devouring the rest of the noisy brethren in flames. As it did, it grew purer, forming an unprecedented, undulated malice. Even as the rest of her body began to evaporate from the heat of its own wrath, which in this realm is an incompatible emotion, the soul fought to focus and send its hatred outwards through the impenetrable. The very realm of the dead itself seemed to help it along, wishing to remove this resilient emotion from any means necessary. Through that, hatred went, ignoring the space of the barrier. 
It didn't puncture any walls. It just simply moved through without a ripple. Past the wall, it traveled into the nun. Through the nun it went, until it finally tore through the thin veil, enveloping the realm where the calling had originated. But this force was the soul's hatred, not the soul itself, and nearly sentient streak of spite somehow knew that it couldn't survive without the rest of itself. But now the path had been made, a tunnel from one realm to another, not something that could be calculated in terms of miles or time. The soul, still trapped behind the wall, now realized the act of expunging its hate had made it lose all its power to move independently. The wrath had been spent, leaving behind an empty husk without any ambition or ability to act. But the path remained, and the universe wasn't happy about it. A rumbling came from outer reaches of the reality. A terrible roaring grew closer and closer as space rippled and undulated to accommodate it. The path distorted as with the roars neared, the edges becoming indistinct and blurry just as the powerful suction came from the opposite end. The soul, helpless, was sucked in just before the furious retribution could destroy the tunnel. The lost soul hurtled through the blazing pathway at speeds beyond comprehension. Hot. The sensation of heat. Somehow, despite being senseless, it could feel that. But this was not the heat of a fire, nor that of a hot iron on flesh. It was the heat of mind. Through the vastness it twisted and churned, all the while the heat grew ever greater. The soul passed through the pathway its hatred had forged, a blazing imprint branded onto it. The pathway had reached an understanding with the very wrath that etched into the nature of the cosmos. Wrath, the cardinal sin, the ruling evil. But do not good men act out of anger, or a moment's fury can lead to drastic consequences, but what of hatred? If anger is force of chaos, causing irreparable damage given the right circumstances, then what of enmity and malice? The enmity that fuels wrath, the malice that is the source of all strife. This is hatred, that which seeps into the bone and flesh, leading man away from the brighter paths. And this lost soul, burning with such a hatred, shattered the boundary of death and emerged again in the realm of the living, amidst the great emptiness. It found home. Unknown entity has entered the realm of Aegon, measuring entity. Error. Specifications do not match any known object. 61% match with known, branded entities. Entity will be classified as such. You have received the brand of wrath. High above the vast realm on the outer reaches of the atmosphere, something shimmered. It was small, roughly two feet across, and completely unnoticeable to the unaided eye. This phenomenon lasted for only a moment before stopping. Then something transparent blasted out from it like a meteor, piercing the clouds beneath without disturbing them. Not a single living thing noticed this event. Where was it? So much closer than before. It could feel the source now. But where? It must focus. The ghostly thing descended until it reached the blue, shimmering expanse. Then it shot forward. It flew across the surface of the ocean at blinding pace. It eventually reached the shore, flying past the sandy dunes into the wide plains that lay beyond. Then it passed the great forest. 
Deep in the distance, what had been an indistinct before, now loomed out at the sky as if it had always been there. The mountain range. At this distance, they were merely a slightly darker shade of blue than the paler sky above them. It was impossible to estimate their height, but as the spirit drew closer, it became clearer how monstrous the mountains were. Though the forest had long since given way to grassy fields, and signs of human habitation had become more prominent, with villages and towns occasionally whizzing by, the mountains hadn't grown larger yet, remaining hazy and indistinct with distance. The flat fields slowly turned to a series of hillocks and then hills, then the hills grew into mountains and the mountains into behemoths. Yet, with all of this, the sky-shattering peaks beyond it still mocked it, barely having grown at all. They were worlds unto themselves. After a long time, the sun dropped below, and the soul into the shadow of the mountains. The world was plunged into an early night. The formerly phantasmal figure and the spirit changed. When the light vanished, it seemed to gain substance and form, its outline appearing almost like a human. The head, where the face would be on a human, was a blur but it was clear that it had become more whole. After travelling for some time more, it stopped without warning. Here. It was here. It plunged downwards into the fog-covered ground below. As it fell, the air became thicker. As the spirit passed through the lowest layer of clouds, a mountain valley was revealed. The sides were precariously steep, giving the basin the appearance of a deep and inescapable chasm. It was a desolate place. Mist clung to the ground in patches. What few trees that grew here were twisted and blackened, their ugly branches still sporting the few ash-colored leaves. Grass and vegetation were sparse. A river threaded through the bottom of the valley, but like the rest of the place, it looked foul and polluted. Stones also dotted the landscape sporadically, most of them were small, but there were several mountainous boulders larger than the skyscrapers scattered around with no rhyme or reason, as if a hand of some primordial titan had dropped them where they lay. But none of these were what stood out the most. Amongst the rocks and trees by the river and in the slim stretches of the grassland, there were signs of human habitation, small villages of stone and wooden huts, a few dirt roads, and many dead fields were scattered about, following a river that wound through the valley. Smoke spiraled up from several of the areas where these buildings clustered, making it clear that something had happened to them recently. Fires spreading, no one had been able to or willing to extinguish them. This is it. This was the place that contained the voice to which called him out who had been drifting aimlessly in the realm of the dead. The spirit flew closer to the ground, impatient to find the reason for its presence here. Soon it saw shapes moving along the ruins. They were hundreds of them, things that, uh, from a distance, appeared to be humans, but their slow and shambling gait. Once they came into view, it became clear that these humans were anything but. Yellow eyes, pale white flesh covered in gaping wounds. These figures were dead. On the very edge of the field nearby, two of the corpses, moving sluggishly, nearly ran into each other. One of them suddenly turned on its fellow and lurched forward, jaws latching onto the other's neck. The victim clawed at its attacker, 
but the efforts were futile. The other ripped and tore at its victim until it stopped moving, giving it one last shake before proceeding to devour the rotting flesh. Elsewhere, similar scenes were playing out. The mindless corpses wandered around until they bumped into one another, when they would then fight to eat one another. Some actively hunted others. One or two living humans were seen fleeing through the empty fields, pursued by ghastly hunters. This valley was the host of a macabre celebration. The spectre that flew above the valley took only a passing notice of these things. Its mind was consumed by an urgent desire. Need it. Where? Find it. Find it. The call indeed came from the valley of death, but it was not the valley that a spirit sought. There was something else, something that itched at its hatred-filled consciousness. It was waiting. Then it heard something, a whisper carried on the wind, a lamentation. It followed the sound which led to the center of the valley. Here, the air seemed to grow impossibly thick. It pushed the soul, threatening to sweep it away. Nestled underneath one of the great stones not far from the river was a simple wooden hut. The door was cracked open, and it was through the doorway that the spirit heard crying. It entered the house. Before it was a confusing scene. The floor was bare, all furnishings pushed aside to make room for patterns that had been drawn on the wooden surface. A great circle dominated the interior of the cottage. Hundreds of complex ruins had been held within it. In the very center of the circle sat a hooded and robed figure with long and unkept black hair that shrouded her face. Hands covered up her eyes, giving her an appearance of a grief-stricken widow. The soul, upon seeing the burial shroud that covered her body in the rear of the room, forgot everything else. In a moment it had crossed the room and was hovering over the shroud. Here, here it was! Whatever lay beneath that shroud was what it sought. In one swift movement it sunk beneath the veil. A few moments passed, and the body twitched. There was a tearing sound as the shroud slowly split down the middle. A monster that couldn't be called beautiful slowly sat up. It had grey-stretched skin. It was shriveled, and it had been dead for a long time in a dry environment. Some scrapes of dark hair could still clung to its cranium, and its eyes, which may have been once bright and animated, were now sunken and lifeless, though a dull yellow gleam came out. There was a sizzling sound, and a smell of flesh burning spread through the air. The moaning woman on the floor lifted her head. Standing before her was a corpse, a thin strand of smoke curled upwards from its forehead. Emblazoned by fire was a sinister brand that glowed with a red gleam, a circle with two crescent moons attached to either side, facing outwards with like the horns of a bull. Even as the woman watched, the brand began to fade. The woman spoke up in a hoarse voice, barely more than a whisper. Are you him? Are you my lord of death? I prayed for deliverance, you know, and they sent me you. The ghoul looked down, upon seeing her face, paused. The eyes that looked at him were like two deep wells of eternity, darker than the deepest pits of hell, and in them burned that same hatred which inundated his own spirit. He knelt slowly and awkwardly, his knees hitting the floor as he lowered his head in a subservience. 
This was his mistress. He knew it intuitively. This was the one who had called him here. A string of characters flickered into his existence in his eyes as he stared downwards. After entering this dead body, his thinking became much more sluggish than it had been when he was a spirit. He was unable to make any sense of these characters. Whatever they might have meant, it didn't matter anyway. What matters now were his orders. Rise, ghoul. He rose. Go and devour. Brand recognized. Race, lesser ghoul. Level one. End of chapter. Chapter two. Skewer. The ghoul was confused. His mind wasn't properly coordinating with his body, making every action seem jerky and delayed. What drove him now was an instinct. As soon as he received the command of the woman, he felt an unbearable hunger and a strong desire to kill. But there was no living prey here. The violent impulse that had to be let loose, he couldn't touch this woman. There was no question of that. His slow consciousness did not consider her either food or as an outlet for his hatred. The ghoul walked around the woman and went outside. It was dim as the valley steeped in eternal shadow and colossal mountains above. The silver of the blue above him marked the time as day. The lack of light didn't matter to the ghoul, whose yellow eyes resembled those of a nocturnal predator. Looking around, he saw that there was nothing of interest nearby other than overgrown and ill-kept path running off into the distance. Despite its central location, the solitary hut nestled under the large stone was one of the most isolated places in the entire valley. Weeds and barren earth stretched out for over a mile in each direction. He set his foot upon the path and made his way forward. His movements were simple shuffle, the bare minimum to keep him moving forward. As he walked, his faint grasp of his identity slipped further and further away. This new vessel the soul found himself in seemed unable to maintain any thoughts, then went beyond the location of his next meal. He was hatred, he was hunger. With each step down the dirt path, reason vanished until now all that was left was the ghoul. He traveled until the sky above began to shine. A dull red. The road was no longer just dirt. Now its surface was comprised of smooth river pebbles. He blinked and sluggishly looked around, finding himself in the outskirts of a tidy village. He stepped forward, sparing no glances towards the dilapidated homes standing on either side. He was focused on the smell that was carried on the faint wind. He smelled others of his kind, but also traces of something more delicious. There were sounds in the distance, so he began to follow them, believing it to be a source of a tantalizing scent. Focusing on his destination, he missed it when the figure slumped out and hut behind him and approached. The ghoul was taken off guard as a pair of hands suddenly grasped his shoulders. With a growl and a sickening crunch, a chunk of flesh was ripped off of his neck. He staggered as the weight of the unknown assailant pressed down on him. After a violent struggle failed to throw it off, he changed strategies. The ghoul fell over backwards onto the attacker, forcing it to release its hold on him. He rolled over and got to his feet, only to see another like himself. A ghoul. It was the corpse of an old man. It possessed a tall frame as a well built for its age. 
In life, it may have been a venerable elder, but death did not treat it kindly. The second undead had dark, splotchy discolorations on its skin, and it was bloated, as if it had been submerged underwater for days. Both eyes were missing from the sockets, and his lips were now torn away to reveal a ghastly yellow teeth that were clenched within a piece of grey meat, which it swallowed with a grotesque slurping noise. The ghoul spared no time, lunging forward to strike. Blind as it was, his enemy didn't even know it was being attacked until his jaws were latched onto its throat. A struggle commenced, the bloated ghoul hammering on him, throwing wild, powerful punches that split the ghoul's flesh. His ribs cracked, but the ghoul was like a machine, powering through the blows. At last, he crushed its windpipe, ripping out its throat. The unfortunate ghoul was not yet finished, however. Even though it couldn't move its head and even stand, its undead body granted it no peace. It crawled along the ground, its nearly decapitated head dragging to the side, held onto its torso by its spine. The ghoul stomped down on the crawler's exposed cervical vertebra, snapping it and sending the gold ghoul to eternal rest. He looked down on the now unmoving corpse. He was affected in a way by a sudden clash of nearly Spaldi's end. There was no sign of it. What appeared to be an impassive visage was a dim yet seething fire flickering within the deepest parts of his eyes. Then he was reminded of his hunger. Level increased X2. Strength plus one, agility plus one. You have received the title, Cannibal. The ghoul stood up from the remnants of his grisly meal, reddish-brown blood painting his lips. He felt reinvigorated, and though the terrible wounds from the battle remained, they were like a distant memory. Despite this victory, his urge to kill hadn't lessened. Ignoring the awful scene at his feet, he continued down the path, towards a denser cluster of buildings where he had heard the sounds from earlier. Upon arriving at the center of the village, the ghoul paused. The street had changed from pebbles to cobblestones, causing the footsteps to echo against the nearby walls. He stopped moving and listened. From a house nearby, a tumult suddenly broke out. The sound of wood splintering came from within. Then someone screamed, Ah, Vera, Vera, Chalnev! The person pleaded for mercy for a few more moments, but sounds of intimate violence followed this, the screams continuing for some time, and then there was silence. The unfortunate inhabitant had gone quiet, though whether it was voluntarily or because it had its throat ripped out, the ghoul neither knew nor cared. As it closed in, he heard a sound that of meat getting ripped off the bone. He entered the house and was met with the aftermath of the struggle. The kitchen and the communal area near the entrance of the house was in disarray. Pots were strewn about and the already sparse wooden furniture was all but destroyed. The single door in the house that led to the separate sleeping area was broken and swinging on its hinges. Inside, he saw two female ghouls missing large chunks of flesh themselves, stooped over and tearing into a woman's body. Bloody meat entered the ravenous gullets as they gorged themselves. When the ghoul entered the doorway, they slowed and eventually came to a stop, staring at him blankly. When he took a step inside, they dropped the woman and stood. Dinner forgotten.
The ghoul, sluggishness gone from his body, fell upon them. He pounced on the ghoul to the left before it had a chance to rise completely. Like the last one, he went for the throat, managing to tear a piece out of it before the momentum of his tackle sent the ghoul flying into a large ceramic urn, which shattered and spilled its contents, preserved vegetables, out onto the floor. The enemy on his right had now fully risen and lunged at the ghoul biting his shoulder and clawing at his eyes. He nearly fell over, but supporting himself on the wall, barely managed to remain standing. As the hands approached his face, he snapped, catching two of the claw-like fingers in his mouth and severing them. There was no spray of blood, but a dark, viscous liquid seeped from the injury. He spat out the digits to free up his mouth, then he tried to push the ghoul away, but he couldn't maneuver his arm around in this tight space. The first ghoul was stirring atop the ceramic fragments that littered the floor. The fight was becoming disadvantageous and the ghoul knew it, though he couldn't put the feeling into conscious thought. He turned, ramming his shoulder, chewing ghoul into the wall, which caused the frame of the entire house to shudder. The ghoul fell off, leaving a few of its teeth behind. As he took a step towards it to try and finish it off, he stumbled over something, a metal skewer. It appeared to have fallen from the lifeless fingers of the woman who lived here, who had picked it up the makeshift weapon in the last desperate attempt to defend herself. He held up the skewer, and his forehead began to burn with a searing fire, the first true pain he felt since being put into this body. The suddenness of it shocked the ghoul into clarity. The gears of his mind, ignored and forgotten, began to turn once more. The ghoul was surrounded. There were too many angles here to defend from. He moved towards the doorway of the kitchen, attempting to maneuver so that there only had one angle to defend from. Before he could reach it, a fragment of pottery cracked behind him. He whirled, finding one of them closing in. The second one wasn't far behind. He lifted the skewer and whether the luck or something else at play, he lunged, affixing it through the eye socket of the nearest one, piercing deeply, exiting through the rear of the female ghoul's skull without much resistance. It was quite sharp. The ghoul pulled the skewer free, and his enemy crumpled to the floor. He turned to face the next one. The second ghoul was too close for him to rear back and stab it, Unless, unless it ran into the skewer itself. The female ghoul's dull eyes widened when it looked down to see the metal pole protruding from its chest. Mindlessly, it had impaled itself. This wasn't enough to stop it, however, and it still tried to claw at the ghoul. Thanks to the skewer keeping it at a distance, it couldn't get a solid hit in. The ghoul felt something as he held the handle of the makeshift weapon. He ignored the female ghoul's glancing blows, and his dull eyes glazed over as he looked at the distance. Beyond the ghoul he was stabbing, beyond the walls of the house, and even beyond the mountains enclosing the valley of death. It felt like a memory from long ago. It wasn't a memory of a person or an event, but a sensation that he could feel in his arms and legs, an electric current, a path running throughout his body. It told him what to do. He leaned back and kicked the ghoul, sending it staggering back and off the skewer. Nearly stumbling himself, he righted by placing his back to the wall. Then he crouched and lunged up, making the most of his limited space and driving the skewer in through the jaw. 
It flailed about for a few seconds, but the flailing soon turned to twitches. When the ghoul gave another push, his final enemy fell limply to the floor, coming to a rest upon a blood-soaked straw mat so neatly that, if not for the carnage surrounding it, would appear to be sleeping. Level increased X3, dexterity plus two, echo plus one. He exited the house after tasting only a little of his victims. This time, the taste wasn't quite as fulfilling as he thought it could have been. The murdered woman began stirring before he left, but he ignored her. There was something else within him now, the eagerness that his dull brain couldn't fully understand. Lifting his nose to the air, the ghoul sent dozens of other undead in its vicinity. As he moved through the village, he saw some chewing on carcasses, others who idled and did nothing, and even more who fought with one another like he had. He disregarded them all, moving through the village until he reached the opposite side, where he could finally discern traces of the humans who had fled this place only hours ago. With the skewer in one hand, the ghoul memorized the scent and began to track them. End of chapter Chapter 3 The Second Brand As the ghoul hunted into the waning hours of daylight, his mind began to slow. It stayed active for as long as there were either incredible threats or prey nearby, but as soon as neither of these were about, he found it increasingly difficult to keep moving. Occasionally, he would pass by other day's ghouls who had left the village for the same reason as him, tracking the scent of the trail of the humans who fled. These ghouls were now all idling by the roadside. They looked at him as he passed, and some even moved towards him, but he continued on. They slowed and came to a halt, returning to the apathetic, blurred existences. There was a struggle. His motivation continued to fall until it seemed as though anchors weighed on each foot. It had been an hour or more since he had passed the last one. It wasn't a struggle with physical energy or even stamina, but with his mind. The ghoul's consciousness, which had been so active and predatorial when he was fighting the other ghouls, seemed now as if it were trying to communicate his will from underneath miles of ocean. It was a constant battle just to remember what he wanted. Step. Everything was tinted grey. Step. The torpor of death calls. Step. What use is want? Need. Step. And then a noise. Something moved up ahead, and a glare ignited in his brain. His downcast eyes became alert, searching for the sound of the noise. But it wasn't human. A dozen yards up ahead, a ghoul dragged himself along the ground. He took another few steps faster now. He was going faster than the school, and it didn't take long for him to catch up. When he did, he glanced up at him. It was a young man, barely into adulthood. Its single remaining eye stared back. It had a pale hair with paler skin, and blood covered its clothes, though it didn't look too injured compared to the other undead around. Like the others, it must have been fighting against the growing apathy when the ghoul charged upon it. This was the first fit male ghoul that he had seen. The ghouls he'd encountered so far had all been young, elderly, or female. The ghoul didn't have any thought to what happened to the rest of the humans. This wasn't his concern. The two ghouls passed, looking at each other with expressionless faces. Fight? 
No, they could, but something about it felt too wasteful now. They tracked the living this far. The ghoul, though he had yet to see any, instinctively knew that warm flesh would make for better prey. He continued, leaving the crawler behind him. After a moment, there was a grunt. He glanced behind him and to see the young ghoul standing. It shuffled after him, at a faster clip than before. The ghoul didn't mind. They had reached agreements of sorts. Sticking to the lead, the ghoul and his associate continued, the other's presence acting as a stimulant, keeping their shared will alive, even as the track of steady grew more and more uphill. By the time it had reached the deepest hour of the night and began to pass into early morning, the scent suddenly grew stronger. People had doubled back into this area, and recently, as if they were searching for something, they were close. The two ghouls felt little fatigue at this point, and their pace unconsciously quickened. By this point, they had neared one of the walls in the valley, half a mile further, and the hike would have become a rock-climbing session. The terrain here was mostly loose gravel with patches of scruff weeds sticking out of the earth. Their footsteps weren't quick and having no concept of stealth. A dim, flickering light appeared up ahead, illuminating the hole in the face of a small cliff. They headed towards it, a large rock dislodged by the ghoul went tumbling down the slope, and there was a cry of alarm from nearby. Thirty feet away, partially concealed by the scrub, were two old men standing watch. One of them stood up and called out something in the staccato language. Electricity spiked in the ghoul's brain. His vision widened, then narrowed again. His feet picked up speed. Behind him, the young ghoul followed, almost as fast. The two men leveled their weapons, backing up and casting their eyes about as they searched the darkness. They heard the ghouls, but they couldn't see them yet. Shadows played off the cave walls as figures from deeper within the cave began moving around the fire. Yelling echoed from within. The ghoul closed the last few feet between him and the first sentry, partially sprinting. He lunged, and the old man lifted his spear, aiming it at his chest. Dodging at the last second, the ghoul was instead skewered in the side, rather than retreat. He twisted himself off the spear, leaving a chunk of the flesh behind. A fatal wound for anything but an undead. The man let out a wordless cry of defiance as the ghoul darted forward and stabbed him in the chest. As he stared at his murderer, the burning eyes that slowly faded to dimness. Blood spilled from his mouth onto his white beard, then folding slowly inward. He collapsed. The smell of fresh blood suffused the air, pouring upon his prey. The ghoul sunk his teeth into the meal, and the meat was far the better taste to it than the earlier sampling of ghoul flesh. Level increased x4, strength plus one, agility plus two, dexterity plus one. A flicker of movement to his left made the ghoul look up. The second ghoul hadn't fared as well as him. The remaining sentry held it off with a spear, which had been sunken into its stomach. The man was struggling to hold the slavering monster back, his wiry arms trembling even as he glanced over to his fallen friend. He called out once more in a panicked voice, but there was no motion from the direction of the cave. Whatever reinforcements he'd expected weren't arriving. Getting up, the ghoul left his victim and approached the second man. He felt energized, more in control of his movements than he had ever done before even back when he fought the two ghouls in the village. That same electricity ran through him, informing his actions, 
but no longer did the ghoul feel that he was fighting a rapidly flowing current. He still felt a little sluggish and clumsy, rather like a child, but his body had begun to respond like he imagined it should. The old man began to back away, trying to keep his spear with the impaled monster on it on between himself and the ghoul, but it was futile. The skewered ghoul grabbed the spear, and the man tripped over at the sudden resistance. The ghoul was upon him in an instant. This time it wasn't a quick death. The man rolled as he hit the ground, squirming to avoid the fatal blow. The ghoul stabbed down with the skewer, but only hit his leg. The second ghoul closed in and grabbed his arm, biting down. The man screamed. He'd been crippled, but was too panicked to realize he'd escape was impossible. He kicked and punched the monster who chewed on him, but it didn't even notice the blows. The ghoul could have followed his example of his companion and began eating the still-living human. A part of him wished to. His urges drove him to drop the skewer and feast on the warm flesh. He posed no danger. It would be satisfying. Instead, he drove the skewer through the man's chest, ending his life. The ghoul moistened his throat with his blood. Level increased X2, stamina plus one, dexterity plus one. The ghoul was forced to stop and feast when the searing pain shot through his head. He collapsed to his knees as something akin to a white-hot knife began to cut into his forehead. A second undead looked up and the ghoul and began to groan. Being bitten and stabbed was nothing like this. Physical pain hurt, but for a ghoul such things were of little concern. Though they could feel undead lacked the ability to react to stimuli like living beings, this was different than physical pain, however. It went deeper, piercing directly into his mind and bypassing whatever inhibitor stopped other agonies from affecting him. Within his original red ring, which was framed with horns on either side, a new symbol appeared. This one had a bluish sheen to it. A small dot appeared in the very center, surrounded by a circle, which itself had the four T-shaped ruins attached to the pointed in each and the cardinal directions. They looked like hammers, and taken together, the symbol was similar to an ornamented cross. The design was blockier than the first brand and smaller, as it existed within the dimensions of the other. If one observed closely, they could see the both at the same time, though the red brand was currently much dimmer than the new one. You have received the brand of patience. Brand recognize. Select a class. Feral, martial arts, swordsman, and none. The four paths opened up before him. The ghoul couldn't read these bright characters that floated before him, but he could dimly sense that three of them were ways forward. What that truly meant, he didn't know. The first path had a savage aura. It smelled of blood and speed and instinct, rooting above all. The ghoul's tongue ran over his lips, his vicious urges trembling when he imagined stepping down this path. But it felt limited somehow. A straight line without diversions. There was always a method to progress, but the direction was predetermined. The second felt almost alien to the undead. It was a path of discipline, of rules. It was nearly the opposite of the first, yet similar in some ways. There was an inner strength to this one. It had many more twists and turns than the first, and the ghoul sensed that it could eventually turn into something uncomprehensible. The third, like the second, required discipline, but there was a degree of abandon here too, like with the first. 
Recklessness and control vade for each other, breeding conflict and growth. This path started off straight, but later it appeared to have the most detours of all, painting an image of a snarling, contorted mess of intersecting and dead-end roots. The beginning of this path felt familiar, though the ghoul couldn't comprehend it even the portion of the later vastness. All three paths seemed to stretch forward infinitely, but the third path seemed the widest. The fourth path was no path at all, but a closed door. It terrified him. He chose the third. Class obtained swordsman, common. Skill obtained swordsmanship, level zero. The ghoul stood. His companion ghoul was still eating the last prey. A noise made him turn, only to see the body of the first sentry beginning to move. A groan spilled through the whitened lips, and it pushed off the ground, propping itself up on a D. The ghoul watched as it rose unsteadily, still clutching its spear. For a moment he eyed the old ghoul, but when it made no motion to attack him, he lost interest. He glanced down once more at the second sentry, who had begun moving as well, but the damage the two ghouls had caused his body made the newly born undead unable to even stand. It was trying to crawl away, even while the young companion stubbornly continued gnawing on an ankle. The ghoul had since lost interest in the flesh of the dead. He looked up, though he hadn't heard anything since they attacked the sentries. The cave ahead of them was soaked in the scent of human fear. He started forward, and the other three ghouls began to follow behind. End of chapter Chapter number four, Dead End The ghoul paused at the mouth of the cave, listening for a movement. His instincts urged him onwards, but caution that had been newly born within him stopped him. Whatever prey waited for him inside, they would be ready for him. The cave may not have reeked of danger, but there was a whiff of it. Danger? What was that? Alien concepts had begun to surface in his mind, but the ghoul didn't care to reflect on the changes within him. What should he do if simply charging in was unwise? He turned, eyeing the three other creatures stumbling up the slope behind him. The stubborn, juvenile ghoul was in the lead, followed by the old ghoul with the spear, and the crawling one was far behind it. It was a miracle that it made a move after what they did to it. He growled when the first two tried to move around him and enter the cave. They backed off, looking at him with their dull, unintelligent eyes. The ghoul waited for the crawler to make it to torturous way up the hill, and when it did, he let it move in first. After a moment, he followed behind at a distance, but close enough to the lead ghoul that he could see it. Two other two sluggishly took up the rear. The dim glow illuminated the inside of the cave. There was a fire further back around the bend of the tunnel, providing more than enough light for the eyes of the ghouls. It didn't take long before they met resistance. The crawler rounded the corner and a hail of stones came flying out. The rocks were palm-sized or smaller, and most of them missed, falling short and clattering off the ground nearby. Many still hit, though, and the ghoul weathered the blows as they hammered into it, stubbornly crawling forwards until they was out of sight of the rest of the party. Shortly afterwards, the rocks stopped. There was a low groan, and the young male ghoul pushed past as the two who waited. A single eye glowed with bloodlust. The ghoul didn't stop it. As it went around the bend, a few voices cried out, and the hail of stones began anew, though many of these were smaller than the first round. 
the ghoul wasn't truly able to process all the information. To him, it only seemed like the danger was minimal and that there was a lot of meat waiting around the corner. Restraint warred with desire, and desire won. He started forward. Once he reached the turn, the situation was revealed. A line of people assembled fifty feet down the tunnel. A few had split from that group, coming forward with armfuls of rocks and pelting the approaching ghouls, falling back when they got too close. The crawler who took point had only made it a few body lengths down the corridor before something had busted its head open. A large rock lay on the floor by its corpse, resting in a puddle of blood and brains. The young ghoul was pushing onwards through the hail. These projectiles were too small to do much to impede it. Once the two new ghouls came into view, another cry went up from the people of the very back. The rock throwers didn't yell or gesticulate like the people in the back. Their motions became noticeably more frantic as they scoured the cave floor for more ammunition. The ghoul lowered himself and picked up his pace. Shortly, he'd worked himself up to a quick shuffle, catching up with the young ghoul. That was when the first rock hit him. Reactively, he lifted his arm and protected his face. Another rock crunched into his knee, another smashed into his arms, and he almost dropped his skewer. The rocks hurt, but the will of the undead was implicable. They only served to stoke the flames of the ghoul's rage. A sound worked its way up from his throat. Not a voice. Nothing human. The growl started low and quiet, building in intensity until it was audible to the rock throwers, then to the people at the back of the cave, and it continued rising until it morphed into a howl of deafening pitch that resounded off the walls. The blood-curdling, bestial noise swept out of the cave and echoed down the valley. For a short moment, all the rocks stopped. Ability obtained. Howl, level one. Then a sob of panic broke the silence. Several people at the back were yelling and pushing now, while the few others tried to calm them down. Though the barrage halted, none of the undead had. A rock thrower, upon seeing the ghouls nearing, tried to backpedal, but tripped and fell on his back. It was another old man, like the two sentries. As the ghoul closed the remaining distance in between them, he shouted and threw handfuls of pebbles at him. To the corpse, the attacks weren't even as inconvenience. He stabbed down with the skewer. It pierced the flesh and stopped only when it hit the stone. The man gasped as the ghoul reared back for a second strike. A sudden flurry of stones made him once more lift his arms. A nearby boy flinging the rocks at him at a pace that far outstripped the previous barrages. He was shouting with desperation. Nyait mayak fell, 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 viru! The ghoul growled again. But this time, he didn't have to take action. The young ghoul, keeping its body low to the ground, blindsided the rock-throwing boy, tackling to the floor. He hit with a force that expelled all the air from his lungs, so he couldn't even scream as the ghoul began to dine. Seeing that there were no more interruptions, the ghoul turned back to his prey. The old man hadn't stopped squirming, so he stabbed him once more before setting him into his teeth. Orange level increased X2, strength plus 1, miasma plus 1, blue level increased, strength plus 1. By the fifth bite, something about the meal became less appealing, and the ghoul stood up, aware that there was more prey to be had. The noise and the chaos had only increased while the ghoul took his meal. Nearby, the rock-throwing boy was lying dead on the floor, his throat ripped out. 
The two other ghouls had gone ahead, and the last on the rock throwers were frantically retreating behind the line. There were a few people in front of him who stood firm, holding an assortment of weapons. There was one man armed with a crude spear. Somebody else had one looked like a pitchfork, another had a hoe. Three or four of them just held sticks. Most of them were men over fifty or boys under fifteen. One of them, a man with a pitchfork, seemed to recognize the old bearded ghoul who'd been the sentry for a short time. He called out to him, Kalaki! Kalaki! One of the others shouted something else, and it was joined by a few more voices. When Kalaki the ghoul drew closer and his ravaged flesh became illuminated by the firelight, most of the villagers' faces changed, though a few still called out in desperation. The ghoul caught up just after the engagement. The villagers struck out, landing several blows with their weapons on the two lead ghouls. The man with the pitchfork looked surprised when his weapon successfully pierced the chest of Kalaki, and he remained standing. The ghoul in question looked down, seemingly confused about why the pole was growing out of him. Then, as if he just noticed something, he lifted the arm that held his weapon. The spear which he had used so inefficiently against the ghoul again stabbed out with it, striking the pitchfork wielder and sending him to the ground, screaming. To the other side, the young ghoul had been trapped with the spear in its gut for the second time in that day, and was currently beset by a boy and a girl with sticks. The ghoul ignored the two children, aiming for the man who held the spear. The prey was the biggest threat. Seeing him approach, the man joked back, trying to free his spear. Unfortunately, he was too slow, and the ghoul was able to strike him in the side with his skewer. Just then, a large, dark shape filled his vision, and a blow to his head sent him sprawling backwards. Losing his grip on his weapon, he went tumbling to the floor. The person who'd hit him was a large woman holding what appeared to be a skillet. For a moment, he was too dazed to do much of anything. But as the woman approached for a second blow, he lifted his hands and grabbed the edge of the pan before it could complete its descent. Surprised, the woman tried to pull back, but the weapon didn't budge. Held firm by the ghoul's considerable strength, she used both hands, plunging her feet and tugging, but all she accomplished was horning the ghoul to his feet. That was a mistake. He groaned, lunging for the woman. She shrieked and let go, trying to back up, but she was blocked by the press of bodies behind her. The result was messy. Level increased X2, strength plus one, dexterity plus one. When the ghoul lifted his head, it was pandemonium. The man with the spear had fallen, and once everyone watched the woman torn apart just now, the last of their nerves seemed to leave them. The crowd surged, looking for a way to escape, but the only way was past the ghouls. Several people ran past the ghoul and back out the way they'd come. Before they made it halfway, however, the screams began. Two fallen rock throwers had risen as the ghouls, and they ambushed the runners. The sight of the smell of such warm, fresh meat completely wiped the ghoul's mind of any pretense of strategy. He tore into anyone and everyone who got within an arm's reach. His teeth ripped flesh, his hands broke bones, just from gripping their fragile appendages. It was a bloody mess, and he felt, for the first time since his resurrection, that the visceral rage that constantly gnawed at him was finally being accommodated, if only temporarily. It was only after the last person had disappeared, running out of the cave, that the bloodbath finally ended. Less than half had survived. 
The ghoul looked up from the body of the last person he killed, an old woman who'd been either too slow or too unlucky to escape like the rest. Level increased times five, strength plus three, stamina plus one, agility plus one. His bones popped as his flesh shifted and the ghoul's body was forced to accommodate the sudden rush of power that flowed into him. It stopped too soon, however. He felt that the vague way that the instincts guided, though, as his screen was stopped short by something. If not for this unknown blockage, it would have kept going on for a while yet. The ghoul didn't like feeling blocked. He liked the skewer, though, ignoring the inexplicable stifling sensation. He stood going over to locate his weapon. For some reason, his thoughts were burning bright and clear, even more so than when they had had the other fights. Battle and food seemed to do that. This feeling of omniscience wouldn't last, he knew, so he went to make the most of it. But how does one make the most of omniscience? In the corner of the cavern, somebody had kicked the burning campfire, scattering the logs all over the floor. Many of them still glowed with a weak flame, giving plenty of light to the ghoul to see by. Nearby, the juvenile ghoul was still tearing into flesh. For some reason, this annoyed the ghoul. It couldn't tell that the meat was no good. He kicked it, but the ghoul ignored him, intent on its bloody feast. The old spear-wielding ghoul Kalaki sat on the floor, gazing blankly at the bodies of the villagers, many of which were beginning to stir and resurrect as ghouls themselves. Kalaki looked lost, or... Perhaps not. All the undead looked that sort of way like that. He wandered around the cave, checking to see if there was another weapon that he could pick up. He didn't find anything like the sword. Wait, what was the sword? Curses. He was already losing his... his... what? He growled, suddenly irritated. A sudden sound in the corner of the cavern made him look up. His growl had elicited a sharp intake of breath in that direction. Something still lived. He advanced, weapon in hand. As his steps neared, something shifted and the two specks of light appeared. Firelight reflected off the two dark brown eyes. As soon as they appeared, they vanished again. Hissing, now he recognized the figure of a girl hiding under rags. He closed the distance, intending to stab her. But something made him stop. Something felt wrong, but he couldn't determine what. He lifted the skewer and took a stance, waiting for the feeling to disappear. But it didn't. It only grew stronger. It was incorrect. Wrong! Something was missing. He fought against the feeling, but the ghoul's arm seized and was unable to strike out. This wasn't done out of any feeling of remorse or pity. No, those were concepts alien to the undead. The criteria just hadn't been met. While he had a sword in his hand, his instincts told him, screamed at him, that his opponent needed a weapon as well. Even a desire to strike out with her fists would have satisfied this condition. It was something about the sword. The sword. Why couldn't he remember why he felt this way, locked in the struggle against distant memories of his body? The ghoul stalled. He slowly recognized what he needed. She needed a weapon. There were plenty around, but all the girl did was huddle against the wall, covering her head with her hands. He growled in a futile attempt to communicate his displeasure. Pick up the weapon! Fight! She looked up again, as if hoping that he hadn't really spotted her. Her eyes widened upon seeing the monster that stood only five feet away. They widened further, when upon witnessing the brand on his forehead, glowing like some evil halo. 
Though the ghoul couldn't see it himself, it was a blazing bright bloody crimson, fainter, almost invisible against the red glow. The center of the symbol gleamed with a slight blue light. Alahiho, she whispered, a mixture of terror and awe in her voice. Upon realizing her mistake, she covered her mouth with her hands, then promptly noted that there was no way the ghoul didn't realize that she was there by now. She threw rags covering her arms at him. The unforeseen move surprised the ghoul, and he lunged forward with his weapon, finally overpowering his resistance. Unfortunately, all he speared was a leather and cloth. The dull blade didn't even penetrate the garments, and he was left holding an armful of clothes. The girl had darted up and away while he was distracted, weaving past at the stumbling, recently resurrected ghouls. A few of them made a feeble attempt at grabbing her, but she was too quick on her feet. The ghoul watched her receding back. He stood, ready and waiting for her to return with a weapon. After a minute, he was still waiting. Another minute went by, and he'd forgotten what he was doing, dropping his arms which hadn't been raised for the fence's stance. The rags dropped to the floor. Slowly, he remembered his calling. He must devour. He decided it was time to make his way outside. A few of the other undead already had the same idea. As the crowd had thinned out in the last few minutes, several ghouls who had remained inside the cave seemed to have done so because they were too busy fighting each other to hunt the fleeing humans. On his way out, he neared one of the newly resurrected corpses and lunged at him. Its movements were clumsy, however, and he was able to sidestep. When it turned around again, he stabbed it through the eye, dropping it like a rock. Swordsmanship level increased, dexterity plus one. Huh, the ghoul tilted his head. A tiny something entered him when he killed that creature. It was beneficial to him. Maybe he should kill some more. He just started looking around him for a suitable prey, when without warning his dam ruptured. The blockage of energy that had so irritated him finally made the rest of its way, and it entered him like a lightning bolt out of the blue. He hit the floor, instantly unconscious, becoming one of the only unmoving bodies in the room full of corpses. Information. Name. None. Titles. Cannibal. Race. Lesser Ghoul. Evolution. Pending. Level. 20. Abilities. Howl. Level. 0. Class. Swordsman. Level 2. Skills. Swordsmanship. Level 0. Statistics. Strength. 21. Vitality. Not applicable. Stamina. 26. Agility. 8. Dexterity. 9. Ichor. 3. Mizma. 2. Individual lesser ghoul satisfies the requirement for evolution. Individual lesser ghoul is evolving into ghoul. End of chapter. Chapter number 5. Peon. Lay ran and ran. She ran down the dirt path, winding around the edges of the cradle, a trail that was once familiar, but now, in the dead of night, took a more sinister air. She was used to darkness, all the children of the mountain were, but not a darkness like this. What were those things? How could the dead bodies move? And why did dying make villages she'd known, all of her life, want to kill her too? Were they not the same people? Lost in thought, the girl practically flew into someone's back. She skidded to a stop and jumped back, stifling her scream. Whoa, who's this? Oh, a child. They spoke to her. It wasn't a dead person, at least. Who is it? Is that you, Kaipo? They asked me. No, she replied breathlessly. It's Lei. 
For a moment, an annoyed lay became mistaken for that brat. Typo was a bothersome boy who followed her around wherever he saw her outside, making fun of her and the dumbest things. Sometimes she imagined herself slipping frogs into his shoes, or something even more evil that could get him back. But she never managed to work up the nerve after imagining what her father would do to her, if he ever found out. Her indignation only lasted until she remembered that Kaivo had been fighting the monsters up near the front. She hadn't fought. Even though she was the daughter of a famous warrior, Kaipo was probably dead by now. Or worse. It was all she could do to block the sudden sensation of her stomach dropping to her feet. She focused on the person in front of her. Lei recognized the speaker's voice. It was a villager, an old woman. She was the wife of one of the hunters. Or was she a widow? Lei wished that she could remember the woman's name. Lei. Orimo's girl. They nodded, then spoke aloud, since the villager couldn't see it. Yes. Thank the mountain for small favors, then. There were murmurs of assent from all around, and they looked up, startled to see by the faint starlight several other figures around them. More villagers. Why were they all here? They needed to keep moving. The monsters were close. There, child, hush now. It's all right. You aren't in danger anymore. Lei hadn't realized that she was crying, but it must have shown in her voice. The old woman's hands pressed against her cheeks, then brushed her messy black hair. The soft strokes brought them to a sense of safety, a mother's touch. She couldn't even remember her own mother. For just a moment, she let herself be swept away. Then the woman spoke. You must be strong, Lei. We need you to be a strong girl for us. She sniffed, asking why. What can I do? I... I'm useless. I didn't even fight. The woman must have smiled. Lei could hear it in her voice. We can't go on like this much longer. We're too old. And too tired. Running on these treacherous slopes in the night isn't for the grey folk like us. You can't. But we need to get away to find the others. Lei protested. Others escaped, right? We can get together and fight back. In the escape, we lost sight of the rest. It's only us here. We expected those monsters will catch up sooner or later, since they were able to find us at the cave. Rather than running ourselves to death, we talked and decided that we would stand and fight. An old man spoke up with a gruff voice. That's right. We'll take a few of them with us. No! Lei didn't want to do that. They would die. She would die too, and become one of those things... Would she want to kill people like the other monsters if she died? It isn't the same for you, the old woman said gently. You're young. You can run. You used to fly through the village on your bare feet, Lay. I know, because I saw you run past my house day after day. You never ran into anything, did you? Papa says I'm a good runner, but... Uh, no buts. You must run now, more so than ever. Alone? Alone. We can't go with you. We need you to do something for us. Lei listened, the sinking feeling in her stomach feeling like it would anchor her to the earth. Our hunters are out, but they will return soon. You have to warn them. You remember that your father was due to return tomorrow, right? Do you know which way he'll come from? Right? Her father. They're coming from the northeastern pass, she said, suddenly breathless. And you know how to get there? Of course. Good. Remember, you're quicker than those monsters, but don't trip and hurt yourself, running in the dark. 
The woman gave Lee a light pushback, and before she could speak or argue, a sharp go compelled her forwards, and she left the old villagers behind. Lay normally didn't mind being alone. She was used to it, being an only child of a single parent. But now, being out here frightened her beyond anything that she'd ever felt before. Fear for herself, fear for the old woman, fear for that monster standing over her, his forehead glowing with a blood-red brand. She'd only ever heard of monsters having a brand, but that didn't think was actually possible. A monstrous blanded, here, in the mountainous cradle. Her father had to hear about it. He could save them. Here, the old villagers and everyone else still living would be okay. After all, Orimo the hunter bore the brand of temperance. He was invincible. Completion of Tier 1 as a common race confirmed. Completion, dividend, common, plus 4 stats. Calculating distribution. Strength, plus 2. Agility, plus 1. Dexterity, plus 1. You are evolving from lesser ghoul common into ghoul uncommon. Ghoul opened his eyes to find himself lying in a pool of sticky blood in a dimly lit cave. He pushed himself to his feet and was surprised at how easily the motions came to him. He rotated both arms and stretched his back, finding his range of motions greatly improved. Before, he hadn't been able to do much more than simple movements such as staggering around, flailing and stabbing things. But just now, he'd done stretches without losing his balance. His body was beginning to respond in an almost familiar way. Though, there was a bit of drag still. The wounds he'd accumulated during the past day, and which we hadn't even noticed, had healed. The gouge on his side from the sentry spear. The chunk of a ghoul had ripped from his neck. The various bites and scrapes were all smoothed over, leaving white scars behind. In addition, the state of his body looked a little better than it had when he first resurrected. His decayed eyes had regenerated, maintaining the pale grey colour, and his features looked a little more human. He had more hair now, and the dark curls kept trying to fall over his eyes. Despite looking healthier, his sunken eyes and ashen complexion still marked him as an undead. If anything, his visage had even been more terrifying than before, radiating an intensity that he'd lacked as a lesser ghoul. And he could think. He didn't know who he was. No, he knew. He was a servant. He was conscious of that fact now. They were all servants. Before the command of his mistress had been internalized, integrated with his instincts as a ghoul. But now, it was clearly an outside force that compelled him to hunt and eat. But that was fine. Even without this compulsion, he would do it. A fire burned in him, and it filled him with an endless wrath. He located his skewer on the floor nearby and then paused, looking around. The cavern was all but abandoned. Most of the remaining figures were bodies of the dead ghouls and a few living ones that had lost their faculty of movement from injuries. There was the ghoul himself, and finally the old sentry Kalakai, who was sitting where he'd been seen last a spear over his shoulder as he stared blankly at the wall. As the ghoul approached him, he didn't even look up. When he got within reach, however, the spear whirled around, jabbing at his face. The ghoul jumped back in a step to avoid the attack, nearly slipping on some blood in the process. The older ghoul hadn't even looked in his direction. On second glance, most of the dead bodies appeared to be surrounding him. The tip of his spear was nearly black with blood. His attacker slowly turned 
Their eyes met, and the ghoul was suddenly made aware of the inherent contrast between the two of them. A hierarchy existed, and that hadn't before, and the ghoul was the one higher on that ladder. The other must have realized it as well, for he didn't move to attack again. Growling, the ghoul righted himself and approached Kalakai again, kicking him in the chest and knocking him over. He fell atop of him and roared in his face with a lethargic zombie. He didn't even look phased. The ghoul stood and waited, but Kalakai didn't budge, merely gazing at the stone ceiling. This would not do. The ghoul needed followers. He remembered the fight earlier and how having the other three bodies drawing fire made everything so much easier. Alone, he would have been overwhelmed. The rest of the undead had all left while he'd been unconscious, however, and it left him with the useless one. Even the reckless young ghoul he met on the road would have sufficed, but it was long gone, probably after gorging itself. Perhaps he could try and search them out, but it would take too much time. He walked back over and out, grabbing Kalakai's throat in his hand and holding him upright. Follow. Error, invalid target. The gruel growled. Fight. Error, invalid target. The ghoul's eyes flashed with some inscrutable emotion as he gripped tightened. Obey. Command recognized. Beyond brand advanced, subject resistance is minimal, brace for carving. The ghoul suspiciously eyed the blue runes that appeared in the air before him. A vague something, not quite a memory, tickled the edge of his consciousness when he saw them. He couldn't make the sense of the characters, but something about them seemed both familiar and slightly ominous. Just as he was about to release Kalakai, the spitting agony rent his brain in two for a second time that day. He lost his grip, stumbling backwards and clutching his head. For a singular moment, he was once again in that vast realm where his soul had wandered endlessly before his resurrection. The great, whirling maelstrom has always lay at its center, exerting a gravity of its own. A presence that he couldn't see but always felt, roaring eternity. The pain ended as soon as it had begun, and the ghoul was once again back in his body of flesh. It might have been the result of some twisted paradox, but he felt more imprisoned here even though he was freer than he'd ever been and his powerless soul. A low groan made him look up. A line of smoke trailed upwards from Kalakai's forehead, and the ghoul saw a ruin of blue light beginning to form. Carving successful, brace for melding. This time the sensation wasn't as striking. It was more uncomfortable than anything, like the ghoul had just started his way down an unfamiliar road, and he wasn't sure if it would take him where he needed to go, or if he'd be dead end. In contrast, Kalakai the ghoul roared and fell to the ground, writhing like a dying eel. His spear rolled away as he pounded the bare stone with his fists, gnashing his teeth. It was the most he'd moved since the assault on the cave. The ghoul watched on. There was something monstrous about the ghoul in agony, whether it was a vocalization, action, or appearance, the torment of the undead was wholly unlike anything a human could conjure up. Kalakai's struggles eventually ended, and he lay still. The only part of him that moved were his fingers, which twitched feebly. His ghoul approached the prone figure until he stood over him. Kalakai stared back, vacantly as ever. Or, no... Perhaps a flicker of recognition showed in those eyes, behind their milky veil. He gave the commanding growl, and slowly, Kalakai began to sit up and found his footing. 
As he did, the ghoul began to go around the room to see if there were any other ghouls that could follow him. They all had two or more broken limbs, or they had been eaten to the point that they were more skeleton than zombie. So he methodically went around and stabbed each through the eye socket, twisting the skewer until they stopped squirming. After the final undead expired with a bloody gurgle, a thread of something entered the ghoul. Swordsmanship level increased, dexterity plus one. The ghoul howled his weapon up, the skewer pointed skywards, barely wavering even when his arm was fully extended. Good. He didn't know what a word to said, but he could tell that it was somewhat steadier than before. Sharper. Such increases in his capabilities had been happening constantly since he'd been raised, but he hadn't been aware enough to make the connection between these ruins and his growth before. Now, it seemed so obvious that he was amazed that he'd missed it. But why, then, had the ruins been so painful that he touched Kalakai? Did this pain represent an increase in his power, but in a different direction? What other sorts of powers were there? Reasoning through things was getting difficult. Observations were one thing, but thinking this deeply about something hypothetical was still beyond him. The ghoul glanced over at Kalakai, who had retrieved his weapon and stood nearby. The blue light on his chest faded, but at least the spearman looked willing to follow him now. The fire inside him began to spread, warming his limbs. The command of his mistress still remained, but now the ghoul had another reason to obey. He wanted to grow. End of chapter. Chapter 6. Into the Storm The ghoul set foot outside to find that it was morning. Despite that, it wasn't much brighter. He looked up, for perhaps the first time since he'd inhabited the body of flesh, and found himself in a basin, a prison where the sheer walls stretched upwards for miles upon miles, layers of clouds speckled in the great stone faces of tufts of cotton. Above that, the eternal snow lay as a coast, turning crags of white smoke, such that it became anyone's guess where the mountain ended and the sky began. The ghoul looked down, then at the valley around him. Here, at the perimeter, the terrain was mostly rocky. The few shrubs and trees stubbornly poked through, despite the challenges such an environment imposed. They must have been alive until recently, when foul magics corrupted them. Now, they were black and gnarled things. Deeper, towards the valley's heart, there were more grass and less rubble, enough space for a few settlements to spring up around the river that cut through the gorge. The people here farmed and fished for their livelihood. The ghoul made a note of the plant life around him, as well as the distant farms. His greenery shouldn't have been existing in a place that rarely, if ever, saw sun. Perhaps something other than sunlight fed them. And where had all of these thoughts come from? Faint, not memories, swirled through his mind, informing him of things like mountains, agriculture, and sunlight. Though he knew all of these things, he didn't know how he'd learned them. Having knowledge, but knowing not where it came from, was aggravating. Wait, as he observed the center of the valley, something caught his eye. He thought it a simple morning fog at first, but as it began to move, he realized it was something else. Far below and miles away, a cloud of dark mist had begun to rotate, like some sort of localized typhoon. Spearing up through the center of the one of the many titanic boulders that lay scattered around the valley, 
The boulder was familiar, however, for it marked the location of the hut where he was raised, the place where his mistress resided. He growled. Behind him, Kalakai shifted, knocking a pebble loose that bounced down the slope. What did it mean? He searched his knowledge, but none of it told him what the dark, swirling fog represented. Was it dangerous? He wanted to return to the woman to protect her, but her command superseded even her own safety. He knelt, sniffing the ground, tracing the fleeing humans lingering on the ground outside the cave. Many of the trails scattered, though one larger group went right, circling the perimeter of the valley rather than descending back into it. His evolution seemed to make his senses grow somewhat sharper, and most prominent amongst them was his sense of smell. Perhaps it wasn't even his nose that had grown more sensitive, but his mind which could now discriminate between multiple different scents that might have been ignored before. He investigated all the trails he found, but none held a more unique sense than this one. This particular group was comprised mostly of elderly individuals. He chose not to follow it, however. He also detected along the same trail a mass of ghouls who had already left in pursuit. Their putrid scent was so thick that it threatened to drown out the milder human traces. The ones who ran that way probably hadn't survived the night. Instead, the ghoul located a smaller trail that led left by two younger humans, one that only a single ghoul had followed. This trail had led back to the valley, which the ghoul expected held more prey than his barren slopes did. Also, the mist was in that direction. He wanted to know what it was. If something had happened to his mistress, he didn't know. He didn't enjoy the thought. He began pursuing the trail immediately, Kalakai following behind, stumbling along without a groan of complaint. It didn't take long for the ghoul to find the other undead. It had quickly given up, collapsing to the ground. It was currently attempting to chew on a rock. He ignored it, steaming the creature too useless to even serve as fodder, and the duo continued onwards. The rock chewer watched them go, but just before they went out of sight, it stood up and followed after them. The ghoul didn't care over much, and dead were inclined to follow the crowd, exercising only a very limited will of their own. Only he and Kalakai seemed any different. The trail continued for quite some time, despite travelling off the beaten path. The two humans seemed to have a destination in mind, for they didn't change direction. The ghoul looked up a few times to guess where they had gone. The only landmark in the distance was a village, further downstream than the one that he'd explored, with perhaps twenty huts all told. Even to his eyes, it was clearly an infested ruin. The human he chased was either quite young or quite stupid to be running away from one group of undead and straight into the arms of another. However, they were wiser than that, because the scent trail took a sudden turn right before reaching the village. It seemed that they recognized their mistake and had taken a wide detour around the hamlet, crossing the river where it was shallower and trekking into the uninhabited stretch of Bani. They seemed to start growing tired at this point. The trail began to meander. The scent became stronger in places where they must have stopped shortly to rest. After another few minutes, he came across a small clearing with the remnants of a fire pit. An overturned log lay nearby, providing a place to sit and then he smelled it. Fear and blood. Lots of it. There had been a struggle. He knelt to the ground and investigated. There was another scent here, mixed in amongst the humans. One of a ghoul. 
Another undead had found them in the spot, killing them. His prey had been stolen by another. He kicked one of the dead trees with a sudden, explosive speed, shattering it into fragments as the barked and dust. Fury unabated, he stabbed at the ground with his skewer, eventually dropping it so that he could start tearing into it with his claws. Bringing up fistfuls of earth and stone, flinging rubble in all directions, he tilted his head back and roared, and the sound seemed to travel through the entire valley. His forehead burned. There were no humans left. He'd come too late. If he hadn't passed out, he'd have had a chance to hunt the remnants of the group. Or, if he'd been raised earlier by the necromancer, how many would he have hunted? How much would he have grown? What would he hunt now? He turned, eyeing his followers, Kalakai and the dull zombie. It hadn't reacted at all to his frenzy. Then he saw the other ghoul, several paces behind. It stared back at him dumbly. He started towards it, his long strides closing the distance between them in moments. As if sensing his intent, the creature began to rise its arm to defend its posture. But the ghoul was too fast. He put his strength into his legs and pushed forward, the world blurring for a moment as he accelerated. He kicked the creature in the gut and it flew backwards, landing in a disorganized tangle of limbs. It wasn't wounded, and undead didn't breathe, but the thing was certainly disoriented. Before he could get back up, he stepped on its chest and knelt down and ripped off its head. This was a bit more difficult than expected, but with some wrenching and twisting the ghoul managed it. A grisly pop sounded, and the flailing arms of the corpse flopped to the ground. The ghoul walked over to the rock and cracking the skull against it and scooping the brain out with his fingers, which he ate almost contemplatively. Even after the snack, he hadn't achieved what he wanted. Disappointed, he dropped a bloody mess. He felt a tiny flow of something undefinable into him, but it wasn't strength. It was so slight that it hadn't even prompted an appearance of the glowing runes. Not enough. Cold flesh and vicious blood wasn't enough. No... These undead had very little to offer him. Galagai might be worth more than the average undead, but not by much. Besides, the spear-bearer was connected to him in a strange way. He had no desire to kill him. That was when he smelled it. The wind shifted and the scent tickled his nose. He turned, bringing his head up to smell the air. It was a trail from before. One of the humans survived and fled from here. A young male... His scent mingled with that of a strange ghoul's, making him think that the other undead had been hot at his trail. Perhaps he was still alive. Looking in the direction of the two scents had gone, he saw that this time the trail led to the heart of the valley, straight for the squirting mist. He took off without a second thought, not bothering to slowly track the scents. Something told him that he'd find his quarry at the heart of the damn storm, and he didn't want to miss his chance at a second time. Kaibo wanted to leave. He wanted very, very, very much to leave. But no matter how he struggled, he couldn't overpower the thing that held him by the neck, forcing him to march alongside it. Did dying make him think like this? Were all adults this strong? It was one of the reanimated dead, and it had come from nowhere, surprising him and Malia as they tried to catch some sleep in the little clearing. Malia had... She had... He retched, but nothing came out. He emptied his stomach long ago, thankfully, or else the creature that forced him upright might have made him choke on his own vomit. 
Kuiper let himself slump, and his feet began to drag as his weight was supported by his neck. The rotting thing didn't even break stride, continuing ever deeper into the dark fog. When his blood began pulsing behind his eyes, he began to see stars. He got his legs back under him and resumed trudging. He was too tired to struggle anymore, too tired to cry. He'd cried through the night and even after some as he fled from the cave with Malia, but not anymore. If he lived through this, he doubted he'd ever be able to cry again. A sound startled Kaipo as he depressed thoughts. It was a soft whispering, like the wind brushing over the tall grass. Only, there was no wind. Then he heard it again, and he could have sworn it was a voice. No, wait, it was more than one voice. People's words were carried to him through the fog, whispering to one another. Witch! Kaipo's eyes flew open. It was no distant whisper. Someone had spoken directly into his ear that time, but looking around, told him that there was no one there save for his captor, and it wasn't speaking. Exile! He scoured the surroundings, but it was too dark. A cold wind swept past, raising goosebumps on his arms. Flayer! Hate! Why? Why? You look... We want vengeance. Him or me? Tear her apart! My son, he... It wasn't whispering any longer, but a chorus of voices, all fighting one another to be heard. Despite their soft individual volumes, when joined by the others it sounded like a large gathering of people, all talking at once. He covered his ears, but these voices had a way of piercing Kaipo, even though he didn't want to hear her. This was a bad place. He heard people when there weren't any people, who then was talking. He had to get out of there. It was time to enact his plan. He hadn't attempted it yet, because it failed, the monster would probably kill him. But he had an inkling that whatever he was going to go through somehow was worse than death. Woking up all the strength left in his body, Kaipo kicked off the ground, pushing away from his captor. It didn't loosen his grip, but that was helpful because it allowed him to use the back as a fulcrum, and the power through that abrupt pain in his neck that made him start to see spots, and when his lower body reached the apex of its swing, he pushed into it, swinging his legs forward. He hit the knee of the monster and heard a sharp crack. The thing released him as it fell to the ground, and though Kaipo stumbled, he quickly regained his balance and took off running. A growl sounded out as the monster struggled to its feet, but he had no hope of catching him now. Kaipo was tired, weak, hungry, and thirsty, but he was still one of the fastest runners in the village, almost as fast as Lay. After a minute of running, he noticed that instead of quieting, the voices had only gotten louder. He slowed to a halt and looked around. Was he going in the right direction? He thought he'd been running back the way he came, but perhaps he'd gotten turned around a bit. He took a hesitant step back, and then another, before turning and running in the opposite direction. A minute later, he chose a different direction, and then another. The voices didn't stop. He clutched his ears and began to stagger, overcome with dizziness. They weren't whispering anymore. Burn! said Asprey. Father Mountain! Why has Father Mountain blasphemer? Chew on her bones. Kaibo screamed in a futile attempt to drown out the voices. 
A shape loomed out of the mist, and he almost hit it. It was a boulder, one of the mountain seeds. His parents told him that these were huge rocks were, in fact, slowly growing, and that they would one day expand into mountains themselves. When he was younger, Kaipo had worried that they would fill up the valley. A hut had been built here, sheltered under the overhang portion of the rock. Through the pain in his head, he recalled this cottage. There was only one building like this, and this was the home of the outcast. He ran over, banging on the front door. Help! Help! Please! There are things after me! Please! Open the door! He wasn't sure if the inhabitant could hear him over the voices, but shortly a beam was lifted and the door was swung inward, revealing a room lit by candles. He bolted inside and the door was quickly shut behind him. The voices were dampened almost instantly, returning to a faint whispers. The house was somehow able to block them out as he collapsed to the ground, panting. He looked around. Candles were a luxury rarely afforded in the valley, but this person had like lit a dozen of them. The room smelled of incense in what must have been an attempt to mask the unpleasant odor of the burning tallow. The floor was marked with chalk and intricate patterns, and Kaipo had to check to make sure that he wasn't smudging any of the markings. This was the strangest building that he'd ever seen, but even this wasn't the most surprising thing. He looked up at the figure who had let him inside, the outcast. He'd heard the older villagers talk of her from time to time. They'd speak of her alien appearance and her mannerisms, how she'd appeared out of the mountains one day. They'd whispered of her magic and of her brand. Kaipo frequented different circles, however. If he believed what he heard of the other villagers' children say, Kaipo might have thought her an almighty sorceress who could fly and smite gargoyles with a flick of her wrist. Kaipo didn't buy into that. He was pretty sure that the greatest show of magic she'd ever performed was when she fixed old Moke's bad leg. He'd never seen her before, being far too shy to ever seek her out, but he still recognized her at first glance. Her tanned skin and strange clothes distinguished her from the pale and plain children of the mountain. Her exoticness may have lent to her certain beauty, but Kaipo was certain that she was beautiful even back in her home country. He looked into her dark eyes, and it was as if he'd taken a dive into a deep pool. She smiled, meeting his gaze. When she spoke, her accent sounded almost musical to his ears. Darling boy, are you lost? End of chapter. Chapter 7. Howl of Death The mist was screaming. The ghoul wasn't sure what to make of it. Desperate howls. Some sounded bleeding, some were sorrowful, while others were angry. Most seemed angry. He couldn't understand the words, but the emotions contained within them crushed against him, like a tide breaking on shore. He tracked his quarry into the slowly rotating dark cloud, and soon afterwards the mist began to visibly pick up speed. At the same time as this happened, the voices started. Something was very odd about this phenomenon. The mist moved constantly, swirling by him, dark tendrils clinging to his body for moments before they were dragged away as if by a strong wind. But there was no wind. The air was utterly stagnant. That was when the apparitions began to appear. Faces and bodies flashed by him, ships created by the uncanny fog. Sometimes figures reached out with a hand as if to touch him, 
the ghostly visions were scentless and didn't seem to be able to harm him. So, he moved onwards while ignoring them. That was, until one harmed him. The presence appeared behind him, but there had been many such sensations since he had entered the mist, so he didn't pay it much mind. He felt a chill down the nape of his neck. That wouldn't have bothered him if it had already deadened fresh of the ghoul, except that this coldness was clearly abnormal. In an instant, he felt his spine stiffening as though they were turning to ice. He lurched forward and then turned, sweeping his hand through the spot in the air where the presence came from, only to see a faint something retreating back into the fog. No, not retreating. It was almost as if it had been swept away in a cyclone and torn away against its will. Lifting its skewer, it eyed the surroundings suspiciously. At this point, he noticed that Kalakai was nowhere to be seen. The old ghoul had gotten separated from him somehow. He'd spent a moment backtracking, but he couldn't pick up Kalakai's scent. The development irked him. He'd gone to the trouble of getting Kalakai to follow him, only for the dim creature to disappear at the first sign of trouble. Considering him a lost cause, the ghoul quickly forgot about his companion and continued onwards. He knew that he was getting close to his goal. He could sense himself nearing both the human and the woman who'd summoned him. The human he could detect through scent, and his mistress he had through some other means that he didn't quite place. He growled at the fog. He was on a hunt now, and he had dared the mist to stop him from advancing. As he continued, he remained alert from the shadowy figures. The next one attacked him after he'd gone less than a hundred yards, and slowly extending towards his face. At first, the ghoul simply watched, as many similar events had taken place already. But something about the sand was different. It looked more solid than the others, for a start. He leaned back just as the thing would have touched his cheek. Instead, it brushed against the bridge of his nose. The same bone-chilling cold enveloped him, and he felt the sense of smile suddenly grow faint. He quickly lashed out with his skewer, severing the offending arm. There had been practically no resistance to his attack. This didn't stop the arm, however. The strange fog began to flow into an arm, heating it at a rapid pace until it was whole once more. Reformed, it tried to reach him again, but now the cautious ghoul had backed off several steps. The arm fought to approach him, but it was soon dragged away by an invisible force, becoming just another part of the collective darkness. He watched for a few moments longer, but nothing else approached him. The fog healed them, but it also controlled their movements. The soundless and windless force too potent for these apparitions to fight. No, it wasn't soundless or windless. The voices were the howling wind and the crack and boom of thunder. They tore at him, but he remained as a rock. Paradoxically, his anger had began to cool as he encountered these obstacles. He should be angry. In fact, a part of him indeed threatened to explode with anger. His forehead burned and the unending wrath seethed within, but something stopped it from controlling him. It was a similar to pain. As an undead, he felt pain, but it had no bearing on his actions. He couldn't fear it. What pain was worse than that of experiencing death? The agony of losing all that was once precious. Something about the fog and the voices within itched at the edges of his consciousness. 
Sensations from worlds beyond danced inside him. True grief, true pain, the infinite maelstrom that awaited all, the devouring of memories. A familiar feeling took a hold of him as he recalled these things, and reluctantly he embraced it. As he did, he felt a strange oneness with the dark storm. In that instant, a dark figure flew out of the fog at him. The ghoul gave a roar of raw defiance, and the world fell silent. His voice physically impacted the surroundings. The sound into which he packed his emotions became a wave of force that overpowered the fog. If, just for a moment, the mist bellowed away from him, forming a bubble of dozens feet across. In the cleared space, the form of the figures revealed. Its lower body was amorphous, but there were two clearly articulated arms, a torso, and a head. It was a spectre which had taken the shape of a human. It was an indistinct thing comprised entirely of grey vapour. The spectre, too, had been flung back by the ghoul's howl, but was still within the bubble. It dropped to the ground as if the strings were being holding it had been cut, where it pulled like a liquid and tried to wriggle away. The ghoul leapt forward with his skewer, in a race with the mist that was already closing back in. With a vicious thrust, he skewered at the center of its mass. The mist returned completely and it with a came screams. The ghoul narrowed his eyes, straining to pick out the slightly darker form of the ghost from within the fog. It was rising on the skewer like a dying snake. Pieces of it sloughed away and rejoined the massive fog but the majority of it remained pinned by his weapon. But it didn't die. The pieces that fell away were being regenerated. As the ghoul gritted its teeth in frustration, he felt the skewer growing cold, following it by his hand. Still, he didn't release the creature, not willing to let it escape like the others. He stomped on it, but the damage this caused was light, and doing so inflicted his attacking leg with the same coldness that threatened his hand. He needed to get rid of the fog. The ghoul had left something inexplicable from the mist earlier, and this inexplicable feeling had given him a voice power. It had seemed a singular phenomenon, but on reflection, perhaps it wasn't so strange. The how, he was belatedly realizing, had always been with him. He'd just been unable to recognize it. It was finality. It was a melancholy and acceptance of dread all at once. It was fuel. It could be used. He touched the dark force, and it seemed to him for a moment that it resided somewhere within his head. It was indistinct and blurry when he focused like this, like he was trying to turn his eyes around and peer into his own skull. But following the thread of his own emotion, however, he was able to seize upon the energy, albeit clumsily. It felt almost as though his brain were being squeezed in a vice, and he faltered for an instant. Instead of releasing it, he slowly relaxed his grip on the energy until the pressure on his head lessened considerably. His hand, which held the skewer, had grown so cold that he couldn't even tell if it was still attached. With all the will that he could muster, he directed the force in his throat, and he roared once more. What exploded from his throat was a twisted, horrible noise that shook the very air around him, destroying the mist like a tidal wave ripping through the sandcastle. Ability obtained, miasmic sigh, level zero. Ability increased, howl, level zero becomes level one. This time, the fog was blasted nearly forty feet away in every direction, the noise given a physical weight. 
even assailed the spectre that he pinned to the ground, shredding it and reducing its bulk by over half, until all that was left on the skewer was a shapeless quivering mass. The ghoul twisted his weapon, and the remaining bulk rapidly dissipated, bleeding away into nothing. Swordsmanship in the level increased by two. My asthma increased by two. Something cold flooded into his head, and he realized that the very force that he just recognized within him not a minute ago had suddenly been increased by twice over. His eyes focused intently on the blue ruins before him, and he strove to memorize their pattern, equating them to this new energy. Eventually, they faded away, and the ghoul was left alone within the fog. His nose still felt frozen from the earlier attack, as did his right hand though he maintained enough range of motion to attack with. Without his sense of smell, he was left to wander the fog in the direction of his last remembered. The spectre continued to attack him intermittently, but with his howls destroying them was simple enough. Without the fog to protect them, it was of little threat. After two full-strength blasts of the skull, he found that he was forced to wait and recover his energy. Even then, by keeping his wits about him, the spectres had difficulty closing in. In this regard, the fog worked for and against him. It healed and protected the spectres, but it also controlled their movement. This latter phenomenon became more apparent as the ghoul progressed. The storm appeared to be speeding up further as the volume of the voices within it grew louder. A few spectres even seemed to have the time to strike at him, so quickly did they fly past screaming eerie cries. Level increased. Agility plus one. Miasma plus one. Swordsmanship level increased by four. Agility plus one. Dexterity plus one. Miasma plus two. After executing his final spectre, the ghoul looked up. His last howl had cleared the fog in front of him, revealing a large black shape. It was the necromancer's hut. He found his way home. End of chapter. Chapter 8. Ritual As the ghoul approached the modest cabin, something changed in the air. The mist cleared out suddenly, revealing the cottage, somehow untouched by the ghastly storm. Looking back, he saw that he'd left behind him moving fog wall, a bank of clouds that hurtled by. He'd unknowingly entered the heart of the storm. All wasn't calm here, however. One aspect of the cyclone was only grown more prominent. The voices. It seemed as though all the hatred of the entire storm had been condensed down upon this one area. It was deafening, a cacophony of wrath and fear that echoed around him. The ghoul eyed the surroundings suspiciously, but when nothing leapt out at him, he approached the cabin, a caution in his steps. That was, until he picked up the scent of the human once more. His nose had thawed after the first attack, and he was able to catch a whiff of his quarry. He was inside the cabin. He strode forward, arriving at the door in moments. There, he tried to open it, and failed. Something barred it. He planted a kick, causing the wooden slab to bend inward, creaking ominously. A second one did the job. The wood splintered, and the door fell inward. He stepped inside and looked around him. The first thing he saw was a maw filled with yellow teeth, lunging at him. The force of the impact made him lose his footing, and he fell to the ground with his attacker in a tangle of limbs and gnashing teeth. 
It was another ghoul. The attack had taken him back outside, but he was left to fight off the assault with the dead grass. He quickly recognized this creature's scent as the same ghoul that had killed one of the two humans that he'd been following. It must have trapped the boy here. Any other thoughts that might have come to him were put aside as the ghoul focused entirely on the obstacle at hand. This knowledge that this undead had taken his prey only served as fuel for the ghoul's wrath, and he had grappled with his attacker. He steadily gained the upper hand, deftly maneuvering an unthinking beast that only knew how to go for the throat. Once his hands were free, he used them to grip the head and twist, like he'd done with the undead from before. It appeared to be an effective method. The thing's neck finally cracked and it stilled, though it wasn't dead. Its mouth opened and closed, still seeking the taste of blood. Standing up, the ghoul stomped down with his booted foot. When he lifted his leg, it had become a messy with brain matter. Snorting, he approached the door for a second time. A shout sounded out just before he entered. The familiar voice gave him a pause. It isn't working! A voice that was melodic to his ears, yet tainted with desperation. It cracked at the end as if the speaker had been shouting at the top of her lungs for some time. Why? Why won't it accept? The ghoul entered and took in the surroundings. He had no idea what he was looking at. No, he could discern the individual parts. The floor was bare before and had an intricate circle filled with chalky lines, remained much as it did when he was first resurrected. Unbending energy, accursed institute, even now you oppose me. His mistress seemed to be in no danger, yet she kneeled on the floor at the edge of the circle, her entire body shaking. Her feet were bare and she wore a frayed grey robe, little details that he hadn't noticed before. At the centre of the circle sat his quarry. Only there was one problem. I've only... I've only just begun, the necromancer whispered. The boy sat cross-legged in the very centre of the circle, staring vacantly at the object in his hand, a nondescript grey orb. He didn't move or blink, and the first glance appeared to be drifting off to sleep. His eyes were half-lidded, and those of a drowsy child. Only this couldn't be a slumber that claimed him. His chest no longer rose and fell with his breaths. He was dead. With a light gasp, his mistress collapsed. The ghoul watched, unsure what to do. After a moment, she seemed to recover slightly, shakily, rising to her feet. Then she turned towards the broken door where the ghoul stood. She began walking. She didn't even glance his way, and she probably didn't even recognize his presence. She walked as if she were in a trance. He hurriedly stepped out of her way as she neared. Despite her apparent frailty, she walked with a noble determination. She stepped past him and out of the cabin. At that moment, the volume of the storm seemed to increase once over. It reached the newfound fervor screaming an unintelligible wail of hatred as if it once was one voice. With the last glance at the dead boy, the ghoul followed her. His hunt had been cut short, but he didn't show any dissatisfaction. He had to protect her. The woman was standing motionless in the withered grass outside, observing the moving wall of fog that surrounded her home. She was speaking, but her words were drowned out by the voices of the storm. Was it his imagination, or had the fog bank grown closer to the house than before? It looked like it had advanced by nearly ten feet in the short time that he'd arrived. 
He approached until he was able to make out what she was saying. Mere 400 vengeful ghosts. Even the men of rock stood aside. What right do the cowardly wretches who hide away in the forgotten crack of this world have? Tell me, what right do you have to oppose my ambition? She took a step forward, raising her voice against the tumult. My purpose. Another step. What? The ghoul lunged forward, pulling her back just before a dozen hands that had reached out from the wall of the mist could seize her. He threw her down behind him, and she hit the ground with a surprising agility, rolling into the fall to soften it. She blinked and looked up surprised. The ghoul howled as he had done before, and the fog was blasted away to reveal a mass of ghost-like figures. Many of them quickly faded to nothingness without their protective shroud. But not all disappeared. Two of the specters remained. These two were the solid variety that he'd fought on the way in, but they didn't pull on the ground like the others had, instead maintaining their shape as though a force of their anger alone. They fell onto the ground and began to crawl forward, ignoring the ghoul in favor of the reaching the necromancer. The decision was allowed the ghoul to quickly intercept the creatures and poke them full of holes. Though these two were more tenacious than the others, his attacks ultimately proved too much for them. They dissolved under his skewer before touching a single hair on the woman's head. Level increased. Miasma plus two. Swordsmanship level increased times two. Dexterity plus one. Miasma plus one. You! You're one of mine! He turned to the woman. Her eyes scanned him, but they seemed to look through him rather than at him. It was an unfocused gaze, and even as she spoke, her mind was clearly wandering elsewhere. An evolved variant. I expected a few, but, uh, that ability. It controlled Meisma. It was Fog, was Meisma she spoke of. If so, if so, he didn't think that he controlled it at all. More that he had within him a similar storm of this one, only with a much smaller scale. He was able to call upon it temporarily to fight the larger one. He shook his head to deny her, but she didn't seem to recognize the action. She laughed. Her voice was bitter. No matter. Things can hardly get any worse. An undead vessel. Perhaps it would work. Perhaps it was with a key all along. If my body contains a limestone, then an undead may indeed be a solution. But can an unintelligent being command such a shape? No. There are antecedents. The monstrous branded are capable of it. Yes, yes, then, then perhaps a ghoul may. She climbed to her feet, motioning for him to follow. Continuing to mumble under her breath, she re-entered the house. She gestured to the circle as she stepped through the door. Enter the circle and do not break any of the lines in the chalk. He did so. Take the orb that the corpse is holding and deposit him outside the circle. He picked up the body. At first it remained frozen in position that it had expired in, sitting there with his hand held out and the orb still raised before it. Once he removed the sphere from its hand, however, it became limp in his arms, as if the object were the only thing keeping it rigid. Sit where he was sitting and hold the stone in your hands so that you can observe it, in the same position that the boy was in. She was pacing now, muttering fiercely. The ghoul did as commanded, observing the orb he held. It looked rather dull and a grey pearl. As he inspected it, swirls appeared within, appearing and disappearing at random. It seemed rather like the stone served as a container for something else. 
The necromancer scrutinized the circle for any defects before sitting down at the edge and placing her hand on the ground. Closing her eyes in concentration, she spoke, Ghoul, do not let yourself be consumed. The ghoul wasn't given much time to wonder what she meant, because at that instant a bright blue glow illuminated the cabin. She screamed a word, and the world vanished. There was nothing. He was left floating in the dark void. His body had disappeared, and he couldn't even sense his limbs. One thing remained in his face, and it was the orb. As he watched, it appeared to expand in his vision, as if it were growing bigger, or as if he were shrinking. It grew until it filled the entire perception, and the void had transformed into a grayness. And then the grayness undulated, sending ripples out in every direction, and the ghoul suddenly realized that he must be inside the orb somehow. Here, it was death. Not the maelstrom that ate memories, nor the miasma that howled within him, that fog that even now threatened to consume the necromancer's hut, but something purer perpetrated the space. It was a toxic purity, threatening to unmake him. An agony began to build up, slowly at first, and then more fiercely. Pain, unlike any he'd ever known, pierced his soul directly. He was being eaten. He felt his consciousness begin to unravel at the fringes as pieces of him disappeared into infinity. Do not let yourself be consumed. The words echoed in his mind, reminding him to fight. With bleeding hands, he gripped his ego and forced it downward, spiraled into the end. It felt as if though his very brain were being dissolved, but he resisted. Fortunately, this consuming force wasn't an act of one. It was more like a side effect, a phenomenon made possible by a simple presence, like how water warped light. What he was fighting was akin to an aspect of nature, an extenuous byproduct. Such was the stone's presence that all that came to in contact with it could only be consumed. No, consuming was the wrong word. It wasn't consuming him. It was ending him. After an unknown length of time, he felt the force pulling on him suddenly lessen. Still, he did not reduce his grip. Pieces of him that had lost slowly began to return to him. He hadn't realized how hollow he'd been until he felt himself filling out. As he regained himself, he shuddered. Truly, this was dancing on a knife's edge. The force lessened still further, and more and more of him returned until he was once again himself. He sensed a glimmer of light at the edges of his perception. Soon, parts of him weren't even his own started getting pulled into his actions. Gaipo! A name came to him. Images of life that he hadn't lived flashed before him. Fragments formed a whole, far smaller than himself. This little identity had but a candle flickering in the wind, barely sheltered under his wings. He continued pulling, afraid that the flow would reverse if he stopped. He pulled sucking up the pieces of this human that he could find. Then he finally awoke. Opening his eyes, at last he found himself in the position that he'd occupied before the ritual began. The incessant voices from the storm had quieted, the candles around the circle burned low on their wicks, and the orb that he held in his hand had shattered. Pieces of glass littered his palm, remnants of the object. He tilted his hand and watched as they dropped to the floor clinking. His suspicions confirmed. The stone was simply a container. 
Whatever was in had escaped, but where had it gone? You have received status effect unknown. Burning orange symbols meant nothing to him, as always. He was shortly brought out of his deliberations by a voice. How could I? In my madness. It sounded out from behind him. He turned to find the necromancer kneeling before a torn cloth. A moment's observation told him that the cloth was the same burial shroud that he'd once covered the body he now inhabited. Was my oath meaningless? Do I lack even that much resolve? Standing, the ghoul approached, hearing his movements. His mistress's shoulders stiffened. Her voice rang out sharply. Don't! Stop! Do not come any closer! He stopped. She didn't say anything for a moment, but he could see her back shuddering as she breathed. Find something. Cover your... Cover your face with something. Do not let me see your visage. Her voice lacked the same noble tenor that he'd grown used to. It sounded weaker, as if she were begging him to spare her some agony. The voice lacked something else, too. Something he couldn't quite place. Clearly, the ritual had sapped her. The ghoul looked around, and there wasn't much around. He could use the burial shroud. Perhaps. But no. He would have to approach his mistress to retrieve that, and she might see his face. Something was odd about the situation. At that moment, he realized the other thing that her voice within our lacked. He paused, frowning. Her command held no compulsion for him. Until now, everything she'd said had been as if it were creed from on high, but now he had a choice. A choice to obey or disobey. He took a step closer, and she flinched. Stop! There was still nothing, no urge. Even her earliest command to go and devour had vanished from the list of compulsions. What should he do? He maintained his other instincts. He felt his mouth salivating as the thought of hunting prey, rending flesh. But the woman in front of him, he stared at her figure and now seemed smaller than ever before, still hunched over the burial shroud, clutching the tear-stained fabric. Tear-stained. It seems that you've escaped my control, ghoul, she spoke, her voice shaky. Do as you wish, then. Perhaps it'll be justice to die at your hand. The ghoul took another step, closing the distance between them further. Why did she cry over a shroud? It's as much as I deserve. What foolishness! Revenge! How can I enact such a thing when I cannot even maintain a grip on my own sanity? She spat the last word out like a curse, gathering up the material in her arms, she hugged it tightly. Do it then, she said. End it. End. No, he... He didn't want that. Burying her face into the cloth, the necromancer whispered a final word, and it was almost muffled by the material. He still heard it, however, and it was because of that everything changed. Banalath. If a bolt of lightning struck down in that tiny cabin, he wouldn't have been as shocked. The ghoul staggered backwards as if seized by a refit. Rage, sorrow, grief, and something undefinable swarmed him at once, throwing his thoughts into a complete chaos. A name. That word was a name. His name. He opened his mouth to speak, but all that came out was an unintelligible groan. For a long, heart-stopping moment, the two figures in the room didn't move. The necromancer hadn't retreated into her own world, oblivious to the outside of it. Had the ghoul. No. Vanilith could only dumbly stare at her back. As he watched her, he thought more deeply than ever before. He thought. 
the gears of his mind freed up by his evolution, rotated, churning up his muddy consciousness with the ever-revolutions. Finally, he moved. He went to the side of the room and began to rummage through the boxes and sacks that he could find. After a minute, he found what he'd been looking for. Within a small case he found two masks. They were simple but well-made handiworks. They were carved of wood and looked to be made of some sort of celebration, painted in a fest of greens and reds through a vibrant colors of faded over the years. There were two masks inside the box, one frowning and one smiling. Expressions were caricatures of human emotion, but the frowning mask seemed oddly fitting. Lifting it, Vanilleth attached it to his face, tying the leather strap behind his head. He paused for a moment, testing the limiting it felt. His sight was restricted a bit, but his sense of smell was mostly unimpeded. His hearing remained unaffected. Standing, he started to make his way over to the necromancer. He'd realized something in the moments between learning his name and finding the mask. Though he only became aware a day ago, he knew this much. Existing without a purpose wasn't his nature. Before, though he had been under a compulsion, the sense of purpose he'd felt was truer than anything else he'd experienced throughout his hunts. It was arrivaled only by the intoxicating sensation of growth. But growth without purpose wasn't a true goal. This woman had purpose. What he'd seen from his mistress was ambition, an appetite that rivaled that of the undead themselves. That was the vital component Vanilleth still lacked. Before he knew his name, he had been torn. If he hadn't known what he'd lacked, he may very well have killed her in a moment she asked him to. He understood nothing of the world. He knew things without explanations for why. But this wasn't true knowledge. He wanted to learn, to hunt, to fulfill a greater purpose. And this purpose, he knew, was inexplicably tied to the one who raised him. The woman who spoke his name who shared that emotion that was able to drag him back from the maelstrom itself. Hatred. Until he found what caused the unspeakable hatred that rose up within his gut and the mere mention of his name, he would follow this woman. He would bear that name. Vanilleth, in his approach to the necromancer, unconsciously neared the corpse of the boy, Kaipo, who had failed the ritual before him, as his foot landed on the floor next to the body. Something suddenly changed. A gasping shriek erupted from between the cold lips, and the corpse bolted upright. Both Vanilleth and the woman turned, torn away from their thoughts of sudden noise. Kaipo sat on the floor, looking around with wide, terrified eyes. His skin was whiteness of death. His previously brown eyes had turned a pale yellow. The same with all the ghouls Vanilleth had seen. Kaipo clutched his chest. Panting, despite the fact that he no longer needed air. Why? Why? I, d I died. I... No, no. End of chapter. Chapter 9. Legacies of the Past. Vanilleth stood to the side, watching as the resurrected boy conversed with his mistress. He didn't understand the language that they spoke. With its clipped and fast-paced babbling, but he could tell that Kaipo was scared. Vanilleth was somewhat amused. He'd never seen a ghoul that could talk. Never mind a scared one. The boy was raising with a particular event, even by his standards. While the ritual had been going on, he remembered sheltering something, a tiny light that gave him images of a life that he hadn't lived. 
He shouted this light while he struggled against the pool of the void, but he was beginning to realize that it had been a soul of this boy. Vandalith, in climbing out of the Ippus, brought this boy back with him. Did this have something to do with why he retained the human characteristics? None of the other undead had. As the necromancer conversed with the boy, she kept taking sideways glances at Vanilith. Evidently, she was wary of him, wise, as he was no longer remained under her control. Perhaps she had some method of reasserting control, but he didn't intend to allow that to happen. He decided to follow her in his own free will, but only so long as she proved worthy. For the moment, he was content to simply observe and learn. After a while, she seemed to reach some sort of agreement with the boy, and the conversation petered out. She approached Vanilith. Ghoul, do you understand me? He nodded. And can you understand the boy here? He shook his head. Indeed, well, this complicates matters. You see, I am not in control of him, just as I am not in control of you. The Deathstone ritual was thrown many things into disarray leaving two free-willed undead under my roof. She spoke of many things in short order. The Deathstone. Was that the gem that that shattered? And Kaipo was free, the same as him. He eyed the boy who was sitting on the floor with his arms wrapped around his knees. Vanilith snorted. Being free didn't make one able. The sudden noise made the necromancer's eyes flicker. I am afraid, she said, narrowing her eyes that I'll have to divine your intentions for the remaining here. I am thankful you didn't immediately tear me apart limb from limb. You must understand, but I am hoping for more than just a gesture of good faith. At this point, Vanilith noted she kept a hand hidden in the folds of her dress, likely concealing a weapon. Interesting. You are clearly somewhat intelligent for a ghoul. Answer my questions with a nod for yes and a shake of your head for no or nothing of neither of suitable answers. Is that clear? The woman spoke with authority. Vanilith sensed that she was someone who was used to having decisions respected. He nodded. First, do you intend me harm? He shook his head. Do you intend to continue obeying me? He nodded. At least the woman frowned. Do you not wish to kill humans? No, he anticipated it. Then do you wish to obey me only because that is where you are accustomed to doing? No. You mean you have a thought it through and decided to obeying me is better than the alternatives? Yes. She seems slightly taken aback. Her next question came after she studied him for a while. Is it possible that you will betray me in the future? He thought for a second before nodding. Indeed, she laughed. Truly, you are a fine specimen of an undead. I hadn't thought it possible for a tear to it to exhibit such logic. She seemed strangely satisfied. Rather than disturbing her, Vanilith's admission that he may betray her appeared to have set the woman's thoughts to ease. How peculiar. Then she took a deep breath and moved her arm behind her back, abandoning her hidden weapon. Her elbows moved and Vanilith realized that she was wriggling her hands, but trying to hide it. Her face revealed no hint of emotion, but it was clear that the next thing she was going to ask either interested or worried her greatly. Do you possess a um, mark anywhere on your body? It would appear as a glowing ruin on your skin, either red or blue in color. If you had one, you would see glowing characters appear before your eyes occasionally. 
usually after you kill an enemy. He nodded. The woman stilled completely. For several moments, she looked like a statue carved of ice, then turned around she located the nearest thing to sit on. She practically collapsed, holding her head in her hands. How much did I do after last night? She whispered to herself, though his sharp hearing still picked it up. How far did my madness reach? I broke my vow and raised a body of... Uh, of Vanilith, and now it tells me he possesses a brand, a branded undead, of his corpse. Something caught in her throat, and she started coughing, but the cough turned into a strange laugh after a moment. Vanilith found his suspicion turning into a certainty. This woman had a connection with his past life, and that bond drove her to commit these actions around him. She didn't appear to accept him as the same person as her memories, because he was an undead. Yet he was certain that he remained Vanilith. He had to correct her, but how? He lacked any memories that might confirm it. He didn't even know the woman's name. Suddenly she turned to face him, eyes flashing. Which brand is it? He shook his head, not knowing what she meant by the question. Where? Where is it on your body? Her words flowed quickly, one after another, and she seemed to have forgotten the rules she set, no longer asking simple yes or no questions. Though he'd never seen his own reflection, Vanilith had a feeling that he knew where his brand was located. He'd always been vaguely aware of a presence on his forehead. The instant he began to remove his mask, however, the necromancer recoiled, turning away. No! Don't take off the mask! He paused in the middle of the process. Slowly, he lowered his arm. His mistress was biting her lip, such that a trickle of blood ran down her chin. With eyes still turned away, she quietly asked him one last question. It's, uh, on your forehead, isn't it? He nodded, but she didn't even seem to see it. Her next line was spoken to herself more than Vanilith. Such is fate, the way we may never escape the chains wrought by gods. Chains, gods. I don't wish to know which brand it is any longer, she continued. Keep it a secret from now on, just as you hide your face in my presence. It was a simple enough condition to agree to. She was quiet for another minute, gathering her thoughts. Now that he has no longer compelled to hunt, found himself equipped with a great deal of patience, such that he didn't mind the long period of silence. Kaipo, huddled in the corner, seemed afraid of even his own presence known. At last the necromancer spoke. Enough of this! Now we must think of the future. Her eyes flashed and she climbed to her feet, standing a little straighter and regaining some of her earlier fire. Ghoul, you must have questions about the events from earlier. Am I right? He nodded. Good. That ritual we performed earlier was a process by which the Deathstone, which I spoke of before, merged with you. This was the only way to end the Rite of Doom, which I'd begun the day before. The Rite raised any corpse within the area of influence, this entire valley, as a ghoul. I hadn't bargained on the fact that the Deathstone would prove too effective a nexus, however, and the souls of the deceased were not allowed to escape the mortal plane. Instead, they aggregated around the center of the ritual. Fortunately, you came just at the right time, or I might have been devoured by the ghosts of all of those who once lived in this valley. Vanilith took all her words in. Once I completed the melding of the Deathstone with you, the rite finally ended, but rather than leaving this plane for the next, the trapped souls didn't disperse. 
Rather, they seemed to have spent so much time within the realm of influence of the Deathstone that they could no longer leave. They merged with you as well. Merged with him? Souls? He remembered the ritual, where he was forced to fight to give a hold of his own soul, of his essence, to stop it from being dissolved. But the only presence other than his was the latter Kaipo's. Were there any others? He didn't recall. So these souls she was talking about. His eyes widened as he came to a realization. Striding to the door, he looked outside to see. A clear afternoon, the familiar mountains dominating the surroundings, there was a design of the dark mist. Not a single ghostly wail reached his ears. The sound of approaching footsteps followed Vanilith from the deliberations. Yes, the vortex of the souls is gone. At the culmination of the ritual, the mismic cloud condensed and pierced the repelling wards that I erected, streamed into the cottage and entered your body. Vanilus slowly turned, examining the ritual circle. In the center, he found the shattered glass fragments that had composed of the orb. She'd called it a gem, but it rather seemed to him now to be something else entirely. Yes, the necromancer said, as if reading his thoughts, that glass was a special gem that had been altered magically, turning it into a prison. It wasn't a death stone itself. In truth, death stone is a poor name for what was once held within that orb, as even the Institute wasn't sure of the object's properties. It varied, transitioning between a solid, fluid, and a vaporous state that seemingly random. Your rich new prison, however, and whatever the true properties, we must discover for ourselves. Vanilith put her hand on his chest. If it was truly inside him, where was the death stone? He couldn't sense anything different about himself. Just at this juncture, she frowned. You will need to evolve, of course. I can't be expected to communicate new magical discoveries with the mute. Though undead aren't well studied yet, certain types are known to evolve to the point where they could speak. By certain types, I'm excluding this boy. She gestured to Kaipo, who was an aberration not belonging to any of the traditional races. You must accumulate experience to evolve and only then will you have a chance at speech. That much he understood. He had to kill. There is little room for growth left here in this valley. I have spoken with Kaipo to divine the state of surrounding settlements. He seems to believe that everyone living here has been transformed, which is truthfully a larger success than I expected. That meant that there was no prey to be found other than ghouls. In addition, the remaining undead will no longer fight one another, it isn't originally in the ghoul's nature to prey on each other. They write that I performed altered them temporarily, allowing you to fight amongst one another, so the weak would be weeded out. From now on, I will have a need for all the forces I can bring to bear, at least in the short term. The hunters shall be returning shortly. Manalith lifted his head. Hunters, she said, an approaching conflict. His mistress fell silent as she strode around the small cottage, rubbing her chin, her dark eyes glittering as she thought. She stopped pacing and sharply looked up at Vanilith. My power has been almost entirely drained by the ritual earlier. I'll require time to recuperate. Ghoul, you must gather my forces, go around the settlements and bring the other ghouls here. I don't care how you achieve this. If you are truly intent on serving me, consider this your first test. That was it. Banneler thought whether it was a gleam of nobility in her eyes, the force of authority in her voice, 
or even the way she held herself, it all came together to give his mistress a frighteningly commanding presence. That dark ambition captivated him. He could believe in that alone, even if he trusted nothing else. He turned, not forgetting to pick up his faithful skewer as he left. Stop! He paused one foot out of the door. You intend to use that, uh, stick as a weapon? He gave a single nod. Her tone rubbed in the wrong way. It sounded as if she were disparaging his companion. She sighed, and then he heard her rummaging. Turning, he found the necromancer holding a slender case made of polished wood. Unlatching it, she lifted it from a long bundle of cloth, and she unwrapped the fabric, revealing a sword. Vanilith approached the sword as if in a daze, dropping the skewer on the floor with a clatter. The necromancer winced at the noise, but offered the hilt to him. He drew it from its sheath in one sure motion. As he held the sword in his hands, he inspected it both by sight and through some simple exercises. Swinging it to feel the weight and balance, it was a hand and a half affair, giving it an agreeable versatility. It was made of polished steel with high-quality leather wrapped around the grip. The blade was three inches wide and the guard and significantly thicker than average. It was a straight blade until a few inches from the point, where it tapered off for form a razor-sharp tip and in all was over three feet in length, weighing in at seven or eight pounds, making it twice as heavy as a sword the size normally was. Despite this, it felt right in his hands, and though it was a bit heavy for complete ease of movement, it was still far sight more responsive than the skewer had been. The only attacks he could perform before were stabs, but he felt a realm of possibilities opening up before him now. The only ornamentation it held on the hilt, the pommel itself, was a triangle lined with dozens of small grooves, so they could be gripped easily when he used the sword in both hands. On both opposite sides of the pommel, an insignia of an owl with its wings outstretched had been engraved. The sight of the insignia sparked in him a mysterious sense of pride, but no memory swallowed the emotion. As always, Don't you dare lose that sword, the woman said. He nodded. After he was supplied with a belt, he proceeded to fasten the sword around his waist. Then he set off to gather their forces. End of chapter Chapter 10 Orimo's Return When Lei heard the bugle-like call of the hunting horn, she jumped to her feet. The hunters were late. She'd been huddling by the standing stone ever since she'd reached it in the morning. Her dread, thirst, and tiredness mounting as the hours went by. The fifteen-foot-tall rock dwarfed everything else around, but it also provided Lay with a convenient windbreak. Everything seemed a little calmer when she was near the stone. It had been here so long that anyone could remember, as long as anybody long-dead ancestors could remember as well. The strange runes inscribed on it were thought to be magic charm that granted luck to anyone leaving the mountain's cradle but nobody could read it. Lay didn't think anyone knew what the stone really was, that just came up with the most comforting lie that seemed halfway plausible. People had a habit of doing that, she had noticed. These were some of the thoughts she distracted herself with while she waited. The stone served as a marker for the northeastern pass. It was a boundary for the valley, and the thing that she'd been told to never go past on threat of death. Even being this close to it would have been striking trouble with the elders had the situation surrounding her presence here been any different. 
The lead hunter came into view shortly, his bonnet waving back and forth as he climbed up the steep path. She rubbed her eyes, doubting for a second. She could see the coloration that wasn't her father's hunting bonnet. Arimo always led the other hunters, though. Always. And something happened. Lay's gut twisted horribly as an awful predictions came to her mind. Oh, the man shouted upon seeing the figure it by the standing stone. She lifted her hand, not able to summon the energy to call out. The next man to come into view was next to after him. They were in single file, the standard formation traversing the steep mountain paths. Those bearing the rewards of the hunt came into view in pairs, poles and the shoulders wood upon which hung preserved carcasses of their quarry. The hunt had been called this time because of a tribe of invasive goats had been discovered. Her father seemed to think monsters were behind it. A threat to the balance, like the wandering monster, gave him the right to gather up all the men that the village of Yayo could spare, deputizing them as hunters. Upon their return, they would go back to being farmers or fishermen, but for the period of two weeks, they wandered the treacherous passes in search of the disruptive beast. This was practically tradition for the children of the mountain, and it was all taken as a matter of course by the men he conscripted. Danger lurked in the high passes, but Orimo was able to bring everyone safely through hidden routes. Shortly, the first hunter arrived at the standing stone, where he lays back down with a sigh. He placed his left palm on the stone in a solemn gesture, then he turned to lay. Where's Kunane? he asked, glancing around. She was supposed to be the welcomer last I heard. Wait, are you lay? She bit her lip, not replying it. Blasted, don't worry, your papa is all right. He'd been injured and placed to the rear of the column. He'll be up soon. This helped her mood some. The worst hadn't occurred. However, was one cloud lifted, another settled. Lei was beginning to realize that she'd have to be the one to break the news of the calamity to these unknown men. The others arrived, one by one, setting down their burdens and performing the same short ritual as the first man had. Finally... Her father came, supported by one arm by another hunter, while he hobbled along with a crutch on his right side. His stomach had been wrapped tightly in a bloody cloth, and his left leg had a splint. It looked, surprised to find his daughter standing before him, gazing at him with fatigued eyes. Nay, why are you here? What happened? She opened and closed her mouth a few times, trying to find where to start, before giving up and collapsing to the ground crying. The hunting party gathered around the standing stone with grim silence. Most of the men didn't believe Lay's tale at first, and assumed that she was exaggerating, or perhaps that some other clan had attacked the cradle and that she simply mistook them in the darkness. A few even took an elaborate prank, but Orimo was convinced by his daughter's tears, dispatching several scouts into the valley to confirm the state of things. One of them returned only minutes later to report the death of all the vegetation. This silenced many of the more outspoken men, and now most of them were staring holes into the ground, all pacing restlessly. The welcoming ceremony had been forgotten. You said you encountered a monster with a brand. Are you certain it was a monster? Lay nodded and chewed on a piece of dried jerky. She had been starving. They had to be monsters. Those things certainly weren't people. Not anymore. Orimo rolled a dead black branch the skull brought with him between his fingers and considered the information. I want to say that it's impossible. Everyone knows that monsters can't receive brands, but uh, 
She waited for him to continue. Several of the other hunters had gathered around him as well, listening quietly. Harumo smiled softly when he saw her looking at him expectantly, but she could tell that he was hiding a deep worry. When I received word from the Enclave two years ago that a new type of monster had been discovered, a monster that can take on any form imaginable, not a face dealer or a skinwalker, but something else. As long as there was a creature that once breathed, it could die and become this type of monster, or so the messenger said. Though he didn't try to say it outright, Lei and the others, putting two and two together, knew what he was referring to by this point. A wave of restless shifting and whispers swept through the camp, quieting only when Orimo continued. As you know, our funeral of the open sky doesn't leave much behind for these monsters to, uh, work with, he said, but I was told that they can even possess bones. I directed an undertaker to take certain precautions with the remains of our dead. I heard, spoke a younger man, that when the elders brought the deceased up to the western crown, they took tools with them, hammers and chisels and saws. Harima closed his eyes, nodding. Lei realized she missed something when she saw how all the men adopted unsettled expressions. There was a short moment of silence as everyone contemplated this. And these, um, what do you call them, hunt leader, asked another man. Undead, Arimo supplied. Can these undead get brands, then? Her father heaved a sigh. Everyone knows it's by the mountain's grace that we earn our brands. Humans and humans alone receive them. That, along with our intelligence, is why we are blessed over all the creatures of the earth. There was a unanimous accord in the statement. Monsters are powerful. They kill and grow. And occasionally, one will evolve into a true threat. But they are unthinking, just as animals are, ruled by instinct. No, they are worse than animals. They do not maintain the balance. They disturb it. Like the one-horned goat, he said, gesturing at his injuries. They are creatures of destruction. Undead, being monsters, shouldn't be able to receive a mountain's blessing. That would go against the natural law of things. However, if they were to take the form of a man... A chill seemed to sweep over the clearing. Perhaps they might corrupt the blessing for their own gain, he finished. Papa, I thought that some monsters had brands like the, the snake one the, with the rainbow scales. Currently, Orimo and his daughter were sitting together in the outskirts of the temporary camp the group had made. It had been many hours since their arrival, and the day had deepened into night. The old man had done his best to get the other hunters to sleep, but in the light of the flickering campfire, Lay watched a dozen men waiting in line to throw knives into a target someone had painted into a tree trunk. Many others were still up, talking in groups or pacing by themselves, thinking about their families in the valley below. Less than a dozen actually slept. It had been a long trek, and at this rate things were going, it would be an even longer night. The hunters couldn't move until the scouts reported back, which meant their course of action would be decided in the morning. You mean the prism serpent? Who's been telling you tales like that? he asked. Lay muttered a name under her breath. Orimo chuckled softly, wincing from the wound on his side. That brat Kaipo probably heard it from his brother. The Mai has been at the enclave for a year, and instead of training like he should be, he's been digging up every piece of dusty old lore he can find. Sometimes I can't tell if he wants to be a hunter or a storyteller. He cracked his neck, an audible pops making Lay cringe. She hated when he did that. 
That is all it is, a story. I've heard it too, you know. Some folks there say that the old monsters, the really ancient ones, you know, all have brands, but nobody's confirmed it. The last sighting of the prism serpent was over eighty years ago, long before I was born. Before that, it was the Colossus, and that sighting must have been over a hundred years ago. Any monsters older than that may as well be dead for all the effect they have. Do they have brands? For what my opinion's worth, I think it's possible. Perhaps at some point in the distant path, Father Mountain saw it fit to give brands to all creatures, human or not. Humans use their powers to help bring about balance, while the purposeless monsters abused their gift and proved that they were unworthy of it. From then on, Father Mountain may have decided that only we would receive his gift. That was a story that she'd never heard before. How do you know that's what happened? Oh no, no, these are just guesses of an old man. One thing is certain, however, we're the only ones worthy of the marks. That creature you saw was an abomination. Rolling up his sleeve, Arima revealed her own brand. Lay saw a blue rune of temperance there, a circle enclosed by a diamond. It was a simple thing as far as the brands went. The circle represented the self, and the four walls of the diamond signified the constraint of extremes. At least, that's how her father had described it to her. It glowed, a constant low-level blue light. I was told that I was lucky with temperance. It's thought to be one of the more certain brands, you know. Certain? Yes. They say it intervenes the least with your personality. That's because temperance doesn't compel you to do anything, only to hold back, to act within certain boundaries. Orimo rarely revealed anything about his brand. Lei had always viewed it as a gift that allowed one to get stronger through magic, but never gave it much more thought than that. She had always assumed that she would get one when she was older. It seemed an obvious course of action to her. Her father had one, so she would qualify. Right? But a brand changed the bearer. That worried her. She didn't like being forced into a role she hated. That's why she ran away whenever the village woman tried to get her to do chores. Did you? Arimo gave her a wry smile. Yes, I changed greatly. Those who think temperance is the unchanging brand don't know what it's really like. Though it might be blasphemy to say it. Especially since the blessing given to me by Father Mountain. I think temperance is the worst sort of brand you can get. What? What do you mean? I used to be a real wild sort, you know. A bit like you, Lay. Like me? She couldn't imagine that. Arimo had always been dependable. He was steadfast rock in the river while eddies swirled about him. He alone remained unmoving, though the entire earth may turn around him. Perhaps Father Mountain thought to rein me in when he bestowed temperance. If that was his intention, it worked. In the course of three years I went from a mischief-maker to something more resembling a monk. As I gained levels, I unconsciously began to control my actions more and more. You should have seen your grandmother's expression when I returned from the enclave. She thought I'd been castrate, um, knocked over the head with a brick. But that wasn't all. Over the years it changed me even further. I began not only controlling my own actions, but supervising others. Perhaps you thought me a strict father because of this, he sighed. Perhaps you'll always think of me one. Lei blinked. Suddenly her father seemed to grow. Distant, like an invisible gulf had just opened up between them. Lei, tomorrow I'm going to send you to the enclave. She leapt to her feet. What? 
No, what about? Harima held up her hand, and she bit down on her lip. The mountain's cradle is lost lay. Even if we save the people, whatever this population has corrupted the valley will make life here impossible. Go, tell them what happened here, and make sure that they prepare accommodations for refugees. Do you mean... If we find any survivors in the cradle, we'll be sending them there. Nay had been expecting her father to arrive and fix everything. She'd imagined him sweeping into the valley like a storm, getting monsters left and right, making all the things wrong in the world right again. That was before she'd seen the condition he was in. They'd lost. They'd lost before they even began to fight back. And now he was sending her away. What about you? she asked, fighting back her tears of frustration. Orimo remained silent for a while. When he spoke up, it was to ask her a question. Do you know how I got injured? Did anyone tell you? She shook her head. I picked a fight with a one-horned goat. Lay blinked. She'd heard of that monster, a wandering beast with fur as black as night. It wandered through the mountains, hunting animals and men alike with a carnivorous appetite. It was supposed to travel alone. Not with the herd, so nobody had expected the hunting party to encounter it. She eyed the goats that they had brought back, and she didn't see the carcass of a monster that fit that description. Where was the body? You can probably guess, he followed her gaze. I'd lost. I went out two weeks ago intending on rebelling against my brand. You know, I've been stuck in this bottleneck for a long time, at the peak of my third class. I thought that by killing a monster like that cursed goat on my own, I'd finally break through. But somehow, it sensed my arrows. Once it located my position, well, it was all the men could do to drive it off of me with rocks and arrows of their own. We had to turn back, with me slowing our party the entire way. After a week of this, I returned to hear the cradle is overrun and a second monster, possibly worse than the goat, is marauding within it. The man's tone had grown more bitter the longer he spoke, his stern features morphing into a skull. To Lay, it appeared that he was angrier at himself than either of the monsters he spoke of. Lay, I'm sorry. I must stay here. This branded undead must be killed. End of chapter. Chapter 11. Command and Conquer. Bandalith found Kalakai shortly after leaving the necromancer's cottage. The old zombie was standing still in the middle of the field of dead grass, leaning on his spear and staring. At the sky? Vandalith looked up, but other than the frosty peaks and the wispy clouds, there was nothing there. He growled, and the undead turned around. It was surprised to find Vandalith standing there. It didn't show any vacuous features. Had this foolish creature just been standing here this entire time? Vanilith had assumed that he'd been torn apart by the spectres, but whether through luck or skill or luck, he had yet lived. The swordsman gestured for him to follow, and then turned and resumed walking without looking back. The faint connection he had with Kalakai told him that he understood the command. They had to cover a lot of ground today, so he didn't waste time trying to figure out where he'd been or what he'd been doing. It wasn't like Kalakai to answer him anyway. After a few seconds, he heard the sound of shuffling feet behind him as the spearmen hurried to catch up. The ghoul wasn't too dumb, at least. After less than an hour of walking, they arrived at the first village. Vanilith had visited as a lesser ghoul. The undead had somewhat dispersed since he'd been here last, 
but plenty of them milled about, stumbling into huts, tripping over rocks, the lying on the dirt practically catatonic. Vanilith approached the catatonic ghouls one at a time, but no matter how he growled or kicked them around, they didn't seem to exit their stupor. The last one approached was busy trying to push over a wall of a hut with his face. After staring at Vanilith for a moment, the ghoul lost interest, returning to the hopeless task. So, perfectly calmly, Vanilith unsheathed his sword and decapitated the ghoul with a swing. Swordsman level increased, strength plus one. The blue runes etched in the air before him were a stark burning light, and Vanilith stopped at his tracks. He would have known that he'd grown despite the runes thanks to the wisp of power that he'd felt entering him, but he hadn't expected this from killing a single weakling. He'd ended five ghouls back in the cave from this phenomenon to occur once, but a single kill triggered it this time. What was so special about this ghoul was because it had been able to fight back. Come to think of it, whenever he killed something that proved a little challenge, his rewards were limited. The stronger the opponent, the more his gains increased. Looking around, Vanilith inspected the small horde. Rather than useless automatons, he began to look more like walking fertilizer. But no, his mistress commanded him to gather her forces and not to kill them. Slamming his sword into his sheath, Vanilith glowered at the decapitated head and slowly rolled away. Killing the school had been a mistake. How could he expect others to meet his expectations if he couldn't meet those expectations himself? He strode away from the scene, noticing as he did that some of the other ghouls were now staring at him. He paused in his steps and an idea came as he noted their expressions. Ghouls were a unique sort of creature. They rarely did anything on their own initiative unless there was a clear motive, such as chasing down a human or a following a crowd. They weren't naturally inquisitive, but if something big enough happened, they would unconsciously gather towards the source of the disturbance, wouldn't they? Vanilith relocated to the center of the hamlet, climbing up onto the stone that had been placed in there for this exact purpose. Once there, he moved his mask to the side of his face, inhaled deeply, and howled, putting all of his force and world into the noise, as he'd done when fighting the specters. This time, when he reached out for power, he felt the dark storm inside him clearly, seething with all those familiar emotions and finality and dread. It had grown substantially since the last he checked only a few hours ago. This made his grip on the less controlled, but to find control wasn't necessary here. The energy seeped from whatever was stored inside of him and into the howl. The bone-chilling sound carried clear and loud, informing all of the ghouls that the new presence was establishing itself. And the undead responded. One or two of the first, but then soon five, then ten, then all the ghouls in the vicinity had gathered around him, numbering nearly thirty in all. Some younger ones and a few men were scattered amongst the crowd, but most that had gathered were undead, were women or the elderly, those too weak to escape the assault on their settlement. It wasn't the strongest force, but it was a start. Near the fringes of the crowd, Vanilith noted four or five ghouls who appeared to be drifting in and out, almost like they were uncertain what they wanted to be here. Vanilith growled, inserting his world into the noise as he did before. The mass of ghouls all turned at once to look at the vagrants. Vanilith sensed that, were he to growl like that again, the non-compliance would be torn apart. Interesting. Very interesting. 
What was the sense? It wasn't quite like a connection he shared with Kalakai, but it was a feeling of control. Still, he didn't want more of his mistress's forces to be depleted. Turning, he headed back to her cottage, ensuring that the rest followed. He could have gone around to the other settlements with the group in tow, but he sensed that it was at his limit controlling the number of undead. Using gestures and the slight psychic connection, he then ordered Kalakai to go poke the drifting ghouls with his spear until they followed the rest of the crowd. As soon as the large stone came into view, Vandalus stopped, pointing at the rock. He growled, and the crowd seemed to understand as they started moving towards it. At this point, the ghouls Kalakai had been corralling seemed to understand what was expected of them as they went with the others. More likely, they just got used to following the crowd. Either way, it freed up his spear-wielder. The necromancer would probably be fine without him there, he decided. Vandalith was trying to save time. He still had two more settlements to visit, and perhaps the other areas of the valley if the zombies had drifted far afield, all while the invisible threat of the hunting party loomed over them. The next closest village was invisible, but Vandalith recalled that it was further downstream than the first one, so the two ghouls walked along the riverside until they came into sight. Like the last, the settlement was located near the river, not too close, perhaps out of fear of flooding. It was in shambles, with undead visibly roaming about. As they neared, others' differences became clear. There were more male ghouls of working age, and there also seemed to be more numbers here. As soon as Vanleth arrived at the edge of the village, he repeated his howl. That was when something unexpected occurred. He met resistance. Vanilith felt the world pulsating outwards with his roar, but the connection between him and the other ghouls didn't form. He felt it trying to form, but something blocked it. That was when the second howl, shrill and clear, echoed out of the opposite side of the village, and all howl broke loose. He felt the world own a strange howl brush against his mind, but he was able to shrug off the influences without exerting himself. Eyeing Kanakai, he did the same. The nearest ghoul on the outskirts was already sprinting towards Vanilith. Narrowing his eyes, he drew his sword. Another ghoul controlled by these ones already. Their mistake. An independent ghoul wouldn't be tolerated when the necromancer's vanny. He readied himself to strike the approaching enemy, noticing as he did that many of the ghouls were approaching from within the ruins of the village. Many more. Before he could swing his blade, he was interrupted by the thrust of Kalakai's spear that took the charged ghoul in the throat. Kalakai slammed the unfortunate creature into the ground and then grinded the weapon around a few more times for good measure, severing the spinal cord. After the undead gave its last dying shudder, he placed his foot on his chest, tugging the pole arm free and lowering it once more into the incoming monsters. Good... Banalith wouldn't have to fight them all, it seemed. Despite himself, he felt his turbid blood rising, almost as if his heart beat once more. He knew the necromancer wanted these undead alive, but there was little he could do about the situation without finding the ghoul who controlled them. He didn't know where it was. And besides, they were surrounded. He severed the next ghoul's arm with one-handed swing, and then took a step back and gripped the pommel of the other hand, bringing the blade around to strike the neck. He sliced horizontally as it stumbled past, deeply enough to sever its spine. It fell to the ground and didn't move again. Swordsman level increased. Dexterity plus one. Pivoting, he engaged the next ghoul by bashing his pommel into its forehead. 
It staggered back, stunned, so he simply hit it a second time, and it dropped like a stone. Swordsman, level, increased, strength plus one. The third enemy was a large ghoul, not quite as tall as Vanilith, but nearly twice as wide. It barreled at him with its arms out, lowering his center of gravity. Vandalith waited until it was nearly upon him, then quickly whirled away while lashing out with his sword. He sidestepped the brute, leaving a gash across its shoulder and tripping it in one motion. Then he executed with a downward slash and turned to meet the next enemy. Level increased. Agility plus one. Dexterity plus one. Swordsman level increased. Agility plus one. Skill increased. Swordsmanship becomes level one. Muscle memory took over as the fight continued. His sword began to flow more smoothly, flying from enemy to enemy, never needing to perform a third blow. The undead piled on, however, and Vanilith steadily began accumulating injuries. Still, he was undead himself, and he would not fall easily, especially against such poor fighters who lacked weapons. When a strong ghoul grabbed his arm and wrenched him around, it popped out of its socket. He was able to bring his free arm around and deal with the enemy. But while he did, another two ghouls took a bite, said him. Throwing them off, he cut down on another, but was hit from behind by an unseen assailant and nearly went sprawling. Just before he would have hit the ground, he pumped all the power into his legs and pushed off the ground, sending himself sailing over the heads of his attackers. He hit the ground rolling, leaping to his feet while he stumped undead looking around, wondering where he went. While his moment of respite, he saw Kalakai much further away. A line of dead ghouls led straight to him, showing how his fight had progressed. Six enemies still followed him, but the old spearman kept them at bay with precise jabs with his weapon, followed by quick backsteps, sometimes using the shaft of his spear to trip up the ghouls to get close, ensuring that he was never backed into a corner or surrounded. His spatial awareness combined with his agility. Was he that quick before? Kept him alive despite the odds, it helped that his attackers followed him in an unorganized mob. It looked like the enemy commander had sent the lion's share of the forces off to Vanilith, however. Peering around, he tried to pick out one from the crowd, but there was no obvious leaders. Nothing for it then. The mob of foes had finally zeroed in on him, but he was ready this time. In the course of his earlier battle, he'd felt his strength increasing multiple times, though it was only in incremental amounts each time. And he still had his injuries to contend with. He felt sharper than ever. When he re-engaged with the furious ghouls, Vanilith did his best to follow Kanakai's lead, leaping around and keeping out of reach of the various enemies. If were lighter, he risked less severe injuries that might have impaired his fighting ability. With only one arm, he couldn't engage another crowd like he had before, even if he wanted to. He'd be overwhelmed in an instant. There was a point where the traits of the undead truly came through for Vanilith, Leaping around like an acrobat with a heavy sword was a certain way for a warrior to tire himself out for any fight lasting longer than a minute. A human, even one far more talented than he, would have died ten times over if they copied him. But the stamina of the undead was no trifling thing. More importantly than even his stamina was his ability to continue fighting while accumulating wounds. The fight continued for a long time. Vanilith may not have dropped easily, but neither did his enemies. He had to either strike the fatal point of their spine, brain, or he had to cripple them severely enough that they were no longer posed a threat. 
With the longer reach on his weapon and his superior stats, it was simple enough to dance circles around the mindless undead who followed him around in a crowd. Kalakai had shown him the path, he just had to follow it. Another howl came from the direction of the village after Vanilith had already dealt with a sizable chunk of his enemies, and their approach suddenly shifted. The ghouls spread out, trying to circle him. At this point, however, there were too few left to make the strategy viable. Vanilith instantly assessed the situation and blitzed the weakest-looking one, breaking out of the encirclement before he could be completed. From this point, he isolated his enemies one at a time, finishing them off with flurries and vicious strikes while ensuring that the others didn't surround him. With the deceptively quiet sound of the sword cutting into flesh, the last ghoul perished to Vanilith. Level increased times seven, strength plus two, stamina plus three, agility plus six, dexterity plus two, ichor plus one, ability obtained, tough skin, level zero, ability increased, tough skin becomes level one. Swordsman, level increased, times five, stamina, plus one, agility, plus three, dexterity, plus one. Skill increased, swordsmanship, level becomes two, skill obtained, poise, level zero. By the time the battle finally ended and the last of the foe was in pieces scattered and across the dirt, Vanilith was practically in pieces himself. Even his immense pull of stamina had finally reached rock bottom, and he felt like he was swimming through a tar just by trying to move. He didn't need sleep, he just wanted to stop trying. It was like he was a newly born lesser ghoul again, forced to fright against his own mind to take a single step. But he couldn't stop, not yet. Pushing through the stupor, he reached the deep within him. Though his stamina was spent, the black energy inside him was bursting. He unleashed a second earth-shattering howl. The dead grass swayed as the eerie noise swept through the valley. This time, he wasn't summoning ghouls, but sending a message to the enemy commander. Submit or die. There was no responding howl this time, but a different sort of noise, that of shuffling feet. Behind a hut, a ghoul appeared, then another, and another. Six of the undead walked out from their hiding place. He'd been expecting one, not a small group. It wasn't in the ghoul's nature to cower. Vanilith narrowed his eyes. On closer inspection, they were walking strangely. They moved in a strange formation, with five of the ghouls surrounding a central figure. The five outermost ones were big, the biggest he'd seen so far, perhaps. The center ghoul was far smaller than the others, a female. As they approached, he got a closer look. His eyes widened slightly when he saw the female's appearance. It wasn't that of a lesser ghoul, though clearly dead. She wasn't nearly as disheveled as the rest. Truthfully, it was like a lack of gaping death wounds that gave her away. This one had evolved like him. Her hair was curly brown, tied in a ponytail that reached nearly to her waist. Did she fix that herself, or was it a carryover from life? Most striking was the eyes which, yellow like a ghoul's, nevertheless glinted with cunning, though perhaps not quite as intelligent as a human. Vanilith wasn't intending to underestimate her. She'd shown that she was able to learn, after all, by the way she switched the strategy of her subordinate ghouls halfway through the battle. It had been a hopeless by that point, but if she thought the strategy earlier, Vanilith may have been killed. When they were twenty feet away, the group stopped in their tracks. Vanilith stared them down, unflinching behind his frowning mask. He stood up and stop a small pile of corpses. For a while, they remained in this odd stalemate. A nearly dead ghoul who could barely stand facing off against five powerful enemies of full fighting condition. 
allowing the sixth who coordinated them. Most of the guards bore weapons too, simple clubs fashioned from furniture or farm implements. Vanilith could tell that she was scanning him, making notes of his injuries, judging how tired he had to be after his brutal fight. Or perhaps it was only him doing that. He still wasn't sure how intelligent other ghouls could be. Vanilith didn't move. He wasn't sure if he could win against six more enemies. But there wasn't a sliver of fear in him. If she didn't surrender, she would die. That was the communicated to her, and he intended to keep his resolution. Slowly, she stooped over, placing both her knees on the ground and lowering her head demurely. The five other ghouls followed suit, though far less gracefully. Level increased, my eyes my plus two. You have received title, Rex. Intelligent enough, then. Information, name, Vanilith, titles, cannibal, Rex. Race, ghoul, level 31. Abilities, howl, level 1. Miasmic sight, level 0. Tough skin, level 1. Class, swordsman, rank up pending, level 20. Skills, swordsmanship, level 2. Boys, level 0. Status effect, unknown. Statistics, strength, 27. Vitality, not applicable. Stamina, 30. Agility, 22. Dexterity, 18. Echo, 4. Miasma, 12. End of chapter. Chapter 12. First Divergence Dying the six kneeling undead, Vanilith allowed himself a small measure of satisfaction, though his distrust had not faded completely. He growled, commanding them to remain there. Then he slowly went around the various corpses, locating spare scraps of cloth that he could use to wrap up his gaping wounds. Though his injuries didn't slow him down over much, he didn't want to wander around looking like a sentient pile of shredded meat. Finally, he grasped his dislocated shoulder with his hand, straining. Eventually, it snapped back into place with a loud pop. As he rummaged, he also changed out his clothes, most articles of which had seen better days. His mask, sword, sword belt, and leather boots were the only pieces he retained. He donned a pair of thick cloth trousers and provided some small protection and didn't restrict his movement, as well as a shirt made of some grey, scratchy fibre that was tight-fitting enough that he didn't risk getting his sleeves getting in the way of his sword. He departed the scene of the battle, making sure to keep an eye on the six remaining undead as he moved towards where he'd last seen Kalakai. The ghoul had gone quite a distance. While walking, he decided to deal with his next issue. You are qualified to rank up. Select a class. Warrior, squire, duelist, swordsman. Four paths open up before Vandalith once again. It was a familiar feeling, one that last occurred after the slaughter in the cave. This time, it was slightly different. Rather than looking through open doors, he now stood at an intersection, the first and most critical point of divergence. He looked behind himself at the route he'd already taken. He'd advanced somewhat down this path, and was able to see uh, just how small of a distance he'd actually come. The beginning was right behind him. He'd barely taken his first step. The feeling of these paths gave off was similar to the first set of choices, with a few key differences as they all retained some of the familiar characteristics of the swordsman. Warrior. The first path felt raw and violent. Vyas raged and enemies lay in wait, obstacles to overcome and the road to greatness. There was a great degree of versatility and freedom here, kept in check by shredded discipline. 
It was a massive path, with the fewest dead ends and any that he'd seen. Anything he wanted to pursue therein felt like he could be a viable choice. It was practically impossible to fail should he choose this one, but uh, it almost felt like it was too safe a choice. Like there was some catch. He couldn't tell what that snag might be, but his limited understanding, but his instincts warned him against it. Squire. The second route took the opposite approach to the first. Right. Control. Strength. The ground shook where the storm winds buffeted this path, requiring one to have a steady grasp of their own footing lest they falter. There were some dead ends, but it was more likely for one to stop halfway to their goal than to encounter an impasse. There were fewer divergences later on here. Less options, but one of them felt weak. Rather, they were all blindingly strong. Duelist. The third path. This one was different. It was dangerous. It walked a fine line between strength and flexibility, requiring the traveler one day to hack his way through a thorny vines and the next day to dance across lily pads, to climb a mountain and then cross a bottomless chasm. It had more twists and tangles than even the first path, and far more dead ends, and some which were easier than others to stumble into. It was risky. One wrong turn, and the traveler was trapped forever. This wasn't dependent only on one's will and strength. It required that too. But it was also a test of every aspect of someone's character, be it intelligence, courage, or even luck. Swordsman the fourth option wasn't worth mentioning. It was a continuation of a lesser path that he'd already walked. Every path, however simple or complicated it might be, was given the same number of steps. The lesser path would be handicapped for one's potential. Choosing, it was tantamount to failure. Vanilleth ran his tongue over his teeth, wishing for the first time in his unlife that he had something strong to drink. There was more tied to these choices than just a vague sensation of the paths that gave him. There was emotions that came to his mind as he looked them over, surfacing unbidden to him. The second path, Vandalith eyed glowing blue ruins that represented it, wishing that he could discern their meaning. Squire. The path was deeply familiar to him, so familiar that he felt vestiges of memories returning to him no longer he stared. In the end, though, no concrete images or thoughts surfaced. There was only a deep emotion of regret. But why? The path was the surest path to strength. He could see that much. All one needed to walk it was the requisite tenacity and force of will. Vanilith didn't doubt his drive for a moment. Yet, it was the third option that truly confounded him. Duelist. Why was the third one always so tempting? The path was rife with obstacles and uncertainty. Yet something called to him. It couldn't have been its potential. The second path had that too. There was a yearning in him for this route, and whether it was something from the past or instinct, Vanilith was unwilling to discount it. It was just, um, ahead of him was infinity, one wrong turn and... Something hit his shoulder, causing Vanilith to lurch forward. As he did, his arm passed through the runes, and he'd been staring at for so fixedly. The glowing letters disappeared into motes of light, and he blinked as a new set of runes appeared before him. Class obtained... Duelist, uncommon. Skill increased poise becomes level 1. Skill obtained, conceptualization, level 0. A difficult-to-place sensation came over Vanlith, like his field of view had just widened slightly, though his vision remained the same. 
Following Hither's shifting of his perception, he turned to stare incredulously at the prone figure of the ghoul who just interfered with his selection. It was Kalakai, who had collapsed and now lay face down in the dirt, completely motionless. Vanleth had seen the subordinate working his way towards him, so he stopped to debate his choices with the rest for a moment without paying the old zombie any more mind. He hadn't expected him to suddenly fall over, however. Vanleth's gaze bore into the back of Kalakai's skull, but the spearman didn't budge an inch. He was just debating stomping his skull when he noticed something which gave him pause. Like him, Kalakai hadn't escaped the fight unscathed. He had accumulated his share of injuries, though most weren't as severe as Vanleth's. Rather, most of his current injuries were given to him by Vanleth last night, when he killed the old man and turned him. And now, those wounds were healing rapidly. Flesh knitted together and muscle regrew before the duelist's eyes. Kalakai was evolving. Vanilith stepped back, curious to witness the process that he'd undergone himself back in the cave. It turned out that other than the regeneration, it wasn't much to look at. After Kalakai's wounds healed, he just lay there like a slug, thoroughly uninteresting. He didn't even breathe, being an undead. Vanilith rolled him over onto his back and then sat and waited. His stamina seemed to replenish more rapidly when he didn't move, so he took the opportunity to rest and renew himself. After a moment of thought, he located one of Kanakai's victims and dug out their liver. After consuming it, he lost interest in eating any more, despite being hungry enough too. Undead flesh wasn't quite the same after experiencing the fresh thing. Still, with something in his stomach, he felt the energy levels recovering much faster. In the distance, the six ghouls remained kneeling. Undead were good at exercising patience so long as there weren't humans around, evidently. Vanilith allowed his thought process to slow as he entered a self-induced stupor. After half an hour, Kalakai stirred. Vanilith blinked and then turned to watch as his companion rose and looked around at his surroundings with some confusion. His appearance was mostly the same as before. White hair, receding hairline, and a medium-length beard splattered with blood that reached to his chest. The largest difference Vanleth noted between before and after was the ghoul's posture, which until now had been hunched over like it had been at life. Kalakai stood straighter now with the bearing of a soldier. At this moment, Kalakai stopped examining the environment and instead focused on the one spot that the air in front of him more intently than Vanleth had ever seen the old zombie look at anything. Though Vanleth followed his gaze, he couldn't tell what Kalakai saw. Kalakai lifted his hand with a motion reminiscent of an old man trying to catch an insect with his bare hand. At this, Vanleth suddenly realized what was going on. He had himself not just experienced the same thing recently, he wouldn't have figured it out. Kalakai had probably just been given a choice of paths. As if this wasn't confirmation enough, the glowing blue symbol suddenly brightened on Kalakai's forehead, the same place where Vanilith's was located. Kalakai's symbol took the shape of a circle framed on the top and bottom with two parallel lines. In the center of the circle was a small cross. Strangely, Vanilith was able to send something stir in his own brand when this happened. It felt like Kalakai was drawing something from him. It wasn't energy, not really. It wasn't like the power he felt entering him when the ruins sometimes appeared before him. It was something that he had inside himself that he'd never noticed before. He may have never have even known that he had it, lost it just now. 
It was such a minor amount of mysterious substance that it truly didn't bother Vanilith. But if there were amount increased, he could tell that it wouldn't be a good thing. He had no idea what to make of it. Undoubtedly, this was related to the connection Vanilith forced between him and Kalakai back in the cave. But he hadn't known anything like this would occur. It was something to investigate when he had the means. By this point, Vanilith had recovered enough to move without feeling burdened, so he stood up and made his way back to the kneading ghouls. The female lifted her head as he approached, though she kept her eyes lowered and subservient. The following conversation was entirely carried out in growls between two evolved commanders. "'Are there more ghouls?' Vanilith asked. "'Some,' she replied. "'Too many here for me to control. I took the best for my army.' Gather them. It'll take time. I chased them away since I couldn't control them. Do it, and then bring them to the mistress. Who? Your creator. She lives in the hut on the lone rock in the barren fields to the west. Vanilith pointed to make the directions clear. I will do as you say, she said. Orders given, Vanilith decided to leave the female to her task. If she betrayed him, he would hunt her down again. Vanilith checked the sky, noting that it had begun to dim. It was late in the afternoon. Soon was all the necromancer had said when she mentioned the hunters were returning. Their window of time, if it hadn't already closed, was shortening with each moment wasted. Turning, he left the others and returned to Kalakai, ordering him to follow as he departed for the third and final village in the valley. He'd only seen the settlement a single time, from his perch at the mouth of the cave in the southern wall of the valley. It was miles upstream at the mouth of the river, towards the western edge of the basin, perhaps nine or ten miles distant. They would have passed through the first village again to get there. They would take the route by the necromancer's hut, but it would add another two miles to the journey, so Vanilith decided against it. After going down the road for some time, Vanilith realized that he may not have taken the best route, Doubling back over covered territory cost him time. Why hadn't he considered this? If an obstacle or a problem was placed before him, he was able to navigate around it, but he apparently had trouble forming any sort of long-term plan. His thought process slowed as he tried, and he couldn't hold a coherent picture in his mind. If he felt his sluggishness especially when he was trying to imagine hypotheticals, it bothered him. Hunters were coming, but he didn't know how strong they were or how many there were. Worse than that, he wanted to ready himself, but he didn't know how. Hunters, they were people who roamed the wilderness in search of prey, right? How would people like that launch an attack? He didn't know. His frustration built up as he grew increasingly aware of his mental block. It hadn't bothered him to this extent before, but following his evolution and then the recent choice of paths, he was beginning to realize his weakness with as far greater clarity than before. Drawing his blade, he began a simple set of exercises while walking. After a minute, he realized that he was drawing too heavily on his already depleted energy reserves, and he put the sword away, irritated at himself. The last fight had taken too much out of him. That fight, it had been the most difficult fight that Vanilith could remember— and he'd nearly lost. If he hadn't seen Kalakai, he might not have switched strategies in time and been overwhelmed. He pictured the conflict as they walked. All of his movements and those of his enemies remained clear to him despite the time that had elapsed since then. 
The enemy ghouls had been remarkably straightforward in their intentions, which let Vanilith dodge or counter most of their attacks. As he reviewed each altercation, with a heavier focus on the times when he received an injury, he began to notice a trend. Almost every time he received a blow had been when his focus was something else. He'd fixated on a foe in front of him, and the attack from behind sent him reading. He'd been dodging one strike and landing directly in the path of another. Events such as that played out many times over the course of the battle. He didn't have eyes in the back of his head, but surely he could do better. Karakai had overcome this problem by ensuring his enemies were all in front of him, where he could see them. By retreating constantly coupled with the length of his weapon, he'd managed to position relative to his attackers. There was a viable strategy for the old ghoul, but Vanilith couldn't replicate that with a shorter weapon. He had to be much closer to his enemies, which would inevitably open him up to attacks. The sword had more flexibility, but vulnerability was the price he paid. How to fix it? Armor? He didn't have any. Rather than trying to correct something so deeply rooted in a simple solution, he played the fight on repeat in his mind, looking at each instance of failure, at even some instances of success, and thought about how he could have avoided or improved upon them. For a creature that couldn't even imagine how a hunter might approach him, Vanilith's memory of the skirmish was frighteningly clear. For the next two hours, as the sky deepened into the night, he played through the fight dozens of times in the mirror of his mind. As a final village came into the view, he hadn't escaped from the imagined battle completely uninjured, but he lessened his imagined injuries by half. His energy expenditure, which was now new, most of which had been put towards wasteful movements, was reduced by over a third. If he had to repeat the similar fight, he sensed that he could be in a much better position. Skill increased. Conceptualization becomes level one. End of chapter. Chapter 13. A Familiar Face Kalakai and Vanilith's journey to the third and final village had not been completely uneventful. Along the way, they had run into several isolated ghouls. When this happened, Vanilith would simply pause his meditation, growl, and gather the rogue monsters, who fell into rank behind him obediently. By the time their destination came into sight, they'd ended up with enough retinue of a dozen followers. Vanilith's footsteps slowed as he scanned the village, trying to pick out any obvious signs of danger. In the last village, his movements of the undead might have warned him that they were being controlled, so he looked for anything similar here. The settlement was the largest yet, perhaps twice the size of the other two. It took a shape of a crescent moon, constructed around a large circular lake. The lake itself was bordered on one side by the town and on the other side by the precipice of a cliff. A breathtaking waterfall cascaded down into the lake watering the valley in the snow melt from the mountains above. The river which Vanilith had been following for hours divided the village in half, though the halves remained connected via a stone bridge built over the river where it sprouted from the lake. Many of the buildings were built close to the waterside, and some fishermen's cabins sat over the water, elevated on stilts. Even the cottages built on land rested on the poles which such one could walk underneath them. Many ghouls milled about here. They were distributed at random and either sat around collecting dust or repeating some inane and pointless task. They didn't have a look of undead with a purpose, like those in the last village had, but those had been controlled by a female ghoul. 
Despite the lack of competition, a single glance told Vanellith that there were too many here for him to control. Another miscalculation he'd made. Should he have brought the female? No. She had her orders. Vanellith would take multiple trips with the ghouls in tow if he had to. There was simply no way Kalakai could hurt fifty zombies by poking them with a stick. He stepped up forward, leading way into the village via the main path, his small band in tow. Upon seeing them enter, many of the village ghouls stared as they passed by. Without any urging from Vanellith, one or even two would stop at what they were doing and got up and joined his small pack. He hadn't asserted any control over these new additions, yet they followed despite that. This took Vanellith aback until he suddenly remembered how, when he was a lesser ghoul, he'd followed the human scent trail out of the village, and how, when he was on his way, he'd found a young ghoul in the dirt, struggling to even move his limbs. When Vanellith passed by, it seemed to energize that ghoul. Once it stood up and began to follow him, Vanellith even felt the imagined weight on his limbs lessen. Perhaps something similar was happening here. Ghouls were pack animals, it explained why he'd been able to send uncontrolled ghouls from his first village to his mistress. There may have been a method to gather up this entire village's worth of undead in one trip, but most of the ghouls were passing didn't join up with them, only staring as he moved by. Some made attempts to rise and follow, but the lethargy seemed to win out more often than not, and they collapsed back into the dirt. He needed something else, more energy. Ghouls reacted to noise, smell, and excitement, like the time he decapitated one of their number, or when he howled in the center of the village and drawn all the undead to him. Even those that didn't fall under his sway were attracted by the noise and the movements of the other ghouls. Vandalith needed more than ten-odd followers to get the ball rolling. A plan slowly formulated as he continued to patrol the village. Vanellith watched closely as all the ghouls they passed, paying more attention to those who made attempts to follow him. Since they held their stronger will and catatonic zombies who didn't even make an attempt, he growled at each of them in turn, inserting a bit of willpower into the action, urging them on. If that didn't work, he then reached for a trace of his dark power inside of him, expanding it on the weaker version of his howl. He thought of this application of his ability after conversing with the female ghoul earlier and was pleased to find that he could direct it towards individual ghouls if he desired it, letting him selectively ignore the undead he didn't want to influence. He passed by a relatively intact undex who was sprawled out underneath one of the houses. As the group passed, it staggered to its feet, walked a few steps and collapsed again. Vanellith's growl didn't work, so, unfocusing his gaze, he delved inside himself, it had been getting easier and more exercise of the ability, and it only took a moment for him to touch the fringes of that mysterious singularity that he first discovered from the inside of the necromancer storm. He isolated a trace of the mist that evaporated off of it, and much like the steam of the melting snow, it infused his next command. A low rumble emerged from his throat. Vanellith felt a sliver of dark mist merge with the essence and collapsed ghoul, following which it jerked to its feet like a puppet on strings and marched forward to join the rest of the band. Vanellith retained a crude connection to this expended energy, which he still perceived as a part of himself despite it melding with another. Perhaps he could also recover it. Now wasn't a time for experimenting. As he wandered the street, he managed to gather fifty ghouls while actively commanding less than twenty of them. 
It soon reached his limit after another ten or so, but this was a good start. Ability increased, miasmic sight, level zero becomes level one. He turned to observe his followers after clearing out the entire northern sector of the village, having left behind only a dozen of the truly comatose schools. Those weren't worth wasting his energy on. Kalakai stood at the head of the small army, spear in hand, looking unimpressed by the collection of monsters behind him. Even Vanilith couldn't ignore the energizing sensation of having such a mass of allies at his back, so it made an impression on him that Kalakai remained unmoved. In fact, Vanilith was more than simply motivated. His feet were practically humming with a restless energy, and something primal was rearing up at the sight of a small horde, misleading his instincts. With his many of his brethren gathered, he felt that it was on a hunt. It made him salivate in both hunger and sort of feral glee to imagine chasing down a quarry with the horde of screaming undead at his side. Pulling himself away from these delusions, Vanilith realized that it was much louder than before. Many of the ghouls began growling and moving about more actively. He wasn't the only one affected, or perhaps his own emotions had incited them. The sensation was dangerous. Even the orchestrator was at risk of getting caught up in the crowd. He needed to remain in control. Rather than hurting the group's cohesion, Vanilith sensed his energy could be beneficial so long as he remained composed. There was no chance of anyone stumping back into the lethargy with this electricity current passing through the ghoul to ghoul. It was time to move on to the southern sector. He approached the bridge that divided the two halves of the village, noting that the district that they approached looked larger than the one that they were leaving. He crossed the span without issue. Upon turning back to watch, however, he saw the rest of the group trying to cram into the bridge all at once. A mass of twisting limbs and grunts which sent several unfortunate ghouls overboard and into the drink. The current wasn't too strong, so most were able to reach the opposite bank, though one or two did let themselves get washed away, either because they couldn't swim or they forgot that they could walk underwater. He considered that an acceptable loss. This new sector appeared much like the first, but quickly it became apparent that it was density of ghouls were much lower. Vanilith was somewhat disappointed, having thought by the number of houses that there would be many more than this, but when he learned exactly why there were so few undead in this area, he saw allowed a slow grin to form on his normally expressionless face. He just caught the traces of a human scent. Pursuing it led down towards the southern edge of town. There was a few differences in the buildings in this area. Though most of the houses throughout the rest of the village and in the other settlements had been constructed primarily of wood and some preparation of mud and clay. Here he began to see houses of stone and mortar. Some were only partially built of rock, but a few were entirely made out of material, and they appeared to be recent constructions too. He wondered why these weren't built like the rest but shortly realized during the uphill climb that the ground here was more elevated than the rest of the settlement, making it safer from flooding. One building in particular stood out, situated on the outskirts of the town. It was a one-story tall like the rest, but it stood on a small hill and was far larger than any of the others. In front of it was a mass of some sixty ghouls. The undead here had reached an impasse. They milled about the front of the house, clawing at the stone and scratching at the solid wooden door. The door itself reinforced with iron and rested on metal hinges. 
This was the first sign of metal that he'd seen in the valley, other than that used in the tools and weapons. He looked over in the windows and saw them to be small in number and blocked with iron bars on the top of that. He'd found the final holdout of the human survivors in the valley. Vanilla's pace slowed to a halt. Many of the monsters gathered here turned at his approach, and as they saw the mass of excited moving ghouls, some of the energy seemed to bleed over to them. Those undead who had previously given up hope began to rise again and renew their assault. Hammering on the doors and walls, some even came over to stand with Manilith's crowd, though some of his followers also left to join the assaulting keep. He was taken aback by the appearance of several of these new ghouls. It hadn't been in the case elsewhere, but it was clear that there were some evolved variants gathered here. It wasn't always easy to tell them apart from the lesser variety, as the only distinguishing feature was the fact that their wounds would vanish. There were other signs, but these were the less detectable measures, such as their bearing, intellect, and fighting power. In this case, there were enough of these standouts that Vandalith noticed it instantly. Perhaps five or six evolved were mingled in with the lesser ones. Vandalith rested his hand on his pommel of his sword, ready to draw it in a moment's notice. At that moment, a blow shot out from one of the houses to the side, sweeping into the ranks of the assembled ghouls. Vanilith rolled around to see a figure dragging away one of the rearmost followers. The rest of the undead didn't even seem to notice the sudden attack. Kalakai's gaze followed where the two individual parties disappeared to, though the old ghoul didn't move. Vanilith drew his sword and pursued them into the alley between houses, into a yard hidden from the road. Rounding the corner, he narrowed his eyes and witnessing the appearance of the attacker. Hunched over, a weakly struggling lesser ghoul and eating messily from its rotting flesh was an undead that he'd met before. It was the young ghoul, the savage, pale-haired monster who'd assaulted the cave with Vanilith. He'd evolved since the last time he saw him, and it seemed that despite the completion of the necromancer's ritual, he still attacked other ghouls unprovoked. An aberrant, then. His mistress didn't need aberrance. Just before Vanilith's blade met with the young ghoul's neck, his target suddenly flipped to the side, landing on all floors and charging at him with a surprising burst of speed. The show of agility was unexpected, but Vanilith didn't let that delay his movements. He halted the ghoul with a wide swing of the vertical block. As they collided, Vanilith noticed something was different. On closer inspection, of his foe showed that his fingernails had been dwarfed and blackened, practically becoming a claw in their own right. These inch-long talons were something he'd never seen on a ghoul, making his evolution different than any of the others Vanlith had seen. It was almost as if the ghoul's body had been altered to accommodate his ferocious nature. The young undead snarled and the sword and cut into his palms, and he darted back and began circling Vanilith. Looking at some other opening, everything about him, whether it was his posture, mannerisms, or method of attack, spoke of a wild animal. At this point, Vanilith's followers began flooding into the clearing, and he had to let loose a roar, commanding everyone to stay out of his way. After a moment's consideration, he let loose a second roar, but this one was to tell them to encircling the two fighters. He didn't want the ghoul escaping. There were very few single opponents Vanilith was able to fight with, and he wasn't going to waste this chance. Every battle was a chance for him to learn and grow. The ghoul lunged at him and the ensuing flurry of blows. There was no time left for thought. It was emotion, contact, and violence. 
the savage was able to follow up each of his attacks with another almost instantly, putting Vanilith on the constant defensive. He was slower than his opponent, and as long as he was trying to avoid taking injuries, he was forced to use every tiny advantage he could to maneuver himself into an advantageous position. But, unlike his opponent, Vanilith was able to build on all these small advantages. A well-placed block quickly turned into a progressive cut, which gave Vanilith the space to take a step back, which put him on a better footing so that his opponent's next strike staggered him less and allowed him to strike again immediately which slightly shifted the momentum in his favor. It was an unending dance of swordplay and claw. Though his focus on his foe, Vanilith was oddly aware of his surroundings while he fought. It was like they were a vague, stationary picture of the backdrop of his mind, even while his own frame of reference whirled around, changing with every step that he took. This knowledge was a strange thing. It was an instinctual understanding of the environment, something that unconsciously informed his movements, helping him ensure that he never misstepped or was backed into a corner. It centered on him so that he never grew confused or dizzy. Though the ghoul was quicker with his movements, he had an inferior reach, and each of his attacks were less devastating than Vanilith's. His savage manner also made him more predictable. A trained warrior like Kalakai would have proven far more problematic, as he didn't telegraph his moves and had the foresight to read the flow of battle. Or, at least it seemed that way, judging by his performance in the last fight. In this fight, though, Vanilla's weapon gave him the biggest advantage, allowing him to block and attack with near impunity. After a minute of intense combat, followed by another minute of testing blows that neither party were willing to engage fully, Vanilith got creative. His sword strikes were far more devastating than those the ghoul were capable of. He could engage fully at any point, taking on some injuries of his own in order to eliminate the wild animal. But he didn't want that. He wanted a greater challenge. The ghoul swiped high, and Vanilith leaned back, paying no attention to the claws that nicked the wooden nose of his mask. The ghoul immediately followed the swipe up with a bite, but Vanilith turned his judge into a backflip, kicking up the dust into the adversary's face and temporarily blinding him. Vanilith ended his acrobatic maneuver by landing neatly on his feet, but the other ghoul had already retreated to a safe distance away, scrubbing the dirt from his eyes. Vanilith began advancing at a sedate pace. As he approached, he sheathed his blade, spreading his arms out as if inviting an attack. The ghoul looked at him through narrowed eyes, baring his teeth in defiance. Despite the show of boldness, Vanilith saw his pupils darting back and forth, searching for avenues of escape. Vanilla's followers were surrounded to them, kept at bay by only his command, though it was only partial encirclement which left the area directly behind Vanilla's free. The swordsman decided to give the young ghoul an ultimatum. He growled, low and menacing, which communicated the following, Surrender and serve, or be ripped apart. The look of shock that followed told Vanilla that his meaning had gotten through. The ghoul shrunk back like a cornered rat. This was the first undead he'd known to show fear. Truly, this was an aberrant. Unsurprisingly, the ghoul answered Vanilith by attempting to dash past him. His claws sank into the earth, rapidly propelling him forward in a burst of speed that couldn't be replicated by the swordsman, if they were racing, that was. Vanilith had to put away his weapon and tempt the creature back into the fight. He'd given the ghoul two choices. There wasn't a third option. He kicked the ghoul in the side as he attempted to blitz past, sending him sprawling in the dirt. Before he could recover, 
Vanilith leapt upon him, grasping the back of his neck and slamming him face first into the ground. At the last moment before crushing his neck, Vanilith halted. The ghoul had a sort of stubbornness about him that reminded him of Kalakai. He had a method of subduing defiance, didn't he? His gaze wandered over to where the spearman stood. Perhaps he could make use of this creature. Vanilith's grip tightened. Serve me. Peon Brand advanced. Subject's resistance is moderate. Rejected. Snorting, he picked up the ghoul and slammed him into the ground again and again and again. Once the wretched creature began to convulse, his face becoming a mess of shattered bones and black oozing blood, Vandalith gave his order once more. Peon Brand advanced. Subject's resistance is minimal. Brace for carving. Vandalith gripped his teeth as he expected it to hurt. And it did, as if a glowing hot axe had just cleaved into his skull. Vandalith's vision went black as he was overcome with a paralyzing pain. Visions accompanied by the pain. Billions and billions and trillions of pictures and words and sensations flashed before him in an instant. And he saw them all, yet he saw nothing, because they were nothing. These were only eternity. Blackness. And the Maelstrom. Then it was over. Carving successful. Brace for melding. Composing himself, he observed the young ghoul attempting to groan, or perhaps scream, but only succeeded in eating a mouthful of dirt. Vanilith stood, releasing him. The ghoul writhed as Kalakai had, though Vanilith personally only felt some small discomfort. The familiar trail of smoke curled up from the ghoul's forehead, and a dull red brand appeared there, the ever-present circle, this time with two larger semicircles resting above the below it, looking much like the open mouth. In the very center there was a small red cross, the same that Kalakai bore, though his was blue, while this new one was red. Ability obtained. Dominate. Level zero. At last, when the young ghoul stopped flailing, Vanilith directed a command towards him to join the rest of his followers. Sluggishly, the vacant-eyed monster obeyed. Vanilith shook his head, somewhat dissatisfied at the sight of the energetic ghoul being turned into yet another witless zombie. It was just a light beating. Time would tell whether his choice was a good one. End of chapter. Chapter 14. Even the dead can fear. Kaipo watched as the witch leaned back in her chair after a monster left. All the vitality propping her up seemed to drain from her at once, and she let out her head drop into her hands. She stayed like that for a long while, while Kaipo was too afraid to speak up, lest she call her monsters back. The monster, he called it, like he wasn't one himself now. He still couldn't believe that he had died. He felt like himself, but the moment when he was devoured by the emptiness in that orb stayed with him. At that moment, the tether connecting him to life was snapped, and he knew that he'd never see the world again. Except he was still here. Some force, terrifying and inexorable, pulled him from the spaceless void and returned him, if not to life, at least to existence. Every moment passing in Silent Cottage reminded him that he'd never be a pulse of blood in his ears again. He'd never feel the warmth of his mother's embrace or the hand of his father's touching his hair. He'd never again skip stones with the other boys. He'd never go on his right of passage, his first journey outside the cradle. So I was going to take him next spring, and he'd never be able to cry and release all those horrible emotions built up inside of him. 
Even as he realized it, those same emotions began to dissolve like a sandcastle succumbing to ceaseless, rolling waves of ocean. I've always despised you children of the mountain, said the witch. The remark took Kaipo by surprise. He had shrunk back, hoping that it hadn't done anything to annoy her. See, for that very reason, you're cowards, even in death. You're afraid of what? Dying again? She laughed, but it was laced with bitterness. Scrolled away in a tiny hole in this tiny country, all but a few of your people too scared to travel beyond the walls that you believe provide shelter. What was she talking about? They were tiny. The cradle was one of the bigger settlements in Yurong. A few others were larger, and certainly the enclave was bigger, but that was the biggest city in the world. You worshipped these giant old kings and the snowy crowns, imagining that the significant of the mountains enveloping you that you are made significant. You are not. Her words were so vehement that Kaipo sucked in a breath, holding it so that he wouldn't make a noise and draw in more attention to himself. In his fear, his one emotion that didn't leave him so easily, he forgot that he didn't need to breathe. The confusion in your face tells me that you doubt me. He shook his head, but she continued, uncaring. In the West, we'd consider this entire population you rung a rounding error, but no one knows you exist. Your country isn't a smudge on a map. You hide, and because of this, you cannot be significant. Your wells are so shallow that your strongest warriors are well below level 100, yet you survive. The greatest monsters in the world are but a mere stone's throw away, and you survive. That great mystery is the only reason I waited two years. Two years to discover why you aren't all destroyed at the first whim of one of the cataclysms. Two years of research. She'd been watching Kaipo throughout the spiel, but her gaze seemed to bore through him, as if he wasn't the one that she was evaluating. The witch wasn't a dead walker like him or the other monsters. She was worse than them all. The kindness that she'd exhibited when he knocked on the door had been a but a clay mask, and now the demon underneath was cracking open its onyx eyes. Studying your language, your customs, and your people... When I finally discovered your grand secret, I laughed. That was all I could do. In this time, I might have done so much more. I might have... Raising to her feet, she lifted a jug and threw it against the far wall, where it shattered into fragments, the strength of a frail-looking arm surprising him. However, this exertion took all her strength, and she once again collapsed into a chair and began to mutter herself. Continuing to speak Kaipa's language, though he didn't think the words were meant for him any more. I failed in my revenge. I desecrate your corpse and command its soul to husk to do my bidding. I am cruel, betrothal. I must be. You, you understand me, even if no one else remains. Her voice cracked at the last words. For the next minute, the whispers continued gradually growing more and more incoherent until she finally stopped. Her eyes fell upon the open case where she'd drawn the sword from earlier, and she gave a good frightening monster. Summoning, she said. Summoning. I need to call my ghouls here before the hunters returned. Convincing herself thus, she stood up and crossed the room, opening the basket by putting up various things from within, chalk and tinderbox and some strange transparent container that held within it dust, along with various other implements. She turned, and upon finding her previous ritual circle still taking up a floor, gestured at Kaipo. Boy, 
Come here, take these rags and some water. Clean this up. Kaipo rose and did as he was told, feeling strangely eager to make himself useful. They spent the next two hours busily, the witch ordering him to perform various seemingly pointless tasks while she occupied herself mainly with drawing an intricate pattern on the floor. His main task was fetching instruments which he had arranged around the room and designated locations. At one point he stood in a particular portion of the floor for half an hour so that the witch could use him as a template, whatever that meant. She would speak to herself during this time and Kaipa was able to understand her. He thought that perhaps she grew accustomed to the language of the children of the mountain over the native tongue. He absorbed everything she said. He'd always had a good memory. Though the most interesting fact was uncovered was that she'd weakened herself recently, else she would be able to perform certain things. What these were, he wasn't sure, without the aid of the ritual circles. The nature of her weakness was strange too. From what he could piece together of the fragments, she thought of this weakness as a necessity, something like passing sickness, and once it was over she would be changed into something that wasn't entirely human. That came as a surprise to Kaipo. She wanted to become a monster. As far as he was concerned, she was already the farthest thing from a human. It was when they were beginning to finish up with the noise outside the house made the witch rise and go to her window. When she peered out through the shutters, her eyes widened, and she strode to the door, which toppled over after a slight pull with the handle, forcing her to dodge out of the way. It had been broken off its hinges earlier, but she'd apparently forgotten. Recovering quickly, she stepped out onto the door and surveyed the area outside the house. Kaipo crept up to the shutters to peer out through the cracks. He shrunk back upon seeing the crowd of twenty to thirty ghouls in front of the hut. Ghouls being the name the witch had given them, in the tongue of the children of the mountain, the word referred to the restless ghost. The witch took another step such that assembled ghouls could see her, at which point the chorus of growls echoed out from the monsters. Lifting her hand, she revealed a small silver amulet, and a force, invisible yet tangible, spread out in a wave, and they all fell silent. Hypo felt something alien brush against his own mind, sticky but fragile, a bit like a cobweb, and quickly shook it off. At this point, Kaipo realized that these were all the people of the village of Yayo. Looking at their dead faces and blank stares, a muted sensation rose up within him, and he wished that he would at least be able to feel sick. He caught a sight of his aunt, who had her head slumped to the side while an open wound in her stomach sent her intestine spilling to the ground. The only emotion that came to him upon witnessing that sight was sadness. Not horror, dread, or even misery, but a feeling of someone might experience after hearing that one of the friend's families had died. A distant unhappiness. He felt sorrier for the human Kaipo who still lived in his mind than he did for his aunt in reality. A voice broke him out of his reverie. He couldn't have, but where is he? Is it possible that he ordered them to come here and they obeyed? The witch was talking to herself, too quietly for the assembled ghouls to hear. But Kaipo was close enough. He somehow got the sense that she wouldn't be speaking if it weren't around. Perhaps she liked having someone who could listen. She'd been alone for many years, after all. Out here in the barren fields, Kaipo wished that he could at least bring himself to hate her. Perhaps, if he could, he wouldn't feel like he was betraying the memories of everyone he knew. Vanilith, did he? No, that's impossible. Ghouls cannot retain a soul, but he's remarkably intelligent, 
Perhaps that is to be expected of his, uh, mortal aspect. An indescribable emotion on her face, the witch re-entered the cavern. There is no need for the ritual right now. We shall wait a while longer and see, she said. Fully confident that the ghouls outside wouldn't become a problem, she waited. After another six hours passed, the next group of ghouls arrived. The witch, having gone to the door a second time upon hearing their approach, asked, Lokaina, is that you? Kaipo, hearing a familiar name, once again went to the shutters to get a look. Aikina was the headman's wife of Gayada, the northern village of the smaller settlement of the valley. Occasionally, Kaipo would be conscripted to run messages between the villages because he was fairly fast and could remember simple instructions. Because of this, he knew all the elders of the three headmen pretty well, along with their families, as they were the ones who usually received the messages he delivered. The ghoul spoke, had long brown hair and moved with grace, though perhaps it only seemed the way in contrasting her movements with the ungainly monsters all around her. She brought another twenty undead with her. The witch smiled and approached her. Why, so it is. It's been a long time since I saw you, Aikina. Are you doing well? Kaipo indeed recognized her as the headman's wife, though she was now a monster like the rest. She appeared much the same as she did in life, though her yellow eyes were bloodless skin and attested to her death. When Aikina saw the witch nearing her, she took an apprehensive step back. But the witch suddenly blurred, and when she reappeared, she was right in front of the female ghoul. None of that, if you please. As expected of an evolved ghoul, you resist my Gaius admirably. When she teleported, her hand was already placed on Iokina's forehead. The look on the ghoul's face showed that she was struggling, as if there was some invisible force restraining her. Just a little more. There, a direct link. Iokina sagged. This should hold you until the fourth tier, if you're lucky enough to reach it. Now then, where was I? Ah, here we are. The witch rummaged around, pulling out something from the folds of a robe that looked like a uh, spoon. But it was too large and completely flat, and the ladle area was transparent. Kaipo had never seen anything like it. It was like a smooth disk of flawless crystal that had been set into a metal frame. She held it up and peered through it at Iokina. She turned to the ghoul's head left and right, lifting her jaw and opening her mouth and examining her teeth. Pinched opened her eyelids and appeared for all the world to be inspecting her like a doctor might. As she continued her invasive examination, the smile on her face kept widening. A poto screamer, she said. Marvelous! Taking her subject by the arm, she began to lead her inside. As she did, a group of five male ghouls who had been standing by Aokina began to follow after them. The witch whirled around with ice in her eyes. You will stay, she said. As if receiving a physical blow, the ghoul staggered back, and one even crumpled to his knees. In an instant, the witch had switched her affection from cheerfulness to an immovable frigidity. A sudden shift in personality threw even Kaipo, and he tried to make himself as small as possible when she entered the house with Ayakina. When her back was turned, he ducked behind a sack filled with tubers, hoping that she would forget he existed. The witch sat Ayakina down and only a chair in the cottage and began putting out various devices and tools that Kaipo didn't recognize. Her mood seemed to improve again as she got into a certain rhythm, and she even began humming to herself. Dear Ayakina, I should congratulate you, she said in a sing-song voice. It's a rare thing to be one of the fortunates who can cultivate an ability like yours. 
No, I suppose you've been pushing your intentions onto others all your life, so perhaps even in death it comes naturally to you, hmm? Kaipo had noticed it before, but she seemed awfully familiar with Ayakina. He recalled that the witch lived in Kyada for a time when she first arrived in the valley, meaning that the two women shared a village. The hidden barbs in the witch's words made Kaipo think that the two of them didn't get along. Perhaps Ayakina had been involved in her exile. She certainly had a lot of influence in the Gaeda. Though the witch was soon exiled with the barren fields, there must have been their share of interactions before that. Kaipo, on his occasional visits there, remembered hearing a few rumors of discontent concerning the foreigner amongst the women. Though her magics were helpful, and she bore one of the most trustworthy brands, there was talk of her doing things with the men of the village. Whenever Kaipo asked what it was she did with them, none of the adults would answer. Annoyingly, he had used to wish that the adults would tell him about more interesting things like that. The only ever gave him messages for boring topics like crop harvests, storm predictions, and the movement of fauna through the lower passes. Who cared about antelopes eating all the young rockweed growths in the north? Not him, but the elders all went crazy for that sort of stuff. While Kaipo was reminiscing about his past, he was able to forget, for a moment, his own situation. He was brought back into the present by the sight of the witch beginning the procedure that he'd been readying himself for. It wasn't a ritual, like Kaipo had thought. Apparently she was giving Aikina a, uh, haircut? She was shearing it all off. Aikina's brown curls fell to the floor in clumps, forming a ring around the chair. The hair, which had once been full in life, despite being at the head of a corpse, now looked truly dead. Hayokina sat compliantly, though it seemed impossible for the undead like her to feel emotion, Kaipo being the exception. He imagined that he saw her lower lip trembling. The witch continued to hum a tune in a beautiful voice, filling the entire hut with a song. It sounded like a nursery rhyme, but not one that Kaipo had ever heard before. It was a cheery and hopeful song, but the way the witch performed it tinged the melody with a slight dissonance that set his teeth on edge. Then taking a razor, she carefully shaved off the stubble until Ayakina's head was smooth. Then she moved onto the eyebrows, not leaving the woman with a small concession. The witch interrupted a song to speak to Ayakina. Remember not to move while the surgeon is operating. Understood? Good girl. Surgeon? Putting down another razor, she picked up a tray full of tools that were similar shaped to the razor, though they assuredly served different functions. The claws of apprehension gripped Kaipo once more when he saw the wicked scalpel. It might get messy, but do be a good and remember the rules, yes? Here we go. The witch resumed her melody. For some minutes, she only made small adjustments to the patient. Probes were inserted into her mouth and nose. Tissue samples were collected. Notes were jotted down intermittently. Soon she gathered all the data as she could from such things, and the witch began a more serious operations. The first incisions were made along Ayakina's forehead, the second followed shortly, and then came a third, her quick, deft hands showing how practiced she was with such procedures. Forehead, temples, ears, jaw, mouth. When the witch began to peel Ayakina's face, Kaipo had to avert his eyes. The sight of the operation, horrifying though it was, wasn't what finally turned his stomach. The most disturbing thing was the witch who sang throughout, even at the black blood painted her hands and dripped to the floor. 
The look on her face was so inexpressibly horrible that Kaipo couldn't bear it a moment longer. Unstable. This woman was unstable. She was dangerous. He turned away, tucking his head between his legs and covering his ears so that he wouldn't have to listen to the dreadful song and the ripping of flesh. This woman was insane. End of chapter. Chapter 15. Intent. After the fight with the juvenile ghoul, Vanilith was forced to spend several minutes rounding up his followers, many of whom had no interest in the duel and instead joined with the wild undead, ineffectually battering against the stone walls of the fort that they had found, thirsting for the human blood within. By the time he'd finished gathering all he could, he was still left with less ghouls than he started with. The undead didn't directly control were torn away by the competing mob. Vanilith intended to gather the ghouls and bring them to his mistress, but he doubted that he would be able to pull many of them away here so long as there were humans who remained within the walls. Approaching the entrance, he shoved his lesser cousins out of the way. He reared back and planted a kick into the wooden door, but it was just sturdy as it appeared. Comprised of several inches of thick wood and reinforced with iron bands, it stopped his blow with ease, pushing him back. It shuddered slightly at his strike, but little else of effect was achieved. The next few attempts convinced him that he'd need more creative way if he wanted to achieve an entry. He walked in a circuit around the building, looking for any other ingress, circling at once. Nothing became immediately apparent. There was another door at the back, just as sturdy as the first, as well as some more windows reinforced with iron bars. Once he returned to the main gathering of undead, Vanilith paused. A young ghoul, a child, was climbing up the jutting stones of the building. Or rather, it was attempting to, but it was so uncoordinated that it couldn't balance on the first stones before falling to the ground, only to get back up and try again. Vanilith watched for a moment longer, then turned to expect the ghouls in his sight, a kernel of an idea forming. Even as he thought his plan, it threatened to slip away from him. It wasn't as straightforward as his ideas had been up to this point, but he wanted to challenge himself in this way. His realization that he was poor at imagining more abstract things had bothered him, and he wanted to prove to himself that he was capable of it. Focusing on the building in front of him helped to visualize his intended result, to crack the armor and feast on the meat inside. The question came down to the concept of what drove humans. He knew of hunger, even felt of hunger, but he had no way of knowing how much food they had stored inside the fortress. What else motivated them then? There was one thing that he had first-hand experience with. Fear. Vanilith had fear on his side. He thought that his might work, and if it didn't, it wouldn't be any huge loss either, though it would likely result in the loss of several of his mistress's ghouls. Wandering the crowd, Vanilith picked up the laziest undead he saw. These were the creatures who had been initially attracted by the scent of humans, but lost interest in even attempting to attack the building, and now were simply lying about, doing nothing. He assumed direct control over as many of them as he could, growling at each of them. With the apathetic monsters in tow, he once again rounded the building, stopping every so often to station them in hidden areas, behind the buildings or shrubs, places where they would watch the fort and intercept any escapees. 
He placed them far enough away so that there was little risk of them becoming distracted by the distinct gathering of undead or by the human scent inside the building. It helped that the wind was blowing in the western mountains, so most of these undead were put on the western side that they couldn't smell the humans. This was where the back of the entrance was placed, and the area only had a few ghouls who had wandered in. He gathered these undead, and when he came across them and sent them back towards the crowd in the front, these Saxet had to look clear. Once the ghouls were in position, he released them from his control, watching for a minute to ensure that they didn't start wandering. Despite him no longer controlling them, they appeared content to obey their last command. Or, at least, they were content to do absolutely nothing, which was exactly his criteria for choosing them in the first place. When he was finished, there was no blind spots left. Though the ghouls he used were sluggish things, he trusted that once they caught sight of humans, they would become as blood-crazed as any of the others. Then, keeping only Kalakai and the juvenile ghoul at his side, Vandalith returned to the crowd and began to locate all the smallest ghouls he could. This mainly ended up being the children. Some thinner adults were also included in the number. He found fifteen who fit his requirements. Then, since he could control more, he padded the rest of his numbers with a dozen of the strongest undead. Though, he left the evolved ghouls where they were since he sensed that they would be more problematic to control. That wasn't to say it wasn't possible, but more of an investment from him would be required, and he'd be able to control their schools as a result. They would do their part just fine staying at the eastern entrance. Then, Vandalith moved to the northern wall of the building, the side facing the lake, to inspect one of the windows he'd spotted earlier. The iron bars that blocked the windows looked more widely set than the others. First, he grasped the bars and pulled himself up so that he could look inside to find a bare, dusty room, where there was a table, some chairs, and a lot of empty sacks. And it stunk. Judging by the smell, this room served as an outhouse for the trapped humans. Though it was too thin a gap for him to even fit his head through, the smaller ghouls should be able to fit. He turned to the group and intended to have infiltrate the building, and he clearly as possible made sure that they understood that, once inside, they were not to move until he gave the order. Then, lifting the smaller school by the neck, he placed it in the opening and quickly caught through, landing on the other side with a muffled thump. With a growl, Vanilith told Kalakai to end the savage ghoul to continue what he'd started. Kalakai immediately seemed to understand, picking up the ghoul child who had been attempting to climb the walls earlier and bringing it to the window. The savage seemed to interpret his orders differently. He immediately started trying to cram himself into the aperture, all the while Vanilith looked on in a dull amazement. His bewilderment lasted only a short time, turning quickly to irritation. His hand came to a rest on his sword pommel. He was already regretting not killing this one earlier. Before he could do anything more drastic, Kalakai slammed the idiot with the butt of his spear and knocked him to the ground, where he looked around in confusion. Sighing internally, Vanilith ordered the stunned ghoul and his other dozen subordinates to follow him. Kalakai would take care of this part himself. He went to the western door, it was quiet to hear, and if the humans inside were going to make a break for it, they would probably choose the exit where wasn't being constantly assaulted by the undead. He commanded his followers to place themselves at the wall by the door, such that anybody looking out from the windows wouldn't be able to see them. Then, with a command from the remained silent, he climbed onto the flat roof of the building. 
Once up, he strode over to where he had left Kalakai and looked down to find the last of his small ghoul squeezing through the paws. It was a tight fit, but yet with a push from Kalakai, the infernal undead was inside. Ordering the spearmen to join the rest of the ghouls at the rear, Vanlith reviewed everything that he'd done. Would this plan work? Did he miss anything? While he'd been carrying it out, all seemed clear in his mind, but now that it was accomplished, he'd already had trouble connecting the path that he'd seemed so vivid to him in the process. This annoyed him. It wasn't like his strategy was some complex design. It was a simple plan with a few layers of redundancy, and he practically had to overheat his brain just to keep it straight. He'd reached his limit for the day, and it was time for blood. Trusting that it would work, he howled. Inside the building, his fifteen ghouls began hunting. He had briefly considered having them open the doors from the inside, but Vanilith didn't even know himself how the doors were locked, so he was unable to give them any specific orders. With his luck, it would be a key lock. Having the clumsy undead fumbling around with the doors was a good way for them to be quickly discovered by the humans and killed, as well as ensuring that the steps taken against any further breaches that's why he decided to let their instincts take control and trusted in the human propensity to panic. He released his hold over the fifteen ghouls after giving his final command, knowing that the natural drive to hunt would do the rest. A simple mental tug caused the pieces of himself that he'd placed inside each of them to return. The tiny wisps zipped back, merging with the internal whirlpool as they had never left. But this was only a temporary reunion. He howled a second time, sending his energy out again, using his fifteen free vacancies to seize some of the ghouls by the entrance and have them renew their assault, this time the focus on making as much noise as possible, hammering the door and roaring into the windows. It had to appear that there were more ghouls inside than they were really were, that the security of the building was compromised. At that moment, from the west came a cry. Vanilleth pivoted, straining his eyes to locate the source of the noise. Then he saw it. Two figures had burst out from the thicket of the trees and were charging towards the building. What? Who were they? Humans? Men. He hadn't smelled them nearby, and he'd been in the area for almost an hour. Vanilleth started moving in an instinct to recognize the threat, the sudden burst of speed blowing his dark hair back. As he ran, he realized how he hadn't noticed them. It was obvious in retrospect. They were approaching from directly downwind of him. He'd used the same strategy when placing his undead. He just hadn't thought that the enemies would take advantage of it. They could have been there the entire time without him knowing, but what was the point of charging at them now? The two men couldn't hope to defeat so many monsters. Was this an attempt to warn the humans inside? The next command came out as a bark. The juvenile ghoul and Kalakai were the target of his orders this time. The first dropped to all fours, dashing forward to intercept the two men with a surprising speed. Kalakai was slower, but still quicker on his feet than the lesser ghouls. Already, many of the undead Vanilith had planted in hiding earlier had left their spots to chase after the humans. The ones outside the door remained under his control, but his plans might have been ruined already. It all depended on whether or not the ghouls inside the building could spook the hiders into thinking their safety was compromised. But the screaming was a good sign. After another few moments, the two men charging the ghouls got close enough for Vanlith to get a better look at them. They were dressed in a similar garb as the humans in the valley wore, 
but there was a couple striking differences in their appearance. The first was their weapons. So far, almost none of the humans within the valley bore true weapons. Most of what they'd seen had been repurposed farming implements or simple sticks. Karakai and the other men that he'd seen on sentry duty were notable exceptions to this rule, as each of them had a spear. These two men didn't wield spears, but what looked like short swords, or perhaps long daggers. They waved them around in what appeared to be an attempt to draw attention to themselves. The second thing that stood out was their hats. They were large, ridiculous feathered things, bright reds and oranges waved above their heads making them look like some sort of tropical birds. These men had snuck up on him. Well, they certainly made it for obvious targets. As the young ghoul grasped in, moving in far greater clip than a dozen staggering undead who had already been chasing, the men turned in unison, veering off to the left, toward the lake. Ah, this made sense now. They were trying to draw all the ghouls away. They knew their fellows were stuck inside the building, and so they hoped to free up an avenue of escape. Admirable, but ultimately futile. His grip on the remaining ghouls was too strong for them to fall out for the bait. But, as his thought crossed his mind, Vanilith heard the sound of bolts being slammed back and the bar scraping against wood. A second later, a door burst open and three people, two women and a man, all tried to squeeze out through the opening at the same time but only succeeded in getting tangled up with one another. The man, by elbowing the other two out of his way, broke free first, managing to crawl out of his hands and knees. He wasn't even able to right himself before Vanilith jumped off the roof and onto his back, nearly snapping his spine. His dozens of slavering ghouls rushed forward, and the two women let out shrieks, immediately trying to backpedal, but they ran into more of the humans who had just caught up and struggle ensued between those who wanted to leave and those who wanted to run back inside. Vanilus drawing his sword to the end of the life of the man who stood on, he was suddenly assaulted by a feeling of intense hesitation. His vision blurred and his voice from the distant par shook him to the roots. What have you done? Fear enveloped Vanilus, turning his motions frigid. I... I was just playing... playing... the blade. He felt like he was suffocating... This wasn't supposed to happen. It had been a game. He'd been training hard for a month now and had wanted to show off a little. It was only to demonstrate of the routine of the Octavian taught him, plus an extra technique he invented himself. We need to stop the bleeding. Servant, servant, bring bandages, hurry, and you, call for a healer. He wanted an audience, and Thomas, as always, fit the bull perfectly. He was a peasant boy and not an idiot, one of the smart ones. If this went well, Vanilith had been planning on showing the routine to all his friends. Applying the pressure here, I'll tie the tourniquet. Thomas knew how to appreciate his talents, like the time Vanilith taught his aunt's pet weasel the trick and showed him. It was all the boy talked about for the next two days. Vanilith kept him around for these reactions, which were always so much more interesting than the servants. They were paid to be impressed, but not so with Thomas. With tending to the bleeding child on the ground, everyone ignored Vanilith. But when the boy had been brought away by the healer, the man who saved Thomas's life turned to find a small, shivering Vanilith behind him. Van, give me the sword. He, he came too close. It wasn't my fault. Thomas should have known that the sword techniques needed a lot of space. That was obvious. The sword, Van. 
Octavian's voice was stern, unyielding. Vanilith offered the weapon up to the swordmaster with trembling hands. Will he be okay? he asked. Octavian's sigh sounded like a bull exhaling. At least you're asking the right question. Vanilith didn't know what he meant by that. I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps not. In the best case, he'll be healing for a long time. He may never fully recover. That was his friend. He'd nearly killed his friend. Vanilith. His name was spoken made him stand at attention. Richard, despite the desire to run after the healer, to apologize to Thomas. What is a sword? A swordsman's honor. The rule of honor, Vanilith was running off his memory, saying the words Octavian made him repeat every morning before beginning to train him. He didn't even know what he was saying. What is the cardinal's sin? To strike down an unarmed opponent. Octavian waited, letting his pupil's words settle, before speaking softly. When we draw a sword, what does that signify? Intent. Intent of what? Intent to uphold our honor. Vanilith, have you upheld your honor today? Vanilith remembered. It was only a pale glance at the past, but he remembered. This was the source of his reluctance, a moral code that had been beaten into him over and over again, drills after drills after drills, the importance of honor, the disgrace awaiting those who ignore these principles. You did not intend to honor the sword today. You only sought to honor yourself. I am rescinding your right to wield the blade until you've proven to me that you can uphold the swordsman's honor. Vanilith Strix, until then, you will train with the stick. Glimpses into related fragments of his human life threatened to immobilize him. He looked down, down at the man who was squirming beneath his heel, desperately grasping for his breath. His sword lowered, inch by inch. While he held the blade, his connection to his body's past was the strongest, and his body rebelled the most against what he was trying to do. An unarmed opponent. Someone not even willing to fight. The furthest thing from a warrior that you could get. The swordsman intent mattered, but the intent of the opponent mattered almost as much. If their adversary wanted to fight even while weaponless, they brought a reckoning upon themselves. But for him to strike someone down without a weapon, or intent, that wasn't a path. That made the swordsman scum, worthy only to be hunted down to the ends of the earth by men better than him. Ideas of honor and dignity and pride surged up from within his forgotten space inside Vanilith. But then, something buried even deeper followed after, chasing on the heels of his human emotions. A sensation was something else, something greater and more hideous than all the combined notions of personal integrity. It was deeper than honor, than dignity, deeper than justice, kindness, mercy, compassion, more extreme than even love. What was this all-consuming feeling that threatened to drown out his human tenderness? Vanilith's Oh, gods above, my Vanilith, what have they done to you? Ah, he remembered now. It was hatred. His blade bit down. End of chapter. Chapter 16. Resolve. It was a prison, this building, which now resonated with cries of terror and feral roars, was a prison. Why did the settlement of four hundred people with most need a prison, and such a large one at that? A woman darted out from a corridor in front of Vanilith, chased by a small ghoul. He kicked reflexively, hitting her midriff, sending her crashing to the floor. 
The monster leapt upon her, whereupon it began to savage her viciously. Vanileth recognized the form of the ghoul child who had been climbing the wall earlier. If the woman had her wits about her, she might have fought it off, but she was senseless with terror. Leaving the weak prey for the weak predator, he moved on. The humans were scattered, disorganized, they hadn't expected a breach, only a small group of them had even made it to the rear entrance. The rest of those sequestered within the various cells of this building, his undead had split, each going their own way through the deceptively large building, chasing the screams. Thinking ahead, he barred and locked the door, leaving behind a small contingent of four ghouls to guard the exit. This place was larger than he'd seemed at first glance. This was because, though the prison was only one story tall, it was several stories deep. Currently, Vandalith was wandering one of the basement levels, following the trail of the largest gathering of humans. It was difficult, since humans had been living here for the last day, and all the scents were mixed together. But he had some practice with this. The scent he chased was slightly fresher than the others. The echoes that intermittently bounced off the walls signaled that there was a level even lower than the one he was on, and most of the remaining humans were there. They couldn't see in the dark, so it surprised him to find most of them cloistered in so deeply. Perhaps they had done so in order to escape the noise from the monsters outside the bunker. Irrational creatures, humans. Banalith was tempted to open up the front door and flood the structure with sixty fresh starved ghouls. But something held him back when he reached the entrance in question. Namely, it was greed. Besides, humans who sought to hide away and starve rather than fight posed little threat to him. They were trapped mice, waiting for the fangs of the cat. Ever since getting that man outside the building, Vanilith had felt his mind sharpening in that way it always did when bloodshed was imminent. He embraced the speeding. It was easier to fight back in chains of his memories with his consciousness as single-minded as this. He went forward alert yet unafraid of any potential danger, hoping that, through slaughter, he could wash away any lingering regrets. He came across a second set of stairs and stretch of fear thickened. His steps were silent as he descended, but each footfall was heavy. The room he entered could only be described as a dungeon. A single ghoul had beaten him here, and was currently rattling the bars of the iron prison cell, terrifying the inhabitants within. Vanilith stepped into view, the mask concealing his features. A mother, father, and a child were inside the prison cell, huddled by the wall furthest away from the ghoul. A lantern flickered in the corner, illuminating just enough for them to see by. Outside the cell door was a human corpse, freshly made from the look of it, only having it nibbled on slightly by the other ghoul. It had already killed a man, but was distracted by the still-living family nearby, leaving him to rot. Perhaps Vanilith appeared almost human in that moment. Tall and composed, his sword bared a dimly reflecting the light. Perhaps they thought that he'd come to save them. Vanilith tried the door, finding it locked. The human inside flinched. The husband called out, but he ignored him. He couldn't understand the language anyway. He couldn't reach them unless... A glint of metal on the floor drew his eye. The key ring lay in the dusty cell, just out of reach of someone outside, but still too close to the door for the humans, who'd put as much distance as possible between themselves and the undead, to want to risk retrieving it. The jailer, likely the dead man on the floor, had done his work in a hurry. 
throwing the keys into the cell after locking the door, sacrificing himself so that they may live. Keeping an eye on the family of three, he inserted his sword through the bars of the cell. The humans froze, and he'd fully captured their attention by this point. The strange, sinister being who, he was silent intelligence, perhaps they were beginning to realize, was fully committed to their death. Their concern was quickly turned to fear when they saw him hook the key ring with the point of his blade and began dragging it away. The man lurched to his feet in a desperate attempt to grab the keys, but Banaleth, sensing his hesitation, slammed the bars. Something between a roar and a growl passed his lips, and he infused the action with some of his energy. The man jumped back, turning white as a sheet, and the other two humans began waiting in turn. This gave him the freedom to finish dragging the keyring to within arm's reach, at which point he picked it up. There were around ten keys on it. This wouldn't take long. Each new key he inserted into the lock caused the sobbing to grow louder, and the man even started throwing things at him in desperation. Dirt, loose pebbles, straw. Vanilith ignored the barrage. Then, on the sixth key, the door swung open with a telling click. The two females scrambled to their feet, backing up into the corner, even as the man kept himself in front. He hefted a large rock, the only remaining weapon in the cell, with the intent to bash the ghoul's brains out. It was the smartest thing he could have done at this point, other than throwing his wife and daughter at him and trying to flee. The man had a strong frame, but he wasn't a fighter. His strategy might have even been enough to deal with a lesser ghoul, or perhaps even a normal evolved, but not Vanilith. He dashed forward, striking the man's arm with his blade and forcing him to drop his makeshift weapon. The human cried out, but the gritting his teeth against the pain. He leaned forward and charged, trying to tackle Vanilith to the floor. He sidestepped to the clumsy motion, tripping the man as he passed. A second strike to the back killed him. Quick, clean, precise. Neville increased. Agility plus two. Swordsman level increased. Strength plus one. Agility plus one. The cooling trickle of energy seeped down Vanilith's spine as he ended the man's life, making him feel a bit lighter. Good. He was concerned when he hadn't gained anything from the man outside the prison, but it seemed that all it took was one more kill to bring the more intoxicating sensation of growth. Of the two remaining humans, the smaller one fell to her knees and crawled over to the slain man, calling out the word repeatedly in a broken voice. The second, whom he presumed to be the wife, screamed, bolting for the door. He left the door open for much the same reason he left the space open during the fight with the juvenile ghoul. When enemies had an obvious escape route, they became markedly more predictable. Vanilith took no joy in what he did next. Before that memory of his human life resurfaced, he might have relished killing these two humans, as he did during the slaughter in the cave. Now, though... He saw Dawn slap like a vicious serpent, decapitating the woman as she ran past. Her body took on two stumbling steps before collapsing to the ground, her blood mixing with the dust to form a reddish-brown. He turned to the girl, who hadn't even looked up. She was shaking the body of her father. A downward strike on the cranium killed her instantly, and she collapsed atop of him. Swordsman level increased, strength plus one, dexterity plus one. He looked down at the small, lifeless body with a bitter expression. For a while, he stood, trying to pinpoint the source of this drowning sensation that threatened to dull his thoughts. Regret didn't quite hit the mark. 
nor did sadness. It took him some moments of introspection to recognize he was feeling was a lingering attachment, a weakness, a longing for a past humanity. Inside the confines of his mind, the fragmented memory of himself as a child had observed what he had done. The little boy named Banalith was screaming. Perhaps it would be easier if he could ignore it, obliterate the memory. It would be so much easier if he could. But what would be the cost? Could he ever discard that part of him? Abandon his past, even if it meant relinquishing with a few memories of his life he'd recovered. No, the history was as much a part of him as the dead form was now. There was no joy left in him to act concilling, not after the memory of Thomas, but neither would a lack of pleasure make him stop. He'd continued to kill. Those that breathed and those that didn't, he'd slay whoever or whatever he needed to, even if it meant his climb to the mountains of bodies. With each existence he brought to an end, his brittle resolve would strengthen like a steel forged in enhanced fire. For both his mistress's ambition and for his own hatred, he would never cease. Vanilith eyed Kalakai and the young ghoul. They stood before him. Kalakai dragged along the corpse of one of the human warriors. Vanilith had just left the building, leaving some ghouls behind to hunt down the few remaining humans inside. He himself chased down two more humans on the third level underground. They hadn't been worth much, and afterwards, only a few stragglers were left. He received two more notifications while underground, but one was unexpected. It had appeared even though he hadn't done anything. He was wondering the halls, and the glowing red runes simply appeared before him. The second notification, the blue runes, came only after personally killing the remaining two men. Level increased. Miasma, plus two. Swordsman level increased. Stamina, plus one. Agility, plus one. Putting this mystery aside, he was annoyed at something else. Something had been itching in the back of his mind, bothering him ever since he killed the first man outside the prison. The sensation had redoubled after the events in the dungeon, and again after the final two kills. Though it might not have seemed related to his human memories, he knew that this feeling was independent of that. The prickling that now troubled him was more of a physical phenomenon than a mental one. Whatever he did, he couldn't locate its source. And now, he found that his two younger subordinates had only been able to hunt down one of the two human warriors. The juvenile ghoul had several injuries to accompany those given by Vanilith. These recent ones were inflicted by the warrior's blade, and by the looks of it, it had been a close fight. The ghoul could certainly have been dead if it had been human. He might have even lost if it had not been for Kalakai, who came in for the assist at the end. Judging by the hole in the man's chest and the fact that the spear was painted red, Vanilith wished that they could communicate. He needed to know more, and hated having to go through their game of charades to discover simple information. Had one of the warriors distracted for the other one, was the second man wounded? How strong were they? How fast? They could track the man, but was it worth it to divert it from the task to chase a single individual? There was no telling how long that would take. Wait. A new question came to his mind. Could these be the hunters that his mistress had mentioned? She wouldn't be afraid of just two men, but if these were scouts for a larger force. That realization decided his course of action. They would return. With a sense of urgency, Vanilith blocked the incessant itching and began to process of gathering the horde once more. 
By using the same method as before, Vanilith was able to accommodate a following of 87 ghouls, was maxed out personally controlling 28 ghouls. The other 59 were swept up in the crowd. He made sure to place ghouls in key positions, keeping them visible so that they could herd the others. He left behind 30 to 40 ghouls. This wasn't by choice, but rather because these remaining undead were simply too resistant to persuasion. Instead of trying to wrangle them, he had the ghouls he did control carry some of the more intact bodies back with them, with the idea that the necromancer could add them to her forces. The dead stopped rising ever since the grand ritual she'd been performing came to an end. So, an hour later, they marched into what would be the future camp. Vanilith's pace slowed and eventually came to a halt. Something was amiss. He'd sent two groups of ghouls from the other village ahead, but they weren't anywhere to be seen. Had they disobeyed him? No. He could smell the undead. They'd been here recently, or... He took another step and nearly planted his foot into a ghoul lying prone in the grass. Looking around, told Venilith that there were many more nearby, likewise situated. So his ghouls did make it. But why were they... The door to the hut opened, and the necromancer stepped out. She looked as if she'd had finished some messy task, and was wiping her hands on a stained cloth. What a gift you've brought me! She exclaimed, and a smile bloomed on her face as she observed the assembled undead. Before she came any closer, a wave of unrest swept through the ghouls behind Vanilith. He tensed, sensing their hostility, and let out a warning growl. Though he had no direct control over most of those undead, he was still able to transmit his will through his voice. Many calmed down, though the majority didn't. The necromancer didn't let it disturb her, however, and after lifting a silver talisman out from her hidden pocket and her robes, she spoke a word, and a pulse of invisible energy flew forth, quickly passing through the ranks of the ghouls. Vanilith felt something like a feather brushing against his mind. It vanished as quickly as he noticed it, but not without managing to exacerbate the itching in his brain that he had finally become able to ignore. Though the pulse of energy barely affected him, all the ghouls that he'd brought with him fell silent suddenly, as if they'd fallen asleep, prompting Vanilith to turn around and make sure that they hadn't all died. It was rather the opposite, however. The undead stood alert and upright, as if waiting for orders. Well, all except one. The juvenile ghoul to his left was growling, his eyes narrowing in hostility to the woman. Vanilith lifted his hand, intending to knock some sense into the subordinate, but he was too slow for what came next. His mistress shifted her foot slightly and then sprung forward like a predator, almost too quickly for his eyes to track. When the dust had settled, she had one foot placed on the ghoul's chest and her hand held a wickedly sharp knife, which she pressed under his jaw. Vanilith had no doubt that a single motion would be all she needed to pierce his brain. He was impressed. Having had no idea that she was such a capable warrior, the movements that she had just displayed outshone even his own performance. He'd been thinking that she was a pure spellcaster, but somehow he wasn't surprised to find that she had other talents. Serving her had been a good decision after all. He couldn't help but think back to the time he spent in her cottage. What if he'd hadn't decided to obey her? She appeared weakened after her ritual, but if it had been a ploy... Were he alive, he might have broken out in a cold sweat. For a moment, the necromancer simply inspected the young ghoul, 
Then, while high-holding the same talisman as before, which Vanellith now saw was a round silver amulet with three spikes around the perimeter, she placed a palm on his forehead. The ghoul's pale yellow eyes widened in fright. He truly was unique amongst the undead Vanellith had met. Even amongst the evolved, few were capable of fear. Nothing changed, even after she held the amulet to him for several seconds. Without a word, she put the device away and took out another. This time, she didn't seem to be an arcade implement. It was a simple magnifying glass. Wait, what was a magnifying glass? Once again, Vanellith found himself suffering the inconvenience of having only a cursory knowledge of things. Didn't they, uh, make objects larger? The necromancer tilted her head as if seeing something through the lens that surprised her. She said, You aren't merely an evolved eye. Convulsing, she dropped the knife. Vanellith stepped forward, blade ready in hand. But whatever had happened to her, it hadn't been a physical attack. The necromancer seemed to fold in on herself. She lowered to the ground. When she clutched the fabric of her robes, there was whitened knuckles while her chest heaved with exertion. Juvenile moved to get up, but Vanellith was on him within a second, slamming him back into the ground with his hand on his throat. Then he growled, making it very clear to the monster what would happen to him if he caused this, or if he tried anything, or if he annoyed either of them. After seeing the compliance in his eyes, Vanellith released him and kept an eye out for any strange actions on his part. He didn't trust a ghoul like he trusted Kanakai, despite them sharing the same connection with him. His mistress began coughing and she turned in a direction. Don't! Don't mind me. It's, it's my, my fault. I drew on Mal when I should have been preserving my strength. The conversion to Echo isn't an easy, easy one. She hacked, spitting up something foul into the grass. Afterwards, she seemed to relax some. Though he had no idea what she was talking about, it seemed that she would recover. As he waited, he tried to get his forces to lay down like the others. He realized why all the other ghouls were prone. Tall grass, though dead and beginning to droop, was the perfect cover for the forces to hide in. Ghouls could sit and wait for days without complaint of need be, unbothered by the cold and the damp. But when Vanellith began ordering them around, he learned that he no longer listened to him. Not even the ones under his direct control heeded his commands anymore, save for Kalakai and the idiot. Calling back his twenty-eight portions of energy, he considered this change. It's obvious that it had something to do with what the necromancer had done. He heard a noise and turned to see her gesturing to him. She had been watching him from the past minute, and though she might not have known exactly what he was trying to do, some things were obvious. He approached, and she held out a talisman she'd used earlier. Placed your hand on its surface, she whispered, her voice still hoarse. He did, and she muttered a word. Then he felt a strange, freezing sensation. When she sighed, she pulled his hand away from it and felt like his hand left a layer of skin behind, though it was truthfully untouched. They will obey you now, he growled, and all ninety ghouls as one mass fell prone. Whatever this amulet was, it was clearly far more effective than his simple attempts to command the undead so far. It took another few minutes of rearranging, but he eventually got them to understand that they were hiding, and a cursory glance over the plains revealed the bare and empty field. An observer would have no idea what one hundred ghouls lay in wait here. Vanellith stooped, lifting the body that Kalakai had carried back here with him, and dumped it in front of the necromancer. She mostly recovered by this point and was sitting cross-legged, her eyes closed. 
regulating her breathing. When she looked up, the first thing she saw was a corpse of the warrior that Kanakai had killed. Her eyes immediately narrow. Clearly, she recognized the body. Did you kill this man? Vanilith gestured to Kanakai, who stood by like a wraith. She observed the silent ghoul for a moment before turning back to Vanilith. Where was he when you found him, this man, I mean? She said, indicating to the body. He pointed back in the direction of the lakeside village. Where there are any others? He held up a finger to show that there was another one. Did you kill him? He shook his head. He escaped. He nodded. So one got away. This man here is an orange feather. He was a scout. There was still the information gathering stage then. When the escapee returns to the main force, he will likely inform them what we organized rather than a simple mob of mindless creatures. That's certainly not ideal, but not disastrous either. Will you follow back here? Banalith paused. He considered that another human staying downwind might be able to track them undetected, but the wind had shifted multiple times in the return journey. He felt it unlikely that a human could evade the noses of an entire company of ghouls, so he shook his head. I see. She looked up to the sky and through the veil of clouds, dim stars twinkled. They likely took the southern paths around the valley, which means they were in the clear here for the time being. We have at least all night to prepare. They wouldn't dare begin their assault until daybreak at the earliest, or perhaps they won't attack at all, and flee to the enclave. No, Arimo isn't the type. He will attack, and when he does, it'll be decisive, unless we attack first. Was this the moment that she was finally going to reveal her plans? Contrary to his expectations, his mistress gestured towards Kalakai and the juvenile, who lay amongst the rest of the ghouls, clearly hoping to be ignored. But first, I must know. I have these ghouls been gifted, she said, articulating the word, with peon brands. End of chapter. Chapter 17. What is a brand? Part 1. His mistress wasn't saying anything. She'd been that way for a long time, contemplating in stony silence. Apparently, the forceful submission of the two ghouls had granted both the juvenile ghoul and Galakai brands of their own, much like the ones Vanilith Rezi bore on his forehead. The woman had briefly spoke of brands when they met during the ritual, but Vanilith still didn't know what they meant to bear one. The necromancer finally exhaled through her nose, but she didn't look too exasperated. Rather, there was a faint smile on her face. Let's go inside. You might as well bring those two peons of yours as well. I can spare an hour or two to act as a teacher. Vanilith let out a questioning growl and gestured towards the body of the hunter. Don't worry about the hunters. I know where they're camping. We won't strike until the darkest hour of the night, which leaves us for some time yet. Um, but do bring that body inside my cabin, if you please. Complying with her orders, the three undead entered the cottage, accidentally knocking over the unattached door which someone had propped up against the frame. Then they dropped the hunter's corpse in the clear space of the floor. It stunk, but the necromancer didn't seem to mind, surrounded by something that she was dead already. Banalith's steps paused upon realizing that there was already two people inside, though he wasn't sure if the other two counted as people. One was Kaipo, the boy whose spirit he temporarily shouted, and was resurrected under the strange circumstances. The other? Well, Vanilith had no idea who she was. The ghoul was slumped against the back wall in a daze. 
It was a familiar scent about her, but it was masked by blood and a thick chemical aroma, making it unbeable to place. She was a small in stature and wore a faded dress that was stained black with her blood. Her head was completely shaved, and something alarming had happened to her face. It appeared offset. A line of stitches framed her features like some sort of macabre painting, and many more incisions had been made in specific areas, such as her mouth, eyes, nose, and cranium. These cuts were sewn shut, but it was clear that they were far from healed. As dark fluid still seeped out, run ran rivulets down the creases of her skin. Finally, a single seam ran down the center of her face, bisecting both halves. Some of the stitchwork along this line hadn't even been torn, which was what caused her skewered features, placing the left half of the face lower than the right. She looked like the patchwork doll made by a lunatic. Iokina, haven't I told you not to play with the stitches? tuttered the necromancer approaching the woman, pulling the sewing kit out and a needle. You'll never set correctly if you keep ignoring my instructions. Iokina weakly lifted her arms as if she warded off the advance of the woman, but it was futile. After some tugging and pulling and a few more stitches, her face was back more or less into position. At this point, Vanleth was able to draw the connection between the faint scent and her appearance. This was the enemy commander from the second village, the female ghoul. What on earth had she done to the anger to mistress of this far? Now sit quietly and don't fiddle. She said a few more words in a language Vandalith didn't understand, before turning to smile at the guests. Now then, let us get down to business. But there is a bit of a problem. I can't have nameless ghouls with brands wandering about. What should I call you three? Vandalith already knew two out of the three of their names, and he didn't much care about the juvenile. That was good enough for him, but he couldn't exactly communicate his knowledge. She didn't understand his growls like the other undead did. His mistress already knew his name. She was the one who told him that it was in the first place, even if she hadn't been speaking to him at the time. Him aside, he was sure that whatever names she chose for these other two would be fitting, even if they weren't their original ones. The necromancer had been bearing on someone of a high pedigree, so she would surely pick distinguished titles for the first subordinates. Hmm... Let's start with the old spearfellow, then. Kalakai, what would his new name be? How does Wrinklebeard sound, she mused. The ensuing hush was so silent that you could hear a pin drop. No, that's just layering the old aspect, she continued. He's so quiet, so... Mutebeard? Oh, Spearbeard. Now that's a memorable name. Memorable was one way to put it, as she continued to list out possibilities... Vanilith staggered, blow after blow. The impacts resounded against his formerly implicatable psyche. He might never recover from this terrible shock. His mistress had absolutely no naming sense. Luckily, Galagai was saved from an embarrassing future by a small voice that left up the corner of the room. His mistress turned regarding Kaipo for a moment. The boy flinched at her stare, but when she asked a question in his language, he responded a bit more sure of himself. They carried on for another minute before she turned back to the trio. She had a slightly miffed expression on her face. Very well. The boy tells me that this man is actually Kalakai, the warrior protector of Yayo. 
this other little savage is Anamu, who isn't really known for much of anything. Those are the names you'll be going by from now on, even though they're boring. Clear? Neither of them reacted. She sighed, repeating her words in their language, after which the two girls finally nodded. She turned back to Vanilith. As soon as this ordeal is over, I shall make sure that learning Dalkash is put in the itinerary for all my undead, or perhaps it will be easier for them to keep speaking Yararanek. Now I'm thinking of it, I can see it being tactical advantage for them to speak such an obscure language. Ghoul, I'll have to ask you to learn their tongue, I'm afraid. He nodded, somewhat hesitant, not knowing what learning a new language would entail, or who would teach it to him for that matter. Now then, what are we going to do about your name? What did she mean? He would use Vanilith, of course. She was the one who told him what it was in the first place. Though now that he thought about it, she'd never called him that to his face. He had always just been ghoul. Why was that? The necromancer wandered over to the tiny kitchen, struck spark on the flint, and got a small fire going. Then she put a kettle of water on the boil and rummaged through the cabinet. As she did all of these tasks, she began thinking aloud. I think it has to be some name with an impact. Dread something. All something to do with your mask. The dread mask. Lath. No. It sounds like the mask is the one in charge. It needs to be something indicative of your personality. You have a personality, yes? Nalath. His voice, if it could be called that, was struggling to control. His throat didn't feel able to form the word he wanted to make. It was built all wrong, and the sounds came out like a dying rasp. Tensing, his mistress half-turned, revealing a mug that she'd begun to fill with water. Pardon? Man, alas! Crash! Fragments of pottery littered the ground, some of them bloodied. She'd squeezed so tightly that the ceramic that she had shattered it. For a long time, neither of them spoke. Vanilith couldn't read the frozen mask of her face. Why? He did not speak. I'm asking you, why? You take his body, face and blade, and now you want even his name. Why? He shook his head. It's who he was. Speaking calmly, she said, Do you doubt that you are a thief? A dead body cannot retain an original soul. Your body's filament is broken. Once that happens, the soul-body connection can never be re-established. Not with that soul or any soul that was once human. You are not Vanilith. Her breath quickened, and her words began to fly out more quickly, one after the other. You are an amalgam of spirit fragments, gathered and forced into his empty vessel through the death-binding ritual. This ritual supplied you, the amalgam, with ichor and miasma. Spirit fragments, ichor and miasma combined within this vessel and created an embryotic necrocell. That's what you are. In order to better match this body, you have taken on aspects of its previous owner. Aspects. Perhaps you sense things. Perhaps you have memories that only the previous owner of the body could have known. If so, they aren't true memories. But prepare for all spirit fragments that merge with your necrosoul. You are not Vanilith Strix. The necromancer's voice, slow and clear at the start, lacked all the calm by the end. She was shaking, as if just noticing the bloody fragments of the pottery that she had still clenched in her fist. She put them down on the counter and took out a rag, and began trying to clean her hand. It took rather like she was trying to rip apart the cloth. 
You were never meant to exist. Your body is Vanilith's. His was one body that I would not dishonor. Yet, as always, insanity has its own designs. She said bitterly, My will has always been second to my circumstances, it seems, to these vast cosmic forces that operate in unknowable principles. She spoke of insanity as if it was sentient, as if something else had caused all of this. But Vanilus she simply didn't see was in front of her. She didn't know what he had known in the eye of the maelstrom, that he had heard her call and pierced the impregnable wall, entering the nun, that place where even the screams of the gods are silenced. She didn't know that he had long ago branded himself with the eternal mark of hatred, long before receiving his corporeal twin on his forehead. He knew that he was Vanilith. It wasn't something that he could ever explain, not with his memories and without a true voice, but he wouldn't do anything less. He would not. Vanilith, he said, his growl now clearly audible. His shoulders tensed, an inexplicable heavy sensation pervaded the room. Anyone else demanding this of me, and I would kill them, she said. Living or dead, it matters not. Anyone else, I would have ended them where they stood. He waited for her to come to a point. As they stood in silence, something seemed to flicker in his mistress's eyes. The flicker turned to a shiver, a tremor that ran its course from the top of her head down to her toes. Then her posture softened relaxed. She looked up, and Vanilith was greatly taken aback by the sight of her changed face. Instead of anger he expected, her eyes were bright once more, an easy smile played on her lips. Very well, you stubborn mule. Vanilith, that shall be your name. Vanilith, Kalakai, Anamu. Rather heavy on the vowels, you three. Hmm? He blinked. The transition had been jarring. She'd switched dispositions more rapidly than seemed natural. Were humans normally like this? He remembered very little of his life, but he somehow doubted it. Enough with the naming, then, on two other matters. Oh, but Vanilith, you're hurt. Looking down at his body, he realized what she meant. He'd nearly forgotten about the torn into by a pack of ghouls he fought, the ones led by Iokina. He'd managed to bind his own wounds with the simple bandages afterwards. It was a quick job, and he'd done more of the aesthetics and functionality rather than because the injuries bothered him. As she untied the cloth and inspected him, she tutted. If you're the pilot of this body, Vanilith, you cannot be getting it so injured. Ghouls never heal. It's dreadful, really. A slow descent into decay and destruction is a lot for your undead to flesh. Unless you evolve to such a stage that it isn't a worry. That's without intervention from a necromancer like me, of course. Evolving is one time fixed too, but you cannot count on something as rare as that, even if you are branded. I can heal you this time, but if I ever see this body in such a state again, well, you never know, I might just decide to lock you up in a crypt. Her words were punctuated by a giggle, that the threat behind them felt tangible. Vanilith promised himself that he would never got injured again, he'd do a really good job of hiding it. The necromancer began to rub some smelly powder that she dug out of a jar onto Vanilith's skin. His injuries began to burn as she attended to them. But like most undead, physical pain was a sensation of the body and completely failed to disturb the island of his mind. You have received status effect, regenerating, temporary. Well, she said as she worked, I think it's time I told you of those brands of yours mean. Hm, 
You probably can't even read the words, can you? Words? Can you read those glowing symbols that appear sometimes? He shook his head. Hmm, I see. The Institute never conducted undead literacy tests. None that I knew of, anyway. This may as well be an area of study that even they were unable to broach. What language would a ghoul's band be in, I wonder? See, Vanilith, the script you see is something decided by your brand. Normally, the language is based on the religion or birthplace, whichever your brand deems the best suited to you. This means that if you were born and lived in here in Yerang all your life, you would have a spirit in Vyaranese. However, if you were born in Yerang and moved to, say, Ostros, impossible unless you knew a secret route, of course, then you would have a chance of the script being in either Yaranese or Dalkesh. Common sense, yes. If a brand is a gift from a god, then it should at least do this much. But there is so much that they can miss. For instance, what if your mother's first language was Golpar, and she raised you to speak it more fluently than Dalkesh, though you grew up in Ostris? Well, the brand will usually give you Dalkesh script, even if you can't read it. Fascinating, yes? We will have to work on that voice of yours moving forward. Fine, then. What I mean to say is that my best guess is that the script you're seeing is Dalkesh, or High Dalkesh, since your body is from Ostros. But perhaps it is Yaranese, or since you are classified as a monster, your script may not be a script at all, but some other method of communication. No one knows how the monstrous bandit interact with this status, after all. Pick the grass, perhaps. Is this the case for you? She stopped her excited babble for a brief moment, awaiting the response. Vanilith shook his head once more, hoping that she would return to the more relevant topic. No? Ah, so it's just script, then. When we have time, we'll have to narrow down which language it is. This was going to be a long night. End of chapter. Chapter 18. What is a brand? Part 2. The first thing you must understand about your brand is how important it is that it remains a secret. It would be immensely dangerous for us should it get out that a newborn monster with a brand walks the surface of Aegon once more. This condition applies to your fellow ghouls too. We'll take measures to hide the marks. The symbols aren't too clear yet, but as you three increase in strength, it'll become harder to conceal them. Vanilith tilted his head. What did she mean, harder? Would the brands grow in size or something? The reason I must take these steps is because, for the past several millennia, no monsters have received a brand, not a single one. Do you understand? Not really, no. A brand is synonymous with potential. For civilized races, it means that we may choose a class and set out on a path, obtaining strength, skills, and knowledge by honing ourselves through training and combat. For monsters... Well, no one truly knows, but records indicate that it was uh, something similar. You do not have classes, but the brands probably do something to interfere with your evolutions. Evolving is a natural process for all monsters, such as your evolution from a lesser ghoul into a ghoul. The most only ever evolve once or twice, rarely will one evolve three times. Four evolutions and the monster gets a bounty worth a village put on its head. Five evolutions and ample justification for a battalion to be dispatched. But here are a few records of wild monsters evolving past that. Branded monsters are a very different story. 
they might have been able to evolve up to six or seven times, perhaps even more, as ancient writings indicate their changes in appearance over the course of the decades and centuries. You might wonder, why would brands appear now, when monsters haven't received them for thousands of years? I've given them much thought since learning that you bore one, Vanilith. My hypothesis is simple. Undead are a new breed of monster. They simply haven't appeared on Iagon before, and the system that grants us the brand simply hasn't had time to catch up. As such, of course, our action is clear. We will create as many branded undead as possible before the world realizes its mistake and reneges on its gift, which leads us to the main topic of discussion. How does one gain a brand? Other than praying to Father Mountain every day, Lay nodded, feats. Orimo and his daughter had yet to fall asleep. Ever since the resolution of the fight with the branded monstrosity, Lay had kept them both up, asking question after question, even though her eyes were red and her head kept nodding, drifting to her knees as if it were too much for a chore to stay upright. She was trying to monopolize her remaining time with her father, but Oribo didn't mind. After tomorrow, they might never see each other again. A single night of missed sleep wouldn't impact her hunter too badly. His stamina stat was too high for that. Perhaps because Lei was unwilling to acknowledge the fact that she would be with him for much longer, her questions had shifted towards less personal subjects. This was easier for Arimo to talk about anyway. In hindsight, his history of being so tightly lipped towards his daughter on the nature of Brand's now is now foolish. Not knowing something wasn't the same as being protected, and he may not be around much longer. Feats? she asked. Yes, exploits. Well, there's also a matter of suitability. I've known a man who brought down a griffin single-handedly and didn't get a brand, while another man simply pulled a sheep out where it was stuck in a cleft. He exerted himself so greatly that he received one right away. A sheep? she repeated, giggling. Yes, strange, isn't it? Why does Father Mountain choose people so randomly, Papa? It's hard to say, but he who towers above has his reasons, I'm sure. Lay was silent for a moment, thinking, Shouldn't he want more branded instead of less? We'd be stronger then, right? Hmm, yes, perhaps we'd be stronger if there were more of us, but if that were so, there would be a greater risk of corruption. Corruption? Orimo frowned. Yes, corruption. Strength breeds such things. Remember this, Lay. It is only through knowing ourselves, though judging all of our actions by moral standards, that we avoid becoming twisted and corrupt. Even the best of us are susceptible. But I'm not branded. How would I become corrupt? You aren't branded, but the rule doesn't apply only to people like me. For instance, would you say that Kalakai is weak? Of course not. Right. Even though our warrior protector isn't branded, in the prime of his life, he would have been difficult for even me to defeat. Perhaps it would have been impossible. A brand is a blessing, but it isn't the only path to strength. Kalakai is a good example. Even in his strength, he was never arrogant or boastful, but remained a silent guardian. If I were to select an attitude I think all branded should aspire to, I would point to him. They were both silent for a moment, Lei couldn't help but think back to the night of Kalakai's walking corpse, advancing on the line of protectors back in the cave. That had been the final straw. Nobody wanted to fight against him, the old man who had protected them for so long as anyone could remember. Do you think I could get as strong as Kalakai? Yes, 
said Orimo firmly. We all have wells, each and every creature of the world, and no two are the same, said the necromancer. They have different widths and depths, they are made of different materials, some are deep but hold no water, while some are shallow and overflowing. She had a finished explaining the concept of levels. Apparently each time Vanilla saw runes appear, it meant that he increased the level and gained the corresponding stat increase. This made sense to him. He'd already equated the glowing symbols to an increase in his strength. All she'd done was confirm this for him. But afterwards, she began this new explanation, saying that there was more to strength than simply accumulating levels. This well is your soul. The metaphor was decidedly not helping Vanilith understand what she was talking about, and the prickling sensation in his head wasn't helping him any. Once again, he was having to come face to face with a lack of imagination. He did his best, but he knew that he didn't own a well, and he certainly didn't keep his soul in one. Though some start deeper than others, it is how you use that depth that matters. Sitting on your laurels and enjoying the water you draw up will last you a while in good times. If a drought strikes, you will die of thirst. Those who dug their wells deeper used what they were given. The water they drew up let them wash away the sweat and slake their burning thirst, throwing themselves back into the arduous task of digging. These are the chosen. These are the ones who are recognized and received brands. Perhaps Banalus' dull stare communicated something to her, as she gave a polite cough and changed angles. This is how my master taught me, and how his master taught him. Simply put, you can think of the depth of your well as your potential. Those who are fortunate, born with the stars aligned, or simply had good parents, will have a higher potential, a deeper well, than those with less fortunate. You can think of this as potential, most simply, as a number of levels that you are able to accrue. You could be level 5 with 30 levels of potential, but you can't be level 5 with 4 levels of potential. Once your well is filled, you can no longer add more water. It will overflow. So one day this would stop. Vanlith would no longer receive levels, no matter how much he fought and killed. She went on, But you can deepen it. The act of increasing one's potential is the one of the least understood processes in the world. At least it is as far as the mechanism behind it works but there are five ways that we know that go about doing it. The first three methods do not give you levels themselves, they only increase your future capacity for levels. The first, and simplest, is to develop your body. This method works for everybody, but it is a terrible return on investment. Some warriors train for years and are only able to increase their level potential once or twice, though others can increase it much more than that. The second is to develop your mind. The accumulated knowledge, becoming mentally strong, anything that improves your mental faculties will count. This method is better than the first, but only to a point. Simply put, there's a ceiling on that what we call mortal intelligence. A prodigy might meditate every day and increase his potential by dozens of levels worth, but if he relies on this alone, he will die of thirst like the rest. The third is similar to the second, though it is still considered controversial in many parts of the world. It has been empirically proven by the Institute. It involves experiencing strong emotion. When put through extreme duress, a person can increase their potential. The rest run like this. Out of 100 involuntary subjects, 58 branded increased their potential after being tortured for one week. 
Out of those 58, 7 increase the potential by over 40 levels, or over 2 tiers. The torture has to inflict true mental and physical trauma. There was a second test where the subjects opted in, choosing to subject themselves to all sorts of suffering. This one had much worse results. Other types of emotion can also increase potential, but it's harder to test for those in a controlled study. So, if he wished to increase his potential, he should get tortured, but he couldn't want to get tortured. How strange. The last two methods are unique in what they increase potential while simultaneously increasing your level to match. You can think of them as digging your well and filling it with water at the same time. The fourth is cultivation of the body. This is different than simply training, though for some rare few it is effectively the same. This is the cultivation of mal, pix, or in our case, echo. These are the essences of the body and the universal forces that sustain life itself. The fifth and final method is through the cultivation of magic. The mind, again, plays a role here. For others, the energy that fuels magic is known as mist or vapor. For us, it's miasma. Training the usage of this energy will achieve expansion of your potential. If you have any skills that allow you to use miasma, training them is key. It was a lot to take in, but the necromancer didn't even pause, moving on to the next subject in the same breath. Now, the brands themselves. Arimo studied his daughter for several long moments. It had been an innocuous question. How many branded were there in Yerong? This was a difficult subject to broach, as it involved some of what was, by the chief's law, forbidden knowledge. He needed to leave out certain portions of his explanations, but Alay was the sort of girl that would immediately notice this sort of thing. He didn't have much of a choice in the matter, however, thanks to the oath he took a month after receiving his own brand. In Yerung, there are a little over 100 branded. At least that was the number I last checked, he began. The Enclave has all the records, but there's more to it than just that. What does that mean? You know the types of brands, Lay? Yeah, you've got temperance, Papa. I know that woman who came here just last spring to visit had patience. Other than that, there is diligence, humility, kindness, charity, and chastity, right? Orimo chewed on his cheek and nodded along. Yes. I suppose I'm not surprised you remember that woman, but those seven brands aren't all of them. Huh? The monsters you saw. What did his brand look like? Um, her eyes widened. It was red. It was red, wasn't it, Papa? It isn't that because it was a monster? Do they get red brands? He shook his head. No, at least not entirely. I don't find it surprising for a monster to be given a dark brand, but us humans can get them too. Lay's mouth fell open. This was starting to sound an awful lot like blasphemy. At the same time, if Orimo was the one saying it, it had to be true. Orimo nodded as he thought. He was unable to touch the truly forbidden part of this knowledge, and he truly hoped that his daughter wouldn't ask more questions once he explained the next part. It's rare, he continued. A dark brand is very similar to a true brand, but it doesn't promote any sort of virtue. Rather, it's the opposite. Why? Yes, Father Mountain gives us the brands as well. You must understand, a brand is seen as an unearthing of someone's true personality. In that way, we perceive these dark brands as a warning. It isn't a curse or a blessing, but a simple warning. Remember that, in this way, Father Mountain allows us to be on guard against evil. Lei fell silent. She sensed gaps in this argument. Why give someone evil the sort of power? 
Why had she never heard of anyone with those sorts of brands? Somehow she sensed that she couldn't speak up about her misgivings. Something in the aura exuded by her father stopped her. Lay, if you ever see someone with a dark brand, run and tell the nearest true banded. Understand. Fourteen brands, said the necromancer. That's the total number of different types. They're all functionally the same, though. Each one has a different effect on the mental state. Here divided into two categories, seven virtues and seven sins. A virtuous brand, like Karakai's humility, is one of the best free passes in the world. It is a key that opens doors, granted by the branded trust and the respect in any civilized country on the planet. Well, except for one, Nyozpot is so far from here that it really doesn't matter. A sinful brand, such as Anamu's brand of gluttony, is often the opposite. In my homeland, we treat it all branded the same, at least on paper. Here in Yurang, I imagine sinful branded or persecuted, and possibly even killed in secret. That sounded to Vandalus like a good way to halve your fighting force. For the most part, this doesn't apply to you. Even with the brand of humility, Karakai is still a monster. He won't be welcomed by any civilization on the planet, even by Yospet unless it's as a slave. Papa, there's something else. Hmm? What's that? replied Orimo. Lei's eyebrows were drawn together in concentration as she fiddled with the thumbs. I'm not sure about it, but I can't think of what else it could be. What are you talking about, Lei? That monster, the one with the dark brand. He? It, not a he. Right. It had, um, two colors on his forehead. What do you mean by that? There was a big red brand, a dark brand, and it was very bright, but in the center I thought I saw something else. It was blue, and it looked like a lot like a true brand, like patience, and the same as the visitor had. Her words trailed off into silence. Arimo was confused at first, but eventually hid a wry smile. She had been worried about this. Wrapping an arm around the daughter's shoulders, he spoke calmly. Lay, that was a terrifying night for you. For everyone, I understand. But this rule holds since the time of memorial. Everyone has a limit of one brand. One bestowment, a second is simply impossible. Even if it happened, I imagine the brand would be severely handicapped. You were just seeing things. What do you mean, handicapped? She said, hiding the secret hurt she felt from the frank dismissal. Since it cannot happen, I can't be too sure. But since you're asking me to guess anyway, I judge that the potential would be very low. Think about it. Its soul would be divided in two competing paths. It would need to accomplish impossible feats at once it reached a third tier to progress to even a single one level. No, perhaps the worst part would be the temperament. It would be very unstable. Like its personality. How would that affect a monster? You know that brands amplify certain traits. If this one had a true and a dark brand, those two very divergent features, good and evil combined, I imagine that if it ever happened, it would go completely mad once it reached the third tier. No, if a creature like that somehow did exist, it would be a bigger threat than any of us. Vanilith couldn't help but frown. That's the true effect of the Peon brand, said his mistress. They aren't inherently bad. Granting one is a bit like chopping your own leg off for a friend to run an extra mile. You've combined your potential with the potential of those two ghouls. Then you took the combined amount and split it into thirds. If their wells had the same amount of capacity as you to begin with, then that's fine. Your current potential remains the same. 
But if they didn't, then that deep well that should have been yours alone has been filled in and replaced by a shallower one. What's even worse is that this will affect every move you take along going forward. This was beginning to sound like a terrible mistake that he had made. This wasn't a one-time change. These ghouls are now in lockstep with yours. For instance, if Anamu fails to increase his potential in the future and reaches his limit of levels, he will begin to sap the potential of you made for yourself, digging out his well and filling yours in. It will also hinder Kalakai. What you've unwittingly done is something that even a powerful branded would be hesitant to do, and if he did, it would only be after finding a very suitable candidate, one with heaps of talent. Do you understand? Yes, Vanilith understood perfectly. He split his potential into a fraction of what it once was. Turning to the two ghouls, he glowered. Anamu shrunk back, hiding halfway behind Kalakai. But there is hope, she continued. So as long as they push themselves, digging their wells deep in their own merits, they won't hold you back. It's a bit of a stretch to say that they could have even helped you, but it is theoretically possible. That's up to them, however, and if they die, their potential remains lost to you. It would be a struggle to regain it. Manlu fingers tensed, wishing to grasp the hilt of his sword. He wanted to swing his blade to hit something. The itching in his head didn't help. It had yet to abate, and at this point he was beginning to wonder if there was live spiders crawling through his skull. Then the necromancer spoke softly, revealing a small hope. However, there is one method of reverting this change and regaining your original well. Vanilith raised his head. She smiled at his look of interest, which it seemed she could sense even through the wooden mask. But I don't think I'll tell you just yet, she tittered. It's irreversible once done, you see, and it's, I'm interested in seeing where this little trio goes. Vanilla stood up abruptly, chair falling to the floor as his hand reached for his hilt. He heard a yelp as Kaipo ran away, and he sensed Kalakai and Ranamu shifting behind him, though wherever it was to fight or run, he didn't know or care. He paused just before unsheathing his sword at the sight of the unperturbed smile on the woman's lips. He couldn't help but remember the movements earlier today when she'd pinned Anamu to the ground. It had been effortless for her, even though it had backfired later and she'd been seized by a fit. He doubted that he could put up much of more resistance than Anamu had. He couldn't threaten her. No, what she was doing right now was tempting him with information, dangling a thread before him like bait. That was when he realized that the necromancer didn't trust his pledge of servitude. Perhaps she never had. His own leverage was minimal here, and he knew it. He couldn't leave her service without first gaining the knowledge of how to regain his lost potential. He couldn't physically intimidate her, and he didn't really want to, which was a strange feeling. There was still the same sense in his mind, the one that told him that remaining under her with trusting her ambition was the wise choice. Despite her overt manipulation... There was even part of himself that was impressed at how she'd tied him around her finger in a few sentences. But his boiling rage overshadowed the small voice. He didn't enjoy feeling being stifled like this. His potential locked away. Trapped. Turning, he strode towards the exit, smashing aside whatever stood between him and the door, whether it was furniture or unfortunate ghouls. Vanilith, he turned sharply. Here she seemed to offer a concession. Worry not, if your growth stagnates for too long, I won't let you remain thus. Don't wander too far now, we'll leave in an hour. He left, knocking down the door on his way out. 
Sighing, Kaipo crept out from Weiru's hiding spot and propped it up again. Anamu, Kalakai, stay, said the witch. Finally, she was speaking in a language Kaipo could understand. The two monsters turned to her, appearing to hesitate. Anamu more than Kalakai. I just spoke to Vanilith about your brands. By receiving his boon, your potential has increased. I would be amazed if it hadn't. You can sense this, correct? The burning, hollow feeling in your heart. The driving need to fulfill yourself. It should be obvious to peons like yourselves. Kalagai gave a slow nod. The witch smiled at this, revealing a gleaming teeth. As I thought, the stronger that feeling, the wider the disparity between the past and current potentials. There's something decidedly unique about that ghoul. I wonder how high. Hmm, never mind. I bring this up because he isn't too happy about splitting his future with you two. You sense it too, I imagine. Peons can be remarkably sensitive to the changes of their master. Anamu clenched and unclenched his claw hands, agitated. I should tell you that I've promised him information on how to revert the change he wrought, should you two fail to live up to your expectations. Her tone, friendly yet somehow cold, caused a chill to run down Kaipo's spine. Do you know the method I speak of? The only way to regain his original potential from you is for Vandalith to personally kill you both. That is why I hope you'll do your best out there. Don't die to anyone else. End of chapter. Chapter 19. Whispers of the Mind Manalith paid no mind to the door that fell with a clatter behind him, focused as he was on controlling the seething heat of his mind. He was angry enough that his hand shook. He detested the way this anger made him unable to keep a tighter lid on his actions. Rage was unproductive. It was motivating in a fight, certainly, but mild, uncontrolled in almost any other setting. He knew this, but how could he control it? Flashes came to him, ideas dredged up from his long-forgotten past. Training. Breathing exercises. There were no breathing exercises he could do to calm himself now, though. Drawing in air into his lungs felt almost unnatural, and he only did it when he needed to vocalize something. Perhaps he could try something similar, however. Ignoring the dull gazes of the undead in the grass about him, he located a relatively secluded patch of ground and sat, closing his eyes, and then delved inward. It was a struggle. The anger permeated every thought, clouding his perception and dulling his mind. But eventually... He was able to latch onto something, his surroundings. Much like during his meditation when he was traveling to the final village with Kalakai, Vanilith found that he could picture everything around him with an unexpected clarity, even when his eyes were closed. He saw, in a radius around himself, the ghouls where they lay, silent and unmoving. He saw the larger rocks scattered occasionally about the hilly field, resting on the ground where they'd fallen thousands of years ago. He saw, if not the individual blades of grass, at least the great collective, a sea of dead stalks. They stood, like the ghouls and the rocks completely stationary, a picture in his mind. A slight breeze blew on the back of the dark strands of his hair. No, that wasn't right. The grass couldn't be still, as the wind was blowing. Surely then the grass swayed, or his own hair did. The picture in his mind began to change, taking on a new form, as a gentle westerly wind pushed and the grass bent, as it lessened and the brown sea rose again, 
he saw a great blows forming in the distance, spreading out through the field and collapsing onto themselves like a wave on the shore. It wasn't just wind. Everything his senses could discern helped him build a picture of his surroundings. When the cloud moved overhead, blocking the glaring reflection of sunlight off the white peaks above, Vanilith sensed the slightest change in heat. The breeze picked up slightly, and the grass responded. The slight rustling gave away the movements of the fidgeting ghoul rearranging itself for a better concealment. His sense of smell, nothing quite helped him build his imaginary world as much as his nose did. The breeze carried with it distinct aromas, though in this valley the scents were all tainted with the pungent bite of death. He could have lost himself in the motions of the world around him, if not for one single irritant. The itching, the incessant, never-ending itching. With his emotions now dampened, it was more noticeable than ever. Whatever it was, it was apparently unconnected with his mental state, since it was more prevalent than ever. The thought of spiders returning to him. Could there be really bugs in his skull? Murderer! Vanilith's eyes flew open as he turned around, searching for the source, only to find nothing. He hadn't been snuck up on, and the undead nearby would have been roused anyway, had someone tried. No, this noise hadn't been physical. It reminded him of the ghosts he faced in the dark fog when returning to the necromancer's cabin for the first time. Their voices seemed as if they were almost inserted directly into his mind. Is it possible? He closed his eyes once more, Vanilith strove to achieve the same meditative state. In came more easily the second time now that he didn't have to fight his anger. Instead of his surroundings, he focused on the itching. As he did, he began to notice something interesting. It was certainly in his head, as he had thought. However, wasn't something else taking up a space already, something even more mysteriously than the ghostly whispers? There was a storm of energy, the enigmatic source of dark mist, which he called upon to strengthen his howls and command ghouls. This force resided in his head too. He attempted to visualize the storm to see if his hypothesis held true. And indeed, with the slightest shift in perception he sought, a small cyclone of black fog that swirled eternally within him. The prickling sensation came from the same place as the dark cyclone. The itching was never something physical to begin with, though he may have thought it was. It was a mental or perhaps a magical force. Now, when he concentrated on his internal storm, he began to hear small voices. Monster! Where am I? Help us! Have to run! Vanilith spent so long in his trance listening to the voices in his head that he didn't notice when Kalakai and Anamu exited the necromancer's cottage and rejoined him hiding in the grass by his side. When he finally opened his eyes, glowing runes flared to life in the space before him. Ability increased. Miasmic sight, level 1, becomes level 2. That wasn't the only change. Even doing his best to ignore them, the itching voices didn't lessen or vanish. Instead, they were now loud enough for him to hear without meditating, as if they'd galvanized into action now that they knew they had a captive audience in Vanilith. Though he couldn't really call it an itching sensation any longer, it had now become even greater irritant than before. Well, this had been a mistake. No longer willing to meditate upon them in case they grew even louder, he stood. Upon glancing around, 
Vanilleth wasn't surprised to find two ghouls patiently waiting beside him. What did surprise him was their appearances. Alakai had a simple black scarf wrapped around him, leaving only a slit of the eyes. Far more distinct than that was Anamu, who bore the twin of Vanilleth's frowning mask. Before, when he'd been choosing the mask, he came across it, but remembered thinking that the smiling expression was far too exaggerated. This opinion hadn't changed. The painted wooden face looked out of place on a walking manifestation of death, but the bared teeth were at least somewhat fitting for the savage ghoul. The voice came from behind him. We had to make do with what we had. What do you think? Turning, Vanleth appraised the figures who had just stepped out of the necromancer's cottage. Shambling in front was the freshly reanimated corpse of the hunter Kalakai had killed. It still wore the red and orange feathered headdress, which appeared to be Vanilleth even more ridiculous than Animu's mask. Ayokina was right behind it, her step sluggish. She wore no mask, but her appearance was more than enough to make men shudder. Then, as his attention turned to the necromancer, Vanilleth hadn't forgotten what she had done earlier. But as if entirely disinterested in that, she was instead was busily inspecting the three ghouls. Hmm, no, the image is all wrong. Kalagai looks far too menacing, she said. I suppose we'll have to find something better later. But for now, at least your brands are hidden. Demon! A sudden invasive thought distracted Vanilith, causing him to miss what happened next. The grass by their feet rustled and a small white blur shot forth. It weaved between Anamu's legs and raced towards the necromancer, too fast for even an agile ghoul to react. By the time Vanaluth returned to his senses, the creature was beyond his range. His mistress didn't appear concerned, however. She smiled and stooped over, lowering both her hands to the ground separately, as if offering the creature a choice of climbing on spots. The creature hesitated when it reached her, then chose the left hand, climbing up the sleeve of her robe until it came to a stop on her shoulder. Vanaluth, recognizing that it wasn't an enemy, slowly relaxed his hold at his sword hilt. Animu was more wound up, and it took a low growl from Vanilith to get him to stand down. With it finally still, he could tell that the thing was a skeleton of some small animal. Though its sockets were empty, Vanilith sensed it was looking down at them on something approaching contempt. This more than anything clued him in to the fact that it was a cat. Or it had been a cat. Its bones appeared to be held together by black wire, though how it moved without any muscles was still a mystery. Doubtless, it was a creation of the necromancers. The woman in question, ignoring the gazes of the other undead, was currently rummaging around in her pockets. After a moment, she pulled out three objects, a feather, a pebble, and an arrowhead, and held them up to the cat. It contemplated for a moment before reaching out with a paw and selecting the pebble. The pebble was put away, but she kept the feather and the arrowhead. The cat then selected the feather, prompting a smile from his mistress, who finally pocketed the other two objects. It seems we're in luck, she said. Whiskers has just returned from the scouting of the enemy camp. Again, his mistress's naming sense had left Vanilish feeling concerned. The bare skeleton didn't even have a single whisker to its name. She continued, They're located at the Standing Stone at the Northeastern Pass. They don't seem to be too worried about the undead sneaking up on them, as they've only placed a normal watch which is the correct move on their part. Ghouls have no chance at sneaking up on a group of alert scouts, even if most of them were recently deputized by Arimo. 
The smell alone would alert them about fifty yards off. The evolved ghouls didn't smell nearly as bad as the unevolved, but she had a point. But in the case of Vandalith couldn't help but wonder, if they weren't going to sneak up on them, then what was the point of waiting until they were asleep? Rise! The necromancer called out. All around, the undead who had been hiding for hours climbed to their feet. She performed a rapid headcount. One hundred and thirty-six ghouls, not counting you five, she said, referring to Vanilith and the others. Fifteen total are evolved, nearly one in ten. We'll scatter them under the cover of darkness. There's very little difference between a lesser and evolved ghoul. That is, till the latter is ripping out your spleen. That last phrase had accompanied by a wicked smile. Vanilith wondered if they were going to head out in that instant, but the necromancer apparently had a few more preparations to make. Ghouls from Yaya, step forward. There was a shuffling amidst the ranks of undead, and eight lesser ghouls emerged to stand before her. She frowned. There are more than... Oh, I see. They don't even remember where they're from. Turning to the cottage, she called out, Boy! Hypo emerged from the doorway and ran over to stand at attention. Vanilith had expected more hesitation from the cowardly ghoul, but perhaps his spearhead disobedience had overcome his lesser misgivings. Go through all these ghouls and pick the ones from your village. Don't miss a single one. Hypo did as he was asked, finding the people he grew up with and pointing them out. When he was done, twenty-nine ghouls were assembled. The necromancer went through them, confiscating a few weapons that they had redistributed amongst the other ghouls. Vanilith was at a loss for her reasons for this, but his mistress didn't seem too keen on explaining herself. Finally, she divided all the ghouls up into groups of ten. The evolved were put at the head of a group, with the exception of Vanilith's trio. Ayokina warily accepted her command of a larger group of twenty undead. Once everything was done, Vanilith had a sudden thought and growled, pointing out the corpses that he had his undead hauled back with them from this prison. Following his finger, the necromancer spoke. Hmm? Oh, I see. It was a good thinking to bring those back with you, but it would take far too long for me to reanimate them. That ritual was a special case, you see, unless I can find a more fitting vessel for the death stone and remove it from you inside. We won't be able to perform a ritual like that again. We'll leave the bodies for later, though. I suppose I could at least perform a charm to slow decay. Let's see... After going inside and retrieving a satchel, she started walking in a circle, murmuring a quiet incantation. Periodically, she reached into the pouch and drew a handful of white dust onto the pile of bodies. There was no visible changes when she was done, other than the fact that a bunch of corpses now had dust sprinkled over them. Vanilith was pretty sure that whatever she'd done wasn't even magic, but decided that it wasn't any business of his whether or not his mistress wanted to throw sand on dead bodies. With that taken care of, one final thing was distracting him. Ayokina stood at the head of twenty ghouls, but she lacked something. Bandalith remembered back when he'd fought her, the bodyguards that she had employed, five lesser ghouls, large males bearing weapons. He'd never met them in combat, but their movements had been impression on him. They worked together to a degree that he'd never seen ghouls achieve before. Under Aikina, they displayed an evolved level of intelligence. At the time, he had attributed it to the female ghoul's command, but now she appeared to be without any such useful subordinates. Perhaps she required specific subordinates to bring out her full capabilities. 
Once Vanilith found the ghouls he was looking for, he strode over to find them all together. After ordering them to follow, they fell in just behind him. The necromancer looked on with something nearing amusement. We could have left ten minutes ago if you weren't so fussy, Vanilith, she said. What are you up to this time? Ignoring the jab, he finished rearranging the ghouls such that the five bodyguards were back under the stitched-up leader. Ayokina looked at him, and the barest hint of a question in her intelligent eyes. The stitchwork on her face made it so that she couldn't close them entirely, but the nearly golden luster couldn't be masked by any of the necromancer's surgeries. Don't disappoint me, he communicated with a growl. After a moment, a short jerk of her head signaled an affirmative, and Vanilith turned away without a further word. At that point, something in the movements of the bodyguards seemed to catch the necromancer's attention. They had immediately circled Ayakina without prompting, taking up defensive positions as if it were a natural thing to do. Wait a moment, she said. Let me see you five more clearly. Step forward. They did as commanded, leading with their left foot. They all took a step, passing around Aikina smoothly. For each of them, it was the same motion. They traveled the exact same distance and ended up in the exact same relative position to each other. It was an uncanny degree of coordination. Then, his mistress reached down and picked up a small rock. Without warning, she tossed it in their direction. Catch, she belatedly said. One of the ghouls in the middle of the group reached out and caught the stone, fumbling slightly. None of the other four moved a muscle. Now that did seem odd. There was no sign of visible communication between them. How did the middle ghoul know to catch it, and the other four know not to interfere? Vanilith was certain that his hunch had been right. There was something special about these ghouls. Even without that, his mistress's reactions told him plenty. Her breathing had quickened, and there was a glint in her eyes, and hadn't been present before. Shamblers, she whispered. Then again louder, Shamblers! We've struck silver. Vanilith expressed his confusion and tilted his head. Worry not, Vanilith. You'll see the value of them in time. No, let's not be over-eager. They may fail yet. Her voice dropped lower until there was a mumble. But if they survive... Lifting her head, she cut herself off. Enough delays. We are leaving at once. Either the hunters will perish before daybreak, or we shall be eating ash. Why did you kill us? Status of fact unknown has reached a higher level of integration with your body. Information. Name, Vanilith. Titles, Cannibal and Rex. Race, Ghoul, level 33. Abilities, Howl, level 1. Miasmic Sight, level 2. Tough Skin, level 1. Class, Duelist, level 23. Skills, Swordsmanship, level 2. Boys, level 1. Conceptualization, level 2. Dominate, level 0. Status effect, unknown, regenerating, temporary. Statistics, strength, 29, vitality, not applicable, stamina, 31, agility, 26, dexterity, 19, echo, 4, miasma, 14. End of chapter. Chapter 20. The Cradle Will Fall, Part 1. It felt like she had just gotten to sleep when Lay was awoken by a hushed whisper. Someone was speaking to her father. Cracking, open her eyes, she low flame of the campfire illuminated the visitor's red-feathered headdress. Orimo's low rumble of a voice responded. Are you sure? he said. The other speaker shifted, 
Turning to look at Lei, uncertain he wanted to speak where she might hear, Lei hurriedly closed her eyes to appear asleep. Lei, you can sit up, her father said, and go on, she needs to hear this. Of course, she couldn't trick her father. As Lei pushed aside her blankets, she couldn't help but wonder what was going on. The last news they heard was that a pack of ghouls was laying siege to the refuge, and that they killed one of the scouts Orimo sent. Nobody had been happy to hear that. No one knew yet of the villagers aboding had survived or not. Yes, I counted eight of them, but there may be more, said the hunter. They are still ten minutes out if they continue their pace though they were moving, and uh, the masked one is at the front, hunt leader. It has matched the description. Grunting, Orimo shifted his weight in a good leg and stood. It must have followed Kai back here, roused the camp. A thrill of fear shot through Lei as the mention of the masked ghoul. This was one of the creatures the surviving scout Kai had spoken of. This monster appeared to lead the other ghouls with an intelligence of a human. For some reason, she couldn't help but equate the branded monster that she had encountered in the cave with the masked ghoul. Were they one and the same? She hoped so. She didn't want to imagine that there were two such horrible monsters roaming around. Vanilith tugged at the wool scarf covering his face. The rough cloth had a bad habit of snagging on twigs, but for the sake of the plan, he had put it up with it, if only for a short while. They waited in the ditches, hidden under leaves and branches, listening to the noises made by the desolate wind blowing down from high passes. It came from the mountain peaks, swirling down through the countless chasms to open up between the ridges. As this icy gust forced its way around the towering cliffs spaces miles above them, the eerie sound of the necromancer called the Mounts of Lament was born. Once or twice on the hike here, Vanilith looked up searchingly, but he was always unable to tell just how far the peaks above him reached. He knew that perhaps he would be able to tell after the climb, but even after the three-hour hike, there wasn't a discernible difference. There was simply no frame of reference by which to judge the mountains. The excitement of the undead around him felt muted. With over a hundred of them gathered, the energy that should have raced from ghoul to ghoul with abandon was weaker than expected. The stifling sensation could be attributed to the control of the necromancer. With the very action strictly regulated, they were unable to reach a frenzy even when the wind brought with it the distinct scent of humans. Not a single undead, so much as Twitch. Well, save for Amanamu. By his side, the young undead fidgeted with his mask, uncomfortable with the restrictive object. It was understandable that a ghoul bearing a brand of gluttony would dislike being unable to bite freely, but Vanilith still commanded him to stop. They'd received plenty of warning of the capabilities of their enemy. Noise, smell, and sight had to be kept at a minimum. The children of the mountain didn't have the same eyesight as ghouls, but they could see in the dark to a limited extent. Right now, even their heads were covered so that their yellow eyes wouldn't reflect the torchlight. They had been lying here for half an hour, waiting by the side of the dirt path that wound down to the northeastern pass. The camp of hunters was a fifteen-minute trek uphill. Their undead army didn't get any closer out of the fear of being spotted by the wide-ranging scouts, but that didn't mean that they were waiting for morning. No, the necromancer wasn't about to throw away the advantage of a nighttime attack. Vanilith, without turning his head to look, could sense her location behind and far above, tucked away in a tiny cave along the cliffside. 
From her vantage point, she could watch the road for hundreds of yards in either direction. She didn't explain how she was able to see in the dark, but neither did Vendleth ask. The crack of a twig alerted him to something was making their way down the path. The smell soon confirmed the presence of new ghouls. A voice shouted from further up the road. Pursuers, close behind. Vanilith's eyes narrowed, and he listened as the first set of feet passed by, followed by a second and a third. These were the remnants of a small force for the necromancer had sent the main camp. When the decoy leader had killed, or when their numbers reached half, they had been told to retreat back down the path. It sounded like only five or six survived to make it thus far out of the thirteen ghouls that had been sent. They were necessary sacrifices. The necromancer's plan was mercifully efficient, though it had been almost entirely concocted from the fly during the walk here. She had intended to use the information the hunters had gained about Vanith against them. The attack was just as much a psychological one as it was a physical one. One of the fleeing ghouls staggered just as it approached Vanilith's position and fell to the ground. The hunters approached, slowly sighting as they came across the figure on the path. A few thuds rang out as they executed it, and then the men moved on, deeper into the waiting ambush. The lure had been cast, and the hunters bit down like a clueless fish, not realizing that the harder they bit, the deeper the hook sank. Not a single one questioned why a lone ghoul fell over despite suffering no attacks. With the poor sense of smell, the humans wouldn't realize the sickly sweet aroma of death permeated around them, but they would think of it was cause of a lone ghoul that they killed. By the time they discovered that the scent was only getting stronger, it would be too late. More footsteps followed behind the executioners. Vanilith listened intently, made their number to be a little under twenty. It was certainly overkill for a few fleeing ghouls, but a marvelous result for them. When the last pair of feet suddenly thudded by, his silent pulse rippled through the ranks of undead. Though the power of the necromancer's amulet had no sway over Vanilith, he recognized the signal. The three branded rose to their feet, and all up and down the road the lesser ghouls followed suit. Lay was shocked at how easily the ghouls had been defeated. Over a dozen of them had charged into the camp, eager for blood. But all they tasted was a hail of arrows and stones. The masked one struck at the rear, directing its subordinates, but that had ended as soon as Orimo's well-placed shot pierced its head. At that point, the others all broke ranks, fleeing the way that they'd come. Five escaped, despite receiving wounds that would have killed a man. When the leader did, the risk was minimal, and pursuit was soon organized. Nearly half of the uninjured hunters went after them, under strict orders not to pursue beyond horn-calling range, or the two miles of camp. Arimo stayed behind, in no condition to run after ghouls on his bad leg. Lay wandered the camp, offering water to the men who sat around, nursing various scrapes and bruises. In this fight, they had outnumbered the ghouls three to one, and were far more organized and geared. Nobody had died as a result, despite that none of the men looked happy. How could they be? This was the third time encountering ghouls, the first being in Yayo, and the second in the cave, and then she still felt her stomach twisting horribly at the sight of her former neighbors turned into walking abominations. These were the fellow children of the mountain, not some invasive monster from the realms beyond. A few hunters simply broke down after seeing some former friends amongst them, 
and Orimo didn't scold them. An aura of grief and grim resolve seemed to suffuse the camp. Though she shared in the grief, Lei also felt a spark of hope ignite inside her. Perhaps they could do this. The hunters were capable and prepared. Maybe she wouldn't even need to leave for the enclave in the morning, like her father had planned. She could have helped the men, given them water and tending to the fires, along with other simple chores. She could make herself useful. If things kept going on like this, she would need to leave her father's side. She'd bring it up in the morning. Right now was the wrong time. Orimo, from his position at the center of the campfire, called out of one of the hunters. Hi, come here. What is it, hunt leader? asked the thin scout who trotted over. You mentioned that Kalakai was one of the ghouls who pursued you outside of the refuge, that he killed Mele. Kai grimaced, I, I didn't get a great look when we split up. We'd hoped that one of us would make it back. I didn't think that the Mele, that, that he would choose to run slower. He was faster than me, and he knew it. He could have left me behind. No one is blaming you. I'm asking for confirmation. Orimo's voice was grim. Was it Kalakai or not? There was a short silence as Kai screwed up his eyes, struggling to remember the seam. He had a spear, hunt leader, he said finally, a hint of bitterness in his voice. By the time I turned back to check on Mele, I was too far to make out any faces. I saw the spearman stab him in the chest and I... I just kept running. Arima, without responding, limped over to the pile of corpses on the ground. First, he stopped by the fallen ghoul leader and, using the limb of the bow, removed the frowning mask. When Lei saw the unfamiliar, unmarked face, her heart dropped to her stomach. It had no brand. That meant that the other one was still out there. Her father went on to each of the fallen ghouls, observing the appearance and a few weapons that had brought with them. They were mostly shoddy tools, used for farming or fishing. He paused for a long while, observing the form of a ghoul who carried a spear with him, the only true weapon amongst the gathering implements. His eyes narrowed into thin slits. Then turning to Kai, he spoke. Is it possible, back in bowling, that the masked one wasn't commanding the ghoul that killed Mele? Kai said, I don't think so, hunt leader. It made some sort of noise, and the other monsters started moving. The whole time, it just stood there, watching us. Arimo was silent for a long while. Lei recognized the look on his face. It was the same look he gave when he heard that a tribe of goats had moved in nearby, completely out of season, disrupting the balance. He pieced things together and discovered that a wandering monster was behind it, though at the time he hadn't expected it to be a one-horned goat. Something isn't right, he said. Sound the horn, call back the pursuing force at once. I ran off to do as he was bidden. Lay approached her father, who rolled his bowstring between his thumb and his forefinger as he peered down the darkened path and descended into the cradle. His eyes appeared to glow with a faint blue light, but it might have been a trick of the light. Papa, what's going on? What's wrong? He turned to face her, his forehead lined with worry, and the phantom light faded. He spoke more to himself than to his daughter. Kai might have discounted it as meaningless, but I don't think that that's the case. My instincts are screaming at me. The ghoul lying here, he said, gesturing to the spear-bearing monster, lacked any sort of skill with a spear. It treated it more of a club. How could this monster have been one that killed Mele? That man was a true hunter, trained at the enclave. No, I think Mele's murderer is still out there. Others too. If the mask all dragged us here, 
Who is to say that the spear-wielder isn't close behind? I only hope that we aren't too late. Level increased by two. Agility plus two. Strength plus two. Swordsman level increased by three. Strength plus two. Agility plus three. Dexterity plus one. Vanilith wiped his blade clean on the tunic of a slain hunter. The fight between somewhat disappointing, really. Outnumbered ten to one, and with the advantage of surprise, it couldn't really be called a battle. Their own losses were minimal, with only four lesser ghouls getting cut down in the exchange for fifteen hunters. Including the sacrificial ghouls that had been sent ahead, their total losses numbered thirteen. One of them had been evolved, the decoy who served as a stand-in for Vanilith. The sacrifice had been necessary for the plan to succeed. Unless a ghoul lacked the intelligence to even pretend to lead the other ghouls. All told, it was an auspicious outcome, especially when accounting for the difference in combat potential between a hunter and a lesser ghoul. If twice as many ghouls had died, it still wouldn't have been a bad result. Now, there were a hundred and twenty-eight of them versus approximately one-fifth of the number of humans. At five-to-one advantage, it wasn't an overwhelming as before, and certainly there would be losses as an ambush was no longer possible, but the gains that the victory brought would outnumber their losses. Even now, several undead had fallen into an unconscious state that signaled an evolution. The fright had also served as a confirmation of something. Vanilith had killed two men, and now the noise of combat had died down. He listened intently. Was it a hallucination, or had two new accusatory voices joined the chorus of whispers in his mind? This could be a problem. Just then, a distant call of a horn echoed down the mountainside, breaking the stillness. A second followed shortly after. He listened for a third, but instead a laughing voice came from behind him spoke up. They're calling dead men. Had a signal been sent five minutes earlier, they might have been spared. Vanilith turned to watch as the necromancer, who had scaled down the cliff on a rope, picked up a horn off the ground from where it had fallen from the hunter's limp hand. The desperate man had been attempting to use it as the ghouls closed in, but Anamu ripped open his neck before he could even bring the instrument to his lips. She dusted it off, inhaled, and blew a clear and exquisite note, followed by a second. After mimicking the other call, she tossed the device to Vanilith. Here. It might be useful later, so hold on to it for me. He hooked it onto his belt. They will be expecting the return of those men shortly, she said. I'm afraid we cannot wait for these ghouls to evolve now. If we linger too long, that would be the same as allowing Orimo to dictate the course of battle, which can never be allowed to happen. We'd be toyed with and killed before ever reaching them. Vanilith and Anamu, I want you far into the front as scouts. If you come across a lone hunter before we reach the camp, you must silence him. But the instant you see the first light of the campfire, return to the main fort immediately. Vanilith nodded, accepting the need for caution. It was time to begin phase two. Earlier that night, during the march to the northeastern pass, the necromancer had spoken to Vanilith regarding the plan. How great a bit of luck is this? When the hunters arrived this afternoon, Whiskers discovered that Orimo was injured, limping behind the others on a bad leg. There was that name again, Orimo. This wasn't the first time he'd heard it spoken. He's a branded, like yourself, she continued, but the difference is that he has a third tier. 
Under normal circumstances, I'd imagine him comparable to a tier 4 branded, but now that he's hurt, he shouldn't be quite that formidable. Banalith had recently learned that he himself was a second tier. The gulf that existed between him and a tier 1, he currently was a wide one. And this Orimo was a tier above him. He was an intimidating figure. You three, she said, pointing to Vanilith, Kalakai, and Animu in turn, have one job during the second phase of this plan, killing Orimo. If that cannot be managed quickly, the fight will likely turn sour. The hunters will wear different headdresses, denoting their rank. Orimo's is the only four-colored one, red, yellow, orange, and white. His appearance besides is distinctive. He is short and dark-skinned for a Yeranean, though still lighter than me. He will likely wield a bow, though at closer range use access to daggers and throwing knives. Allow your weaker ghouls to approach first and draw his attention, then close in for the kill. Be careful not to reveal your strength before that. Hang to the back, or he may slay you before you have a chance to reach him. Do you understand? As he heard her explanation, an odd exhilaration came over Vanilith. The more powerful she made Orima sound, the more determined he became. He hadn't been able to truly test how much stronger he'd become since the fight with Aikina. Seeing his mistress waiting for an answer, he gave a sharp nod. Fine, he'd do the smart thing, waiting until the perfect opening to strike. Still, a part of Vanilith hoped that it wouldn't be that easy. It was a strange dichotomy to exist within him, eagerness and restraint warring with one another. How much could he grow by throwing himself into another life-and-death battle? Remember, even injured, Orimo can turn the tide of this battle himself. There is no assurance of victory, especially now that they suspect something. Your task is of vital importance. Vanilith, so do your best. If I'm forced to use my last resort, nobody will be happy. End of chapter Chapter 21 The Cradle Will Fall Part 2 Vanilith adjusted his scarf, opening up the gap for his nose. He'd just caught a scent of a human. Oh, a pair of humans up ahead. A quick glance at Animu told him that his companion had also noticed. The younger ghoul had removed his mask and was now wearing a blood-soaked shirt around his head. The two of them weren't the only ones wearing these makeshift veils. Many of the undead who marched along, only three or four minutes behind them, wore them as well. Vanilith's trio no longer stood out amongst the ghouls who hid their faces, another precaution of the necromancers. Though he was only scouting now, during the main assault it was vital that he appear just another normal ghoul. They crept through the woods by the side of the main path, navigating around the twigs and noisy obstacles by a faint starlight. Despite his boots being built more for slogging through the mud than the sort of delicate work, Vanilith, upon reaching the ravine, set foot onto a tree trunk that was only four fingers' width thick, testing its strength. He found it adequate and began to cross. One foot fell in front of the other, and there was no hesitation in his stride. There wasn't room for any. A single misplaced step would send him plummeting into the ground some fifty feet down. The thin trunk didn't so much as wobble, even when Anamu stepped onto the log behind him. They crossed like two silent ghosts. Even one day ago, the sort of movement would have been impossible for Vanilith, with its combination of increased awareness of his environment and awareness of his own body that allowed him to move with such control. 
When they reached the other side, the humans came into view. They were sixty yards away, perched on a branch a quarter of the way up a large tree, where they were seated. They had a good view up and down the path. Vandalith paused, grasping Anamu's shoulder as well. The yoga-eager ghoul might have tried to charge them immediately. Past the sentries in the distance, he saw the firelight dance of the leaves. They were near the hunter's camp. Did they take out these sentries, or did they retreat? He recalled his mistress's instructions to retreat at the first sign of fire, but that was still quite far away. Surely, it would be safe. A closer inspection showed Vanilla that one of the men fingered a hunting horn nervously. He seemed to be expecting trouble. If he did, it would be in the form of a bumbling noisy undead, rather than a pair of stealthy killers. These men were easy prey. He could scale up the tree and kill them himself, likely too quickly for them to even shout. But something seemed wrong with the scene. Why were they so far from the camp? Here there were two juicy humans perched on a tree, just too far away to be rescued if they were ambushed. If they were supposed to give the hunters advance warning of an attack, they would have been further out. If they were mere sentries ensuring the beasts didn't wander into the camp, they would be closer to the fire. Then he realized why everything seemed wrong, and Vanilla's eyes narrowed into slits. These men, if suddenly attacked, had no way of fleeing. They couldn't make it down quickly without entering a fall that would break their bones. There was no way they didn't know that. Observing the surroundings, he found that the ground all around the tree appeared sparse, with little undergrowth. A distinct earthy smell told him why. There had been plants here recently, and they were all uprooted in haste and flung aside. Though it was simple enough to sneak up behind the tree and towards the unaware men, Vanilith would clearly be visible from all other angles. This was a trap. They were expected. Grabbing the confused Anamu, Vanilith turned and headed back across the ravine, ensuring that they kept low and out of sight until they were back with the main force. After returning, Vanilith laboriously communicated what he had seen. The necromancer accepted the fact that the hunters seemed to expect trouble. That is not ideal, but we need to make it work. We cannot delay any further and give the man time to prepare. Momentum is everything, Vanilith. Phase two will proceed as planned. Skill increased, conceptualization becomes level two. Orimo lowered the bow with a grunt. He thought something was coming, but the quarry had gotten spooked. It seemed his hastily arranged trap backfired. Pursing his lips, he whistled in a perfect mimicry of a blue-throated iris. The vibrating twitch easily carried all the way to his two daring volunteers, who hurriedly descended from their perch on the tree and started on the road back to the camp. Arima watched over them, ready to draw back his bowstring at the first sign of trouble. His instincts told him that they were in the clear, but he wasn't going to lower his guard until they were safely back. His intuition was really wrong, but it had now failed him twice in the past few days, and he'd since lost faith in his discernment of matters. The first time it failed him is when it didn't warn him away from the one-horned goat. The second was when he sent fifteen loyal comrades to the death. Arimo had been gunned to suspect that the undead force wasn't what it would appear to be once he found the corpse of the spear-wielding ghoul. After hearing the two return calls from the horn on the path below, sounding a little bit off to his ears, he knew something else was afoot. When the third blast of return call wasn't made, he knew that his men were dead. Was the call made by another hunter, or was it an undead mimicking him? 
Those men were his friends, his neighbors. He knew each of their names and the names of everyone in the families. After he was sent to watch over Crow Cradle, he watched over them every day for twenty years. He lived amongst them as they grew up and he grew old. In the enclave, he never had any real companions. The people there took everything for granted, food, safety, even brands. In the enclave, the branded were respected and some were feared, but that did not equate to friendship. But from these isolated backwater men and women of Yayo, he'd felt affection. Only after the two men walked by did Arimo release his breath that he hadn't realized that he was holding. He's half-turned, keeping an eye on the road, to find twenty-four of his remaining hunters watching him. Never did he feel the weight of leadership like he did right then. After a short silence, he broke the news. They won't be coming back. Some of the men's gazes dropped. Some cried out. A few had already suspected as much, accepting his words as truth. All of them had felt grief in their own way. For Arimo, his pain turned into something cold and hard. We will have little time, so I'll make this brief, Arimo continued. If you have no desire to fight and wish to leave, step forward. There is no shame in this. Somebody must take word to the enclave. And somebody had to escort his daughter to safety. Nobody stepped forward. He hadn't expected them to. Ever since they learned what happened to Lay in the cradle, these men had made it their intention to die here, despite some of them being fully-fledged hunters who would be accepted anywhere. This was their home. Given no sign of inner thoughts, he began to issue orders. Then, if you're staying, get to work. Light the fires around the perimeter. Make sure that they will burn for at least thirty minutes. But don't go into the woods for more lumber. I want all of our bowmen up on the ridge in two minutes, watching the path. Those who with blades and slings will hold the line across the midsection of the camp right here. Start moving. Walk while I talk. The camp exploded into action. This will be a different than a hunt, he said, a voice rising to carry up the noise. This is battle. Bladesmen, cut your bedrolls into strips and wrap the leather around your arms, putting it in place with an arrow. You can use that as a shield against the teeth. When striking, aim for the head or the neck, and don't bother with superficial attacks unless they serve to disable the enemy. And don't let yourself get grappled or surrounded. Watch your fellow hunter's backs. Arimo then searched through the crowd before narrowing on one person. Kai, over here, he called. The wiry man dropped the bedroll that he was carving into with a knife and hurried over to the hunt leader. Arimo grasped his shoulder and bringing him into a huddle. You aren't going to be fighting yet today, he said. You will go to the end cave with Lei. Grab a pack on my bedroll. There are enough supplies to last two people for a week. You will need to forage on the way there to supplement it. I'm trusting you with her, Kai. Go. It was to his credit that the man didn't waste any time talking. He nodded once before running off. It hurt to let one of his trained hunters go before a fight, but he deputized man, though better off than a normal villager's, would have had a hard time making it to the enclave. Kai was a survivor with a good heart. He'd do what it took to bring his daughter to safety. Then Arimo glanced up the hill where Lai stood, gripping a tunic with whitened knuckles. It was the look of someone who desperately wanted to run to her father, but knew that her presence would be an impediment. He'd hoped for a proper goodbye in the morning, but that was unrealistic hope now. Meeting her gaze, he raised his hand. Then he formed a loose fist and swiped his thumb across his forehead. It was a slow, deliberate action. 
and Lay's eyes widened upon seeing it. He taught her a solemn rite of respect between two hundred years ago, telling her that when she passed the test and became one, she would need to know. Hesitantly, at first, then with more confidence she lifted her hand and copied the salute. Then Kai approached her and motioned for them to depart. The stiff door, Lai turned away. Though she tried to hide it, he caught sight of something glittering on her cheek. She would do fine. She was a bright girl. Wood smoke began to suffuse the camp, and seeing the fires lit and everyone taking up positions, he forced himself to put Lay out of his mind. It was time to do his duty and stop the fatherless monsters. Orimo turned back towards the path and activated his hunter's sight. As his eyes burned blue, the blocks of night turned to a pale grey as his vision deepened, letting him see farther than any human had any right to. Inexplicably, his sight bent around a small obstacles such as trees and rocks, allowing him to see movement of distant figures on the path. As they drew closer, he saw their faces. Mountain above, have mercy, he muttered. His suspicion became certainty. A sinister intelligence was behind these creatures. Vanilith was in the center of the pack. The shape of the pass had narrowed, squeezing and stretching out over the horde until they could only walk five abreast as they neared the camp. Kalakai was ahead of him while Anamu was further towards the back. The necromancer was placed at the rear. The going had been steady, but when the first ghouls passed by the tree that held the two sentries before, one of the ghouls fell over without a sound. Before Vanilith could figure out why, a second followed suit. This time he caught sight of a shaft of wood protruding from its skull. They were being sniped, at this distance, from the camp. There was no unrest in the ranks, no pause on the part of the undead. They trod over their fallen without hesitation. A pulse came from the rear of the column as the mistress gave her orders. Though Vanilith couldn't receive commands from her amulet, he could just guess what she meant with an all around, and the undead began to hasten. Up the path they went like a river reversing course. Some stumbled, fording over. These unfortunates were trampled to make way for the more fit. Ghouls lowered themselves onto all fours and ran like animals, clawing at the dirt for speed. And Vanilith imitated them in an effort to blend in, riding the wave of bodies. He cleared the final crest and saw the hunters at last. They were in two lines, the front comprised of fighters with slings and swords, while the back line standing on an elevated piece of ground had their bows trained on the advancing horde. But their bows were only trained. Other than one or two of them, nobody released a single shot. They had frozen. Vanith could see the fires reflecting in their eyes, pupils trembling in shocked disbelief. The necromancer's ploy worked. The strategy wasn't a simple, mindless rush towards the enemy. It was a craft that had dealt them a mental blow. Earlier, she had picked out the ghouls from the village of Yayo, disarming them of any weapons, and put them into the group of their own. Then, she placed that group at the very front of her forces. Yayo, the village of hunters, the men, upon seeing these villages, appeared to suspend all action. These were their partners, parents, and children. Perhaps these hunters had already realized that they needed to come to terms with the fact that everyone they once held dear was dead, and that they might, eventually, have to fight their corpses. That unsettling thought, however, awful it might have seemed to these men, was quite a different thing than facing them in reality. In the center of the archer formation, a man roared something out as he unleashed a bolt after bolt from his bow. Each arrow felled another of the villagers of Yayo. 
Before they even reached the front line, he had slain half of them, roughly fifteen ghouls, fifteen soldiers, all expertly destroyed by an arrow through the eye socket. This was Orimo the hunter. Fumbling, the foremost hunters dropped the unslung slings, drawing swords and daggers. Then the two forces clashed, and all was confusion. The hunters, still in shock, were slow to bring themselves to strike, but the undead did not share the same hesitation, attacking with a ferocity that could only be born of the mindless. Vanilith slowed as the pace of the ghouls in the front of him was reduced, Despite the momentum, despite the cunning plan that the necromancer to destroy the enemy's morale, the front line of the hunters was holding firm. Being a good head taller than most of the other ghouls here, Vanilith was able to see why. Orimo. The short man wasn't firing at the same rapid pace he'd finished earlier. Instead, he calmly surveyed the fight, losing an arrow every time he saw one of his men encountering trouble. With this, with just this, he was able to stall their charge. Vanlith could see why the necromancer had gone to such lengths to warn him. Why, even after formulating her plan and outnumbering the hunters five to one, she seemed to believe that they could still lose. Because they could. The hunters, too, were helping each other with coordination that the ghouls couldn't emulate. Rather, the monsters got in each other's way, jostling for a chance to get to the humans. The natural choke point of this mountain pass made it so that only so many ghouls could fight the hunters at once. The other bowmen near Orimo had shaken free from their hesitation and now fired deep into the undead ranks, as if attempting to make up for the earlier failure. At that moment, Vanlith felt something pressed down at his shoulder, and a ghoul clambered over him as if it were a stepladder. It took an effort of wool for him to not unsheathe his blade and kill the monster, but looking around, he saw other ghouls doing the same, climbing over their brethren to get to the humans. It was reckless, but the necromancer wasn't stopping them. She was nowhere to be seen. She had largely abandoned her control, seeming to wish to capitalize on the horde mentality of her undead. At any rate, it was difficult to give specific, coordinated commands through her amulet, so leaving them to their instincts was likely the best choice. Vanilith needed to reach Orimo, but the rate things were going, there was no chance he'd reach them in charging straight forward. So instead, he made sure Orimo's attention was focused away from him, and Vanilith ducked low, weaving through the zombies until he was at the edge of the path, where the ground began to sharply slope upwards. It wasn't a sheer wall. Hardy trees still grew out the cracks, giving him obstacles to hide behind. In a single leap, he propelled himself six feet into the air, grabbing the branch and swinging himself up onto the trunk of tilted precariously over the road. From there, he began to leap from tree to tree, bypassing the long line of undead underneath him. He passed Kalakai, who was near the front line by now, appearing content to wait his turn to do battle. Everything progressed smoothly until Vanilith reached a tree line surrounding the clearing that was the hunter's camp. He concealed himself behind the trunk and waited. He couldn't get any closer without revealing himself. Right now, he was ten yards from Orimo in the line of archers, but he needed an opening. When Kalakai reached the front, he would... The world abruptly tilted sideways. Huh. Why was he looking at the sky? And uh, why couldn't he feel anything? Orimo's fingers trembled. The wound in his stomach must have reopened as well, as he could feel the sharp pain in his gut, followed by a warm sensation of blood being soaked into his bandages. Despite the repercussions, he felt that it was worth it. That had been close. 
if his instincts hadn't screamed the danger closing in, as if it hadn't used his skill to see the ghoul hiding behind that tree, it might have reached these archers. He wouldn't have been able to use drill shot again for a while, but the expenditure might have been worth it to kill that thing. He'd have preferred to pierce its brain, but when the arrow passed through the trunk that he'd used for cover, the shot redirected slightly. He still wasn't sure why he'd felt such a threat from that monster in particular, other than its clear intelligence and in sneaking behind his lines. But it didn't matter now. Nothing survived a hole through the spine. His attention was now fully returned to the front line. The moment that distraction meant the first of his warriors had fallen and pulled into the swarm of undead and torn apart. The ranks quickly tightened up, but at this rate, it would be too difficult for them to continue to hold. The bodies of the ghouls were piling up, but rather than slowing the enemy advance, this actually made it more difficult for his warriors. The ghouls climbed the pile, leaping down on them from a reckless abandon. He roared out a command. Moria, fall back to the ridge, archers with me. The ebb and flow of the battle continued, with both parties ignoring the paralyzed body of a ghoul who had fallen without knowing why. End of chapter Chapter 22 the Cradle Will Fall, Part 3 As soon as Lai and Kai rounded the bend leading out the camp, Lai stopped in her tracks. Upon noticing this, the young hunter turned back to urge her on. We don't have time to waste, Lai. Come along. She looked up at Kai. Hey, you know this place like the back of your hand, right? A small voice carried with a sense of urgency. Yes, we won't get lost, but it's a long road ahead of us. Come on, Lay. I know it's scary, but we need to leave. Above the camp, I saw a lot of cliffs, she said. Can you take us up one? An unexpected question blindsided the hunter. What are you talking about? Why would I do that? Asked Kai. I want to stay and watch the fight. From somewhere high up, we can help them, right? You can take us somewhere safe where the monsters can't reach us. Then Papa wouldn't... Uh... Hey, do you think this is easy for me? Something in the tone of Kai's voice made Leif flinch back. Kai continued, Do you think that I want to leave my hunt brothers, all of that remains of my family, so that I can run away like a frightened hare? Do you know what the hunt leader's orders are when you're out in the passes? She didn't respond, but Kai carried on anyway. They are higher than the chiefs. The chiefs! Ignoring them is the same as treason. I mumbled something. What? he asked. Then go! Kai stared blankly at her. Go, she repeated. You have to listen to Papa, but I don't. I am not a hunter. I'll stay behind and find a safe place to watch them fight myself. The thin man's mind raced. What did he do in this situation? By the determination in her eyes, he knew this child would put up a fight if he tried to bring her along by force. Knocking her out and carrying her wasn't going to work either. His pack was heavy enough, without adding a twelve-year-old and a gear into the mix. He was a scout, not a mule. And Melee. He had his old friend's death weighing him down on his shoulders. Kai was still disgusted with himself for not doing more to save him back at Boiling. He rationalized it at the time, telling himself that someone had to bring the information about the Moscow back to Orimo. Someone had to survive, so he ran. Only now did he realize that it had been more than a duty to spur him on. It had been fear, and he hated that. The sounds of battle filled the clearing, glattural roars intermingled with shouts and thumps of arrows sinking into flesh. Vanilith listened to all of these things, unable to do a thing about any of them. 
He could open and close his eyes, and he could move his jaw. That was it. And even drawing air into his lungs to unleash a howl was beyond him. But he burned. He burned with the seething heat that roiled in his skull, as if he could break free of his mind and immolate him whole. The light of the fires dancing off the leaves suddenly seemed too bright for his eyes. Monster! Spikes of pain pierced his skull. Die already! He focused all of his willpower on the sword arm. He couldn't even feel his limbs' presence, but he knew it was there, imagining the fingers twitching. Vanilith pushed against the restrictive numbness. Join us! Move! Something had to move! It would either move, or it would break! A sharp noise sounded out as his teeth cracked and the pressure generated by clenching his jaw. Then his entire body convulsed, sensation returning in a flooded lightning causing him to spasm like a dying fish. The overpowering response exaggerated each of his movements. He flew up from the ground and landed on his chin. Then he attempted to hold out his arm to stabilize himself but slammed into a tree. A leg flew out from underneath him and he ended up once more sprawled out on the ground. Status effect regenerating, temp has ended. A shiver ran through Vanilith. Slowly, he stood, raising himself against a tree. On that tree, he noted a hole in the eye height that appeared to have exploded out of the trunk. Then, he saw an arrow that had sunken into the rock behind him. Somehow, the projectile had pierced solid stone to a depth of nearly five inches. His hand went to his throat. There, he found a gaping wound and shreds of flesh. It was the same as back at his neck. Finally, he connected the dots. He'd been attacked, and he hadn't even seen it coming. Glancing up at the battle, he searched for Orimo. He quickly found the man who had taken the top of the large, flat boulder at the center of the camp, from where he could see everything within the clearing. To his back was a stone obelisk that towered above even nearby trees. The human line had fallen back. Though this was no longer a small choke point where only five undead could reach the humans at once, there were now two small paths up each either side of the hill, each of which could contingent to five or six hunters. The ridge that they were on gave the thinned-out lines of the hunters a great advantage, as the clumsier, less uh, undead had trouble scaling up the steep ground. If a ghoul couldn't be slain, then they were simply kicked down the hill giving Orimo more time to unleash his special variety of death. The man had slowed his rate of fire even more, but his shots were just as deadly as before. Whether the slowed pace was due to tiredness or improved defensive positions of his men, Vanilith didn't know. Orimo was still rapid enough that the ghoul was dropping dead every ten seconds. The other archers were practically a non-issue compared to the one man. In fact, they seemed to have realized it themselves, as the bowmen were in process of switching out their bows to makeshift clubs, moving to reinforce the warrior lines. Vanilith didn't have time to worry about the state of battle. As soon as he realized the danger of his current location, he remained apart from the rest of the army. The hunter would doubtlessly find him again. He quickly shuffled out from behind the tree, joining the ranks and doing his utmost to appear like any other mindless ghouls. It was fairly easy to give in to his instincts and let himself be carried forward by the tide of bodies. In under a minute, he'd approached the ridge. It was here that he caught sight of Kalakai. The ghoul in question had taken cover underneath an overhang of the ridge, the place between the two paths that made their way up. 
he appeared to be waiting for something. Vanilith let himself get jostled by the crowd of undead, stumbling over to the spear-bearer as if by accident. Kalakai's placid gaze fell on him as he came to a stop. Here, where he was hidden from view and had over a dozen feet of stone and earth between him and Orimo, he had a moment to recollect himself. His last failure had shown Vanilith that infiltration wouldn't work. Orimo had the eyes of a hawk. He needed to break the front line, but going alone would just get him singled out again. He had to gather strong ones, create enough threats that the enemies couldn't keep up. His hand darting out, he grabbed the shoulder of the first evolved ghoul he found. He dragged it into the cover of the overhang. As he did, he growled a command. He felt the throat swelling from the pressure and the air passing through it. It seemed as if the windpipe hadn't fully healed. He repeated the process as soon as he found the next school. Then he saw Ayokina. She was lingering near the back, surrounded by a five bodyguard shamblers. Though she'd been put to the head of the platoon of twenty ghouls, he didn't see her commanding them. Rather, she seemed to be in a daze. That wouldn't do. Before he could figure out how to bring her over, a figure fell down from the ridge above, nearly landing on Vanilith. It was Anamu. The young ghoul had been half a dozen arrows sticking out of him, mostly in his chest and back, but one had speared him through his mouth, passing through both cheeks as if it was biting down on it. The last arrow had the effect of plunging his veil in place, so his brand remained hidden despite the fall. Vanilith, somewhat surprised to find him alive after what must have been a number of frontal engagements, but perhaps the ghoul moved too quickly for Orimo to get a kill shot in. Making use of the opportunity, he directed Anamu to go to Aikina and bring her to him. The feral creature did as he was told without complaint, and in short order Vanilith had assembled a troop of comprised of the original trio, Aikina, and of five shamblers, and in addition to four evolved ghouls that he'd singled out. There wasn't much space left in the overhang. First, he turned to Ayakina, growling out a question. What happened to the ghouls you commanded? They charged ahead, she replied. And you? he asked. She replied that she was waiting. Well, now you must fight. You will assist me. The rest will attack the right flank first, then we'll strike left. Understood? Yes, she said. Orders confirmed, Vanilith finished splitting the party in two, and hoped was the obvious offensive of Kalakai and Nemu and the other golems would draw enough of Orimo's attention for Vanilith and Ayokina to break through that side. He was placing a good deal of faith in these five shamblers, though most of that faith was founded in his mistress's reaction after discovering their existence earlier that night. He had yet to see them fight, though they only appeared to be lesser ghouls, He'd hoped that they'd prove to be more useful than that. His final command to his two branded subordinates was simple. Strike hard, but don't die. He remembered the necromancer's warning that their death would forever cripple his own potential. If Orimo turned his gaze on them, they would duck and evade, using the other ghouls as shields if need be. Strike hard, and strike fast, retreating if necessary. As he had once again mixed himself into the stumbling mass along with Ayakina, Vanilith adopted a look of mannerisms of the lesser ghoul. He growled, pushed, and jostled his way to the front. As he neared them, he observed the line of hunters. They were clearly tired. If not with the terrain advantage, they would have been overpowered long ago. As it was, they were barely holding on. It made sense that the less effective archers would come to reinforce them. Vanilith hung back, waiting for his troops on the right flank to strike. 
In short, he kept moving, weaving around, hoping to disguise the preemptive dodges as simple stumbles. The entire time he felt a tingling all over his body, as if he was subjected to a scrutinizing gaze, that the slightest mishap on his part would result in an arrow through the brain. Though he didn't know why, he got the sense that perhaps Orimo would notice if Vanilith took at him too long, so he decided to only watch the normal hunters. When a man screamed, he knew the moment had arrived. Without waiting to see how effective his subordinate attack was, Vanilith, who had been wound as tightly as a spring, burst into action, drawing his concealed blade as he blasted up the steep ridge, closing up the fifteen-foot gap between him and the hunters in under a second. As he struck, Vanlith couldn't help but remark at how much more easily his sword, which previously seemed heavy and unwieldy, passed through the neck of his first victim. It dodged underneath the resulting spray of blood, driving his shoulder into the torso of the second hunter, cracking ribs and knocking the air out of his lungs. Vanilith quickly wrapped an arm around the man's neck, ripping him around to provide a human shield between him and Orimo's arrows. He had no time to check if the hunter in question was aiming down his sights at him, as by now the three remaining warriors on the ridge were entirely focused on him. They were yelling something, and a glance told Vanilith that the six refreshment fighters would be on him in mere moments. If one of the flanks didn't fall, the fight was lost. Arima would simply pick them off, one by one. He had to rake through here. Digging in, he reached for that familiar well of energy. Once his toes had dipped deep into the water, he reared back and unleashed a mighty howl. Into that action, he packed all of his will, his anger, and his intent. He wished to communicate only one thing, that he would kill them. A force, invisible but tangible, rolled from him in waves, accompanied by the roar that ripped from his throat. And it did so quite literally. His windpipe, barely healed, ruptured from the strength of the blast. Leaves on the trees nearby trembled as if the wind was blowing them back, and the hunters, who had begun to recoup through a sudden attack, stepped back, eyes wide with fear. His blade whipped out from the nearest man, but his target parried with the frantic motion of his short sword, jumping back at the same time and managed to divert most of the force. Despite the successful block, his sword was sent high from the sheer difference in strength. Vanilith capitalized on the hesitation of the other two, pressing his attack with a follow-up thrust. This time, the hunter wasn't able to avoid it, and the sword punctured him below the collarbone. The bearer's movement of wind warned him, and he leaned out of the way just as two objects whistled by. One of the hunters had swung at his unprotected back, and at the same time an arrow flitted by, so close to his eye that it ripped the cloth of scarf that he wore. He hadn't even noticed the arrow. If not for the other hunter forcing him to dodge, the projectile might have struck true. Arimo had locked in. At this inopportune moment, a prisoner in his arms finally recovered his breath and began to struggle. Vanilith bashed him over the head with his pommel, darting back and holding up the unconscious shield so that his vitals were covered. At this moment, the six archers arrived, but so did his own reinforcements, the Shamblers. He'd left them eating dust when he charged in, but they had now made it up to the ridge. For a short moment, both sides stopped, taking a measure of one another. Well, Vanilith got the sense the shamblers weren't doing much measuring at all, but rather that they were waiting for him to take the lead. In a brief stillness, he noted that the noise coming from the right flank where he'd sent the peons had increased. Then, 
Vanilith shifted slightly, and an arrow that would have pierced his Achilles tendon instead hit him in the foot. He took that as a warning and began taking evasive action. As if covered for him, the shambler stepped in, all at once. What happened next was peculiar, even for Vanilith. The two remaining hunters from the first group darted around to cut him off in a bid to help Orimo get his shots in, but the shamblers rotated around to intercept him. As they did, four of them struck out at the same time with their weapons, lengths of the wood and bits of mangled metal at the end. The four attacks were divided so the two hit both the hunters, as if they'd agreed on the beforehand. Two of the strikes targeted their faces and two aimed for their torsos. The hunters backpedaled, barely dodging in time, and one of them received a glancing blow to the chest for his trouble. The men couldn't be blamed for the close call. Though the shambler's attacks were sluggish, they were deceptively precise. Despite being so near to one another, aiming for the same targets, the shamblers didn't interfere and collide with others, but instead maneuvered around their allies like clockwork. It was even difficult to call such actions maneuvering, it was as if the shamblers were simply never in a position that would interfere with another in the first place. It was almost like prescience. Was this what Ayakino at work, or something else? Vanlith was unable to check on what the stitched girl was doing, but he couldn't help but think that the shamblers were able to read the hunters like they read each other. It wouldn't even be a fight. As it was, a protracted engagement began between the six undead and the seven hunters. If one didn't count the unconscious eighth in the vanilith's grasp. Though more lesser ghouls were consistently climbing to the top of the ridge, the fight still didn't swing to their favor. This could be attributed to Arimo, who appeared to have slid his attention between the right flank where Anamu and Karakai fought, and vanilith himself. Every time the swordsman stepped forward to strike down a hunter, an arrow would fly out, targeting one of his limbs. It was frighteningly impressive how Orimo's shots never harmed Vanilith's prisoner, despite regularly coming within inches of him. Forced into a defensive position, he wasn't able to turn the tide of battle or stop the hunters from striking around him to pick off the reinforcements. At some point, the man he stabbed earlier fled out, bringing the number of hunters who had fallen to his sword to three. Level increased by three. Strength plus two, Agility plus three, Miasma plus one, Duelist level increased by four, Strength plus two, Agility plus four, Dexterity plus two. Vanilith realized as the fight went on that they weren't going to break through the line like this, dealing with eight fighters as well as enough, but he was forced to remember the sight of that first arrow that had drilled through, the tree's trunk to strike him down. If he got a perfect chance, Vanilith didn't trust Orimo wouldn't sacrifice a hunter, held in a bid to kill him especially if the other hunters began to drop. So he did something reckless. He lowered himself into a crouch and pointing himself directly at Arimo. He began running. Almost instantly, the hunter tried to break away from the shamblers to stop him, but Vanilith was too fast. Even with the added weight of the prisoner, he barreled past the shocked warriors, up the path and towards the enemy branded. The only thing that warned Vanilith that was coming next was his own guesswork. He knew that he was the greatest threat on the battlefield, and he knew that Arimo realized that too. Now he was charging in a straight line towards him. What would he do for the two of them had switched places? Vanilith pitched the prisoner to the side, using the rebound to throw himself into a roll. None too soon either. As soon as that sounded like an angry wasp zipped by, taking a chunk out of his shoulder with it. 
There was a small explosion behind him as the arrow collided with the ground, but Vanilith didn't spare it a glance. He got to his feet and resumed his mad sprint. Without the prisoner blocking his line of sight, he finally got a chance to look at Arimo. When he met his gaze, instead of a hunter, it was two knives flying directly at him. Once again, he threw himself into a roll, but he wasn't quick enough to avoid the first knife, which sank into his left eye. He lowered his head quickly enough that it didn't pierce his brain, but the eye had been blinded. Fortunately, that appeared to be Arimo's final car to stop him approaching, and he covered the rest of the distance by running on all fours. After the third brush with death in as many minutes, Vanilith steeped in rage, crouched as last before Arimo the hunter. The two of them were still at the rock from which they stood, knowing that the first movement either of them made would be met by an immediate counterattack. Arimo, who was a head shorter than Vanilith, though with the addition of the four-colored headdress, he appeared nearly a foot taller. His nose was hooked like a vulture's, but his cheekbones were high and proud. The man was slick with sweat, and his scent of blood hung thickly about him. He was injured and bleeding severely at that. A wound on his stomach had opened up from his exertions of battle. One of his legs also appeared to be lame. Despite the obvious injuries, Vanilith maintained a ten-feet distance between them, not closing into strike. His bloodlust had reached heights previously unknown to him, but his sense of caution was screaming. This old man, looking like he might kill over from a stiff breeze, exuded a clear aura of danger. Was this the difference between a Tier 2 and a Tier 3? Arimo said something in Yaranese, but Vanilith's attention was fixed on his hands, which at some point had dropped the bow and held in favor a pair of daggers. He repeated himself, but his words cut off with an exclamation as Vanilith's scarf, which had been damaged many times, unraveled from around his head and fell to the ground. Evidently, the sight that followed was a shock as Arimo took a step back, forgetting his wounded leg. This caused him to stumble, and Vanlith, noticing the blunder, charged. But he couldn't predict that a fist-sized rock would suddenly smash into his back, sending him sprawling. There was no time to tell where the stoner came from. Arimo was recovering, though the man now looked skyward, a different sort of surprise on his face. He appeared horrified. Lay and Vire Natkin! He shouted something, possibly at the rock thrower, and Vanlith climbed to his feet. His left shoulder blade was broken, and he couldn't move his arm, forcing him to wield the bastard sword in one hand. He lunged and flustered Orimo, parried him with a downward sweep of his daggers. Vanilith followed up with a diagonal slash. Orimo blocked the full force of the blow this time, but the ghoul was stronger. The man was sent flying off the boulder with a grunt. He collided with the stone obelisk that Vanilith had noted earlier and crumpled to the ground at its base. He leapt off the rock after him, there was screaming somewhere in the distance. He ignored it. Striding across the ground, Vanilith lifted his sword. Arimo panted heavily, blood forming a puddle on the ground where he lay. His stomach wound had fully ripped open from the strain of blocking Vanilith's strike, and it didn't appear as if he could even move. An arrow sunk into Vanilith's back, but he didn't even flinch. Though the red mist filled his vision, he saw only his enemy. A flicker of movement was all the warning he received. Two more knives flew it out at Vanilith, but having expected something along these lines, he was already dodging. One sliced his cheek and the other missed entirely. More screaming, a second arrow missed him and clattered off to the stone monument. The sounds of battle in the background had waned. 
Without Orimar's assistance, the hunters must have been quickly overwhelmed. Vanilith raised his sword and Orimar, struggling, lifted his head to stare back. Something burned in his gaze. But it wasn't a plea for mercy. It wasn't acceptance of fate either. It was despair, defiance or spite. This was something else entirely. Something that was well beyond him. Beyond the confines of the valley. Beyond this world. Vanilith brought down his blade and after a moment... Orimo's head fell to the ground with a wet splash, coming to a rest in a puddle of his own blood. Level increased by two. Strength plus two, agility plus two. Duelist level increased by eight. Strength plus four, stamina plus two, agility plus six, dexterity plus two, echo plus two. You have received the title Hunter of the Brands. No more arrows came by Vanilla's way, and he no longer heard the sounds of combat. Down the hill, ghouls feasted upon the bodies of the slain, though a few of their number approached him. Vanilith's forehead burned. He was engulfed with the feeling that he stood on a dam holding back a turbulent river. Having encountered the feeling before, he realized what was coming next, so he found a spot to sit down. He delayed the rupture so that he could pull an arrow out of his back and remove the knife embedded in his eye. Finally, he leaned back against the stone monolith, closing his eyes and allowing the river to burst free. Information. Name Vanilith, titles Cannibal, Rex, and Hunter of Brands. Race, Ghoul, Evolution Pending, Level 40. Abilities, Howl, Level 1, Miasmic Sight, Level 2, Tough Skin, Level 1. Class, Duelist, Level 38. Skills, Swordsmanship, Level 2, Poise, Level 1, Conceptualization, Level 2, Dominate, Level 0. Status Effect, Unknown. Statistics, Strength, 43, Vitality, Not Applicable. Stamina, 33, Agility, 46, Dexterity, 24, Echo, 6, Miasma, 15. End of chapter. Chapter 23, Forging Covenants, Breaking Shackles. Vanilith opened his eyes and found himself in a grey world. The ground was grey, the trees were grey, the mountain, the sky, the clouds. Everything was a combination of black and white. He stood, finding himself oddly weightless, and looked around to find himself in the same place he'd fallen unconscious. He was in the middle of the hunted camp, but by a great stone monolith. Nearby were a few ghouls staring at him with cod expressions in their eyes. Wait, these weren't ghouls. Why had he mistaken them for undead? These were the hunters that he had just fought with. Was he captured? No. He wasn't bound. Then there was no reason for these men to capture him. The handful of hunters were garbed in leather and wearing the headdresses, which now appeared to drab a colorless world. They didn't move. They didn't appear to even acknowledge him, despite their stares. No, they weren't ghouls, but Vanilith knew why that he had thought that they were. These men were dead. They were all uninjured, but even as Vanilith looked on, one of them blurred, and a gaping wound appeared in his chest. The man looked down at his wound and moved his hand to touch the injury. There was no expression on his face. The lack of emotion and the colors made it seem less gory somehow, less real. As abruptly as it had appeared, the wound vanished, leaving the man unmarred. Then Vanilith heard of voices, it was distant, mumbling, from the mouths of those dead men. Their lips barely moved, but if they strained his ears, he could make out the words. What happened? It hurts. 
Why are we here? Him? He did this. Vanilith narrowed his eyes, reaching for his sword belt, but found his sword wasn't there. He looked down and sure enough, it was lying nearby. He must have dropped it before falling unconscious. Crouching while maintaining a line of sight on the hunters, he attempted to pick it up. But when his hand grasped the hilt, it wouldn't even budge. He tugged with all of his strength, but it might as well have been welded to the earth itself. Monster! Lifting his arms in a defensive position, he resigned himself to a bare-handed fight. The men, though, their murmurs became only more vitriolic with time, never moved to attack him. They gazed at him dully, speaking their bitter words, but ultimately refused to move, as if their feet were adhered to the ground the same way the sword was. Hate him. Radileth, hearing them speak, was reminded a great deal of the whispers that he'd been hearing since earlier that day, after raiding the prison. That couldn't be a coincidence. Don't let them get to you. He whirled around in a sudden voice. Behind him sitting down and leading on the obelisk was Orimo. The man looked much like he had in life, though he lacked these injuries, including the ones he received before fighting Vanilith. He appeared strangely relaxed, though he was in the presence of his murderer. What's going on? Vanilith asked. Even before he finished speaking, his hand darted to his throat. He'd just spoken. The words had come to his lips unbidden. Hmm, Arimo grunted, taking a note of the ghoul's reaction. In this place it takes a, a certain control not to speak what you're thinking of. And where is this place? Vanilith asked, though he hadn't meant to say anything. Blasted if I have any idea. It doesn't strike me as a very grand afterlife. The conversation ended into a strange hiatus as Vanilith struggled to get a handle on his voice. Arimo seemed happy to wait, gazing down at the other dead hunters with a strange look in his eyes. When the ghoul had finally gotten hold of himself, he realized that he needed to organize his questions. If the old hunter was willing to answer him, that was well and good, but Vanilith didn't want to spend more time in this place than necessary. If he was unconscious right now, then he needed to return to the waking world. Minor questions flitted through his head, things like, you realize you're dead, why aren't we fighting right now, or how is it that I understand your language? Better to stick with the important ones. He asked, are you Orimo the hunter? There was a short pause and Orimo's forehead tightened, his eyes narrowing as he considered the question. I believe so, he finally replied. Do I look like him? Vanneth nodded. Then I must be, Orimo said, as if he was satisfied all the requirements. And you know that I killed you. Unless it was a hallucination, Vanlith was certain that Arimo and the other hunters gathered here were those that had been killed in the recent battle. Other than Arimo, there were four other men in total. In the fight, only three had fallen to his sword, but the fourth he recognized as a temporary shield. The man must have succumbed to his wounds. Certainly, Arimo said. You don't want revenge, these other men... Vanlith said with a gesture to the Grey Hunters, seemed to want to my blood. Arimo inspected the men who remained standing in a place where Vanlith now realized they had died in the real world. I don't think that they do, he said musingly. Is that right? They aren't moving, are they? There is no desire in them, just a pile of memories and emotions. They lack strength of spirit. Strength of, uh, spirit, yes. You are branded, so you should know what I'm speaking of. He wasn't sure that he did. Arimo began to study him, a frown caressing his brow. Vanlith spoke. And you, 
According to what you said, you should have desires, yes? What is it you want? Arimo appeared to seriously consider the question. He glanced up and Vanleth followed his gaze, but he saw nothing but trees, cliffs, and mountains. My daughter, Arimo breathed. Hmm? I want you to spare my daughter. Vanleth had no idea what this man was talking about. If he had a daughter, then she likely lived in the cradle, and everyone in the cradle was already dead. But despite the truth of the matter, the man appeared to believe that she lived. Perhaps Vanleth could use that. And what will you give me in return? he asked. Arima weighed the question for a moment before replying, You. Your movements are sharp, but they lack precision. There are good instincts there, but little else. Your skills must be newly acquired, right? Manleth chose not to respond. I can train you. Training? Now that was a tempting offer, but Vanilith was certain if he needed such a thing, his specialization appeared to be quite different from the hunter's. There were many things he wished to know about this world, but his mistress was already there to teach him. If she chose to. Vanilith knew fully well that she was someone who weighed the cost and benefit on the scale. And was he mistaken, or did he spot desperation in Orimo's eyes? And if your training helped me to kill more humans? Arimo appeared taken aback by the question. He had forgotten the nature of the one with whom he was bargaining with. Finally, he hunter muttered something. How peculiar. What is? <laughs> I don't care. The loss of life. No. The idea of you creating more like me. The thought doesn't bother me. Still, my daughter. She cannot die. That's my offer undid. Take it or leave it. Vanilith had no intention of breaking a promise with a dead man. He simply believed that this daughter was already dead, and if she somehow lived, it wouldn't matter if something else killed her, right? So, with some curiosity regarding what might be learned from Orimo, Vanilith nodded his head. Orimo extended a hand, and they shook at it. At that moment, everything changed. Vanilith felt the shift. His ears popped as if the air pressure had just doubled, and then a gong sounded, and an earth-shattering vibration shook the entirety of his grey world. Packed, successful. He fell to his knees as the words were not words passed through his mind. His gaze was slowly drawn upwards as if an invisible hand lifted his chin. Far, far above him, above the mountains, the clouds, the skies, and even the dimly twinkling stars themselves, something appeared. It was enormous, a galaxy suspended overhead. It was a kaleidoscope of madly intermixed colors as if the reason the pigments of the universe had been eliminated was so that they could be placed therein. It was an eye, then that was looking at him. A voice that wasn't a voice sounded in his mind, and he felt a tether weakening. Vessel! He became weightless, floating upwards in the morning fog being burned away by the light of the sun. The preliminary trial is complete. Vanilith had the sense that though he was only seeing a titanic eye, and he had been watching him for quite some time before that, perhaps even before he ever entered this world, it had been judging him. Seven more await. His last sight of the ground rapidly disappeared beneath him, Alvarimo the hunter tilting his head up, a complicated smile on his face as Vanilith disappeared into the sky. Completion of Tier 2 as an uncommon race confirmed. Completion, dividend, uncommon, plus 10 stats, calculating distribution, strength, plus 2, agility, plus 2, dexterity, plus 2, miasma, plus 4, significant deviation detected, tolerance adjusted, race shift initiated, 
you are evolving from ghoul uncommon to white rare. Innate ability conformity lost. Innate ability rule of the grave developed. Duelist level increased. Strength plus one, dexterity plus one. Vanilith's eyes opened to a swarm of dimly lit glowing characters floating before him. His hastily came to his senses. They faded away. Somewhere nearby, someone was singing. It was a woman's voice, humming low and soft. He blinked, wondering why everything was dark, but discovered that the cloth had been draped over his head. Removing the garment, he stood and took a quick note of his surroundings. His mistress was nearby, kneeling by the great stone monument. She was the source of the singing, but Vanilith had already guessed as much. Several ghouls stood guard nearby, rigid statues. Vanilith noted that Kalakai was amongst them and felt some relief for the fact. Animu was nowhere to be seen. At the center of the camp, the bodies of the hunters had been arranged in rows on the ground. They were mostly intact. The necromancer wished to be able to reanimate some useful soldiers later, and the hunters made a prime stock, so they only had a few bites taken out of them. The staying ghouls, on the other hand, his eyes wandered down the hill, where he saw a great pile of corpses. That was where most of the remaining undead were, nibbling on the vast quantities of putrid flesh that was readily available. After confirming that there was no threats nearby, Vanilith seemed to have some time in his hands. Whatever the necromancer was doing seemed like it would take some time. He first tested his recovery with a few simple stretches. There was no sign of lasting injuries from the fight against Orimo, but his body had very clearly changed. He felt amazing, as light as a feather, yet with none of the feather's fragility. Retrieving his sword, he began a quick routine, but paused after noticing the appearance of his arm. He sheathed the blade and stalked up the camp, towards the sound of the gurgling brook that he peered nearby. Upon arriving, he found the stream pool where the water was relatively calm and knelt, observing his reflection by the bank. Unfortunately, his hair had fell down in front of his gaze, blocking his view. He tried to sweep a hand through the thick mop to move it away, but when it didn't work, he dunked his head into the water and combed through it with his fingers. It had grown another few inches during the evolution, and the long black hair were tangled mess. After a moment of debate, he took his sword to it, shearing the worst of it off. Then, ripping a strip of cloth from his sleeve and tying the rest around in a loose ponytail, he observed the other changes. What immediately captured his attention was the same thing that made him stop his sword exercises. His skin. As a ghoul, he had been grey-skinned, which along with his height set him apart from most of the other undead. After all, the Uranians whom he'd been preying upon since he had raised were short and white-skinned, so a tall, dark ghoul was distinctive. Now he resembled them at least one of these aspects. He was now paler than even the alabaster children of the mountain. One of the few things that distinguished Vanilith from a statue carved from marble was the predatory eyes, which were now such a brilliant and unsettling yellow that they appeared to be two pinpricks of light on the surface of the water. There was a vertical scar on his face running over his left eye, which he recognized as the remnants of Orimo's final attack, which had successfully destroyed his eye and blinded him. It had since regrown, but a close inspection showed that there wasn't only his skin. The corona itself was left with a scar, which made the pupil appear oddly slitted. He blinked a few times, finding that his vision was slightly worse than his left eye. So not everything had healed. 
As the base of his throat, another scar could be seen with that through the hunter's arrow had passed through his neck. This one had no obvious negative effects. He tested howling and even tried speaking and found that his voice came, uh, not easily, but far more effortlessly than it had when he was a ghoul. His voice was low but dry. He spoke with a rasp that reminded him of sandpaper. Other than the two scars and his blood-stained clothes, there was no sign of him and the life-and-death battle that he'd just been fought. He had fully recovered, and even come out stronger, as he'd hoped that he would. Banalith leaned against a nearby tree and thought. His physical changes were startling, but more than that, what had changed most was his mentality. He wasn't a ghoul, that he knew was a certainty. After waking earlier, he looked at the rest of the undead, but that sense of oneness that he'd once felt no longer came to his bidding. That wild, empathic energy that flowed from ghoul to ghoul was lost to him. However, rather than sense of loss, Vanilith felt freer than ever, as if he'd broken out of the second set of shackles, the first being the chains of absolute servitude to the necromancer. Now those ghouls were under him. Even greater than the newfound freedom was the second type of liberation. While it was true that the voices in his mind were always speaking, he was now able to silence them. He hadn't even noticed he'd been doing it until the thought came to him, a simple exertion of his will, and no longer was he subjected to the endless accusations of the dead. Was this related to his experiences in the grey world, where he talked to Arimo? He could feel the presence of the voices like a nest of venomous snakes, but compared to before, it was a breath of fresh air. This burden was manageable. Finally, he turned his attention to the thing that had caught his attention the instant he awoke. The characters. With a simple thought, they returned. There was something he'd never accomplished before. He could summon and dismiss these glowing ruins at will. And now, looking through them, he discovered that he now understood some of them, like a memory dredged up from a distant path. He recognized a few of the words. It wasn't reading, not really, but remembering. As Vanilith sat at the side of the gurgling brook, he did his best to recall as many of these words as he could. End of chapter Chapter 24 Those Who Strive Vanilith, after thinking for some time, had begun to make some sense of the words. It grew easier the longer he kept at it, and he soon was able to read the message in stutters and starts. The messages were telling him that he'd been a ghoul, but had since evolved into something called a white. What interested him the most were these lines, Innate ability conformity lost. Innate ability rule of the grave developed. He ended up focusing on the phrase innate ability, when the message he was studying vanished and a new one appeared. Innate abilities, poison resistance 15, disease resistance 19, pain resistance 22, thermal resistance 3, Dark Sight 14, Spirit Speech 8, Rule of the Grave 1. He slowly read over the list. Vanilla's eyes began to widen. He couldn't be sure, but he was almost certain that these values on most of these skills were higher than he'd ever known in his life. Yet something about it was odd. These skills had no level marker. They were granted by a simple numerical value after their name. Did this have something to do with their innate nature? His fragmented knowledge didn't inform him about what it meant. With an unconscious mental command, he summoned his status, not even pausing to wonder what he knew and how to do so. A mix of red and blue characters appeared, and Vanilith began reviewing it all. He found that certain parts stood out more than others. 
as he lingered on those details, as if it might help him unreal the buried memories. The stats were mostly immediately familiar to him, strength, vitality, and stamina. It seemed this layout when he was alive, he must have known it well, and the definitions came speedily. Strength was the core. It represented his athletic ability, running speed, and physical toughness. It affected nearly every aspect of his body. Vitality. He had no venue listed for vitality, but it was a measure of health. With more of it, he would heal faster, recover more quickly from sickness, and shrug off the effects of heat and cold. He considered this father. Being dead, he had no vitality, but perhaps his innate abilities, his resistances, were what accommodated this lacking statistic. He scoured his mind for the rest of the information on his status. As he did, a faint memory flashed before him, as if playing on the back of his eyelids. Dexterity. It is a measure of my finesse, obviously. Don't give me the textbook answer, Van. What is dexterity to a swordsman? Um, it's, um, how good they are hitting at things? Octavian's face remained impassive. It's everything. It's how well your fingers respond to your thoughts, how steady your hands remain under pressure. It pairs with agility to improve your perception of the world around you. It aids you in reading movements of your enemies, in predicting their attacks. With it, you pick up moves more quickly and perform them better. Finally, he continued, it's the most important stat for raising your sword-fighting skill. Even strength is not important as dexterity for a swordsman, and strength is very important. Vanleth was silent for a long moment before he spoke. Okay, I get it, but I have a question. Ask. Why do you keep teaching me all these things about stats and skills and stuff? It's not like I can see them, or level up. Why does knowing all that stuff matter? You should know why. We've been training you your basic physical ability. It's important to understand the source of your strengths. I don't want to hear that you've made no improvements. The man, without a break in his words, flicked a pebble at Vanilla's face. Though Octavian's only a hint with the slightest movement of his fingers, the boy ducked, and the stone sailed harmlessly by, clattering onto the pebble garden path. Since when have we just begun three months ago? You couldn't even see that stone before I hit you. Agility let you dodge it. Dexterity helped you perceive it. Vanilith rubbed his forehead. Those early lessons were painful. But do I really have those stats? he asked. I don't even have a brand yet. Yet? You don't have one yet, you say? Something in his teacher's tone, normally so impassive, made him flinch back. Do you perhaps operate on the assumption that you are destined to a brand since your father had his father before him bore brands? Do you believe that brands are given based on lineage? If that were so, then the triumvirate wouldn't exist. If your forefathers believed that, they wouldn't have received their marks, being content to sit on their laurels and reap their birthright. No, Van, brands are granted, he said, enunciating the word, to those that strive. Vanilith disliked his flashes of memories, looking into the past like it was an uncomfortable experience. Still, he had learned something. Dexterity was an important strength. Then he had been letting it fall by the wayside. Or had he? That would only be as if he had a choice to the stats to raise. But it seemed that his growth was either random or completely predetermined. Perhaps it wasn't, however. In Concord, with his recent memory, came a feeling that he could exert some degree of control over his stat growth. But he couldn't recall how it was achieved. He inspected his statistics with a florid brow. Some of the values were higher than he might have had in life. 
though he recalled no exact values. Some were certainly lower. There was a key difference in the list, however. Two final stats, Echo and Miasma, he didn't recognize. And they were similar to the values he remembered, and they referred to his life energy and magic. Also recognizable to him were the skills, swordsmanship, and poise. And he had the feeling that these, at least, were skills that he possessed in life. The same couldn't be said for any of the others. The class of duelist felt different. None of the red texts concerning the race ringed any bells, though that wasn't surprising. The single most conspicuous item on the status was the title of Rex. A trill of pride ran through him as he looked at the word. All he knew was that something about this title was special, inspiring in him a hint of remembered awe. Rex, you have manifested the shape of a conqueror through an act of overbearing will. One of the three noble titles. Rex is the point of the sphere, the king of war. You become adept at imposing your will on others. Stratum 1. The description was barely helpful. He held the shape of a conqueror. What did that mean? At least imposing your will on others sounded useful, though it wasn't clear to what extent it would apply. There were other two titles who were equally cryptic. Cannibal, you have relished in the act of devouring the flesh of your own kind. You gain more nourishment from those that share your form, and you appear more monstrous in their eyes. Hunter of Brands, you've dealt a final blow to another branded. You can innately sense when other branded are nearby. Stratum 1. It appeared that these titles gave benefits that weren't immediately palpable. The final title, Hunter of Brands, seemed the most useful of the three. Being able to sense the presence of other branded might save his life. At the same time, this meant that others likely had access to the same title, which would hamper his ability to conceal his own nature as a branded. Concerning the word Stratum 1, the available evidence suggested that it had something to do with the Red Star by the names of the two of the titles, though he couldn't be sure. Perhaps the level of the stratum could be increased in the same way of his abilities, meaning the title could grow. As Vanilleth read over the various descriptions and increasing speed, he didn't realize how much more skilled he'd gotten at reading in the past ten minutes alone. His latest evolution appeared to be the igniting event that finally allowed him to shake off the last of those dusty cobwebs in his skull. In time, perhaps, all of his memories would return. As Vanilleth worked his way down his status with increasing speed, he realized that one thing was off. The list was an innate abilities didn't appear anywhere. But even as he had thought it, the characters blurred, and the section he lacked materialized, shifting everything below it in a row. He blinked, had he just caused that to happen, by merely thinking of it. Vanilleth imagined the list vanishing, and it did so with a similar suddenness. Then he summoned it again. It appeared as if there was much to learn about his abilities. Information, name, Vanilleth, titles, cannibal, rex, hunter of brands, race, white, level, 40, abilities, howl, level 1, miasmic sight, level 2, tough skin, level 3, Innate abilities, poison resistance 15, disease resistance 19, pain resistance 22, thermal resistance 3, dark sight 14, spirit speech 8, rule of the grave 1, class, duelist level 39, skills, swordsmanship level 2, poise level 1, conceptualization level 2, dominate level 0, status effect unknown, statistics, Strength, 46. Vitality, not applicable. Stamina, 33. 
Agility, 48. Dexterity, 27. Echo, 6. Miasma, 19. Just as Vanleth was prepared to investigate his abilities and skills, he was interrupted. First came a sense, a strange awareness of a presence, one that dimly warmed of danger. The sensation was accompanied by a sound from across the brook. From out of the trees loomed a hunched figure that was dragging something behind it. Vanleth rose to his feet, his hand moving to his sword. But when he saw the appearance of the being, he paused. A familiar, smiling mask, pointed green and splattered with blood, adorned his face. Lay groaned, clutching her wrist, as Kai practically dragged her through the woods. He was as pale and frightened, but not as much as she was. She stumbled along blindly, tripping over roots and rocks, searching for a way out of the chaos that engulfed her mind. Three hours ago, Kai had disobeyed Orimo's orders at her behest. The hunter had led them off the trail and up a narrow incline, eventually bringing them to a cliff to oversaw the camp. By the time they arrived, the fight had been going for some time. At first glance, they appeared to be winning. Many ghouls lay dead before the hunters, and though much of the enemy forces remained far from the flickering firelight, she could tell that they were less than alive than dead. But that howl, familiar and ominous, struck her cold and fear in her. When the monster that had unleashed it charged her father, an icy chill settled in her gut. It used one of those hunters as a disposable shield to close in an Orimo, and her father felt threatened enough to use a skill to shoot an arrow at his subordinate, intending to sacrifice the man to get the thing holding him. The ghoul somehow sensed it and dodged, throwing the hunter aside. The arrow impacted the ground behind it, exploding, leaving a crater three feet wide in its wake. As a cloud of dirt settled, the monster arrived at her father's perch, sought bed. Nearby, Kai paused, loosing ineffectual arrows at the other undead so that he could observe the fight. He didn't interfere, however, knowing that the distraction might cost the hunt leader greatly. Glancing up at her companion from comfort, Lei saw tension in the set of his jaw. Even she could tell that her father was weak. Perhaps it was the injury sapping at his stamina. Her grip tightened around a rock then her hands. Kai hadn't wanted her too close to the front line, as he was worried that she might be spotted, but their current location placed him nearly directly above Arimo. Thanks to that, she had the sudden, mad idea that she could stop that monster. She picked up a heavy stone with the thought in mind, but one thing prevented her from losing it right then. Faith in her father. However, when the ghoul's head covering fell around to the ground, revealing his face, her father flinched. Lei had expected what lay underneath, but she still recoiled. Even from the back, she recognized the creature from the cave. She threw the rock before she was able to stop herself. A combination of fear and anger was what had launched the thing. That was when she felt the first twinges in her left hand, but she ignored the feeling, focusing on what she was on in the fight. It had been a mistake. She'd hit the ghoul, but her father was affected more severely than the monster. Lei, you're still here. Go at once! Then what seemed an instant, Orimo was blown away. It had happened too fast for her to process it. Her eyes had just been widening in recognition when the thing charged. Her father crumpled against a standing stone. A feeling bubbled up and lay. A blinding heat had seared her vision red. She didn't remember exactly what she did after that, and there was only pictures, images of the monster recovering, picking itself on its feet and striding to her father. Kai firing down with no effect, her father looking up at her, 
Perhaps he said something, but through the combination of distance, her tears, and the blood that gushed from her mouth, obscuring his lips, she couldn't tell what it was. Other than these pictures, why couldn't she remember what she was doing? Was she really just standing still? She was yelling back, reaching out to her father for the last moments. What sort of ugly face had she shown him? The ghoul dealt the final blow, and Lay saw her father's head fall. She tasted copper. It was that first cut on her hand, paralyzing her with pain. That hurts, and worse, after that, it got easier. But she was still writhing her on the ground, screaming as Kai struggled to drag her away from earshot of the monsters who overran the camp. Her hand felt as if she'd placed it into a pile of burning coals. She thought her skin was melting. Now she thought the pain was almost blessing, as it made her forget her father's death for an instant. Regrettably, the mind-numbing agony cleared, and she saw the red ruin inscribed onto the back of her hand. She knew it was no blessing. The circle with two outward-facing horns made a distinct mark on her skin. It was the same mark borne by the ghoul that killed her father. It was a curse. End of chapter. Chapter 25 Headcount The masked figure paused, staring at Vanilith. He returned the look but didn't sense any hostility. Rather, he couldn't help but be nagged by an impression of familiarity. The mask was clearly the one that Anamu had worn earlier, but this creature was too different in appearance to be the cowardly creature from his memory. He had the same pale blonde hair as the young ghoul, but this creature had a pronounced hunch that Anamu hadn't had. His arms were too long, dangling past his knees, and the hands were tipped with cruel-looking claws. Still, that feeling couldn't be mistaken. Anamu asked Vanilith, testing his newly constituted throat muscles. The creature tilted his head and growled softly. It me, it said. I return from hunt, master. Anamu gestured at the load that he had been dragging along behind him. It was the remnants of a corpse that appeared to have been mostly devoured. It lacked a head and most of its torso, including an arm that had been torn off at the shoulder. Even at what remained of the body had chunks taken out of it. But these marks appeared to be from a large animal, rather than a ghoul. Eyeing the monster that was distinctly different from his memory, Bernalith wondered how else the peon had changed. Remove your mask, he commanded. Anamu tilted his head to the side. He didn't growl this time, but instead spoke aloud. His voice sounded even worse than Vanilith's. It wasn't low and raspy like his, but more like a bestial growl than anything else. Namandoltai. The words were spoken in Uranian, but of course they wouldn't understand one another. Vanilith had forgotten for an instant that they spoke two separate tongues. But then how had they made the exchange earlier? Wait, of course, it was the same method as he'd been using to communicate with Aikina. This time, Vanilith infused his voice with his will. He still spoke the same language that Animu didn't understand, but with the added infusion as well. He felt that the savage ghoul should understand him. If he could growl, that would be understood, then surely he could speak and achieve the same result. He could have continued to growl like an animal, but now that he had a voice, he would use it. Remove your mask, he repeated himself. Animu dropped the corpse, and his gangly arms moved up to his head to untie the grinning mask, but it dropped to the floor, revealing the face underneath. Vanalu reined in his surprise and commenced his inspection. His boots splashed to the shallow water as he crossed the brook and circled Animu, who stood with an uncomfortable stillness. 
The juvenile ghoul had grown taller, though he still did not reach Van Lith's collar. If he stopped hunching over, he might be only a few inches shorter. The stooped posture that he had adopted didn't seem unnatural, however. Combined with his lengthy arms, Anamu had a look of some primeval predator. This impression was strengthened by the ghoul's face, which had changed most of all. His mouth, and most different, yet gaped far more widely than a human mouth should, like a crocodile's maw. It had reached halfway to his ears, and rows of sharp teeth peeked out from behind the colorless lips. Several new scars finished the look. Three lines crawled forth from the ghoul's lip, as if a man being eaten alive had struggled and managed to inflict wounds with his fingernails. The scars traced paths up his cheek, stopping short of his eye. Finally, his brand, the mark of gluttony. Rather than the dimness Van Elleth had come to expect from these marks, it now glowed at a constant level of light. He felt his hand moving to his own forehead. Did his own brand shine like that? So striking were the other changes that he hadn't paid attention to his reflection, but it might have indeed been glowing. The ghoul had evolved as Van Elleth continued to inspect him. He felt a grin begin to work itself onto his lips. Vanilith smiled, and something in his look made Anamu flinch back. He spoke again to his peon. Fight me. He wished to test his new body of his, and Anamu lowered his head, attempting to make himself appear small. Then, copying Vanilith's method of speech, it attempted to communicate by speaking in Yanarian while infusing its will. The meaning was communicated more clearly with his new method than it had been before. Master, mistress, she ordered me to bring this back he said, with a look of his body behind him. I must go and report. Vanilith stepped forward, eyes flashing dangerously. And who is it that you serve? The sudden vehemence in his words surprised even the one who'd uttered them. Vanilith took a half-step back. What had caused such a suddenly to lash out like that? Animu didn't notice his master's hesitation as he fell to the ground, groveling. You! I serve you! A long silence ensued. Go. I'll be along shortly. Yes. Anamu immediately hurried away, but had to be called back by Vanilith. He'd left behind the corpse that he was tasked with bringing back. Why were you out there hunting this person? He asked, idly curious. The hunter. He ran away, but the leader fell. No others could chase, so mistress said me. I hunt the hunter. I killed him myself, then became... Vanilith interrupted him, shooing the ghoul away uninterested in his self-praise. So the juvenile creature had been fleeing and the hunter had evolved. How wonderful for the ghoul, who only borrowed Vanilith's potential to reach such heights. He recognized the bitter thoughts for what they were and forced himself to ignore them. Until he couldn't get information needed from the necromancer, he would put up with a sour taste in his mouth. He hadn't noticed the potential drying up yet, but the instant he did, he intended to hold her to her promise. For now, he marshaled his thoughts and returned to the camp. He hadn't yet tested himself or fully learned about his abilities, but there would be time for that later. Before entering the clearing, he pulled a cloth from his pocket, making a hasty face covering. When he stepped into the camp, he saw the necromancer, song finished, standing at the center and watching as the ghouls bustled around, picking up corpses and preparing them to be moved. As he approached the woman, he noticed something different about her. First was the presence that she appeared to be unconsciously exude, but a moment's inspection told Vanlet that it wasn't anything particular about her, but merely a perception on his part. 
It was the same sensation Animu had inspired in him before he emerged from the trees, though hers was slightly stronger. Now Vanlu recognized it as Hunter of Brand's title at work, warning him of the existence of another branded. But something else had changed about her besides this. He couldn't quite place it, a certain lightness in her expression. Perhaps it was relief? Vanilith approached the woman, and she half turned to smile at him. Good, you're back. Would you help the others gather the corpses? We have one less body to worry about, thanks to your over-eager animu, but each of them represent a precious soldier. These hunters will make strong ghouls. Vanilith's eyes were naturally drawn towards one of the corpses amongst the throng. The body of Orimo the hunter looked uh, small, frailer than he remembered. The head of the man had been placed on the ground near his body, mouth slightly agape, staring dumbly at nothing. Oh, him, she said, her eyes following his gaze. I should be able to reattach his head through a simple surgery. You did well in killing the man the way you did. He will not retain his brand after the raising ritual. But with care, some of his previous strength should remain. I expect to make a fine lieutenant out of him. Now, will you go and help the others? After a derivative and pulse of fire raced into his spine, I am not your mule, he said. Rather than being taken back, Necromancer's eyes glittered. You speak? You have must evolved again. Oh, what a joyous occasion! Had she not noticed his evolution earlier? You must realize how long I've waited for a conversational partner, and that bore the child back to the cottage doesn't count. Her reaction disarmed Vanlith, his momentary flash of rage dissipating. Will you ask me something? she questioned. Or, no, should I be the one to ask? How is it the conversations go? I've just been so ordering undead around recently, which are rather unilateral discussions. What followed was an expectant silence. The necromancer beamed up at him and same pacifying friendliness. Vanlith finally asked, Why were you singing earlier? Oh, that, the woman said, her smile dimming slightly. She walked over to the monolithic stone that dominated the clearing and placed her hand on the surface. I was asking for permission, she said. Permission for what? To run and hide. Vanlith didn't reply, but this dissatisfaction with the answer must have been as clear as the necromancer gave a small sigh and wandered back to his side. Think of them as our sponsors. They put the stone here, and I can, in a way, speak to them through it. We need their help if we want to escape the long arm of the enclave. Who are our sponsors? The Forgotten Race, she said, the first to walk this world. They have their own name for themselves, but it is long forgotten. We simply call them the Men of Rock. As they made their way back into the dead valley, Vanilith counted the grains and losses. Ninety-two ghouls had fallen in this battle, including the earlier fights. The casualties increased to over a hundred, there were only thirty-six of them left. Despite that, the number of evolved ghouls had increased. Many freshly evolved undead now supplemented their numbers, including Vanilith's trio. There were twenty-three evolved ghouls mingling amongst the lessers. Anamu had evolved into something the necromancer called a greater ghoul, though Kalakai seemed reigned as same as always. When the Vanilith found him, he had been sitting off to the side of the camp, staring at the sky absent-mindedly as he was accustomed to do. Speaking of evolved ghouls, another caught Vanilith's eye. At the rear of the troop, a small ghoul was working together with another to drag along a body on its legs. This undead had evolved after the primarily ambush of fifteen hunters, missing out on the end mass engagement with Arimo. She was a child, 
barely four feet tall, but Vanellus remembered her as from the prison, as she had been one of the ghouls who had infiltrated through the window and driven the humans to panic. He'd seen her chase down a woman twice her size and rip her apart. She now bore several small knives that had been looted from the hunters and stowed away in a belt. Finally, there was the shamblers who surrounded Iakina in a protective circle, even as they carried the corpses of hunters with them through the fields of the valley. None of them appeared to have evolved, but that wasn't attracted Vanellus' attention. He noticed after the fight that two of them had been killed. There should have been three remaining, but a few of the lesser ghouls had instead supplemented their ranks. Not only that, but the number of shamblers had been raised from five to six. These new shamblers had been unorganized dumb ghouls, but now they moved the same eerie coordination as the others, as if they had always been a part of a group. As the departing the camp, the mistress didn't speak any further of Vanellus' own evolution. It was as if she had no curiosity regarding that particular subject. We have, at minimum, three weeks, she explained, as they marched through the barren fields of the cradle. If we don't leave this valley in that time, there is no saying whether we'll be able to escape the hunt that the enclave organizes against us. If Orimo did not send out a messenger, we may have more than a month, but I doubt that we are so lucky. Villagers might have escaped the valley and informed the enclave, even if Orimo didn't send anyone. Earlier, she had explained to him that the enclave was the capital city of Yurang, apparently. Many powerful branded resided there, making it a force that they couldn't deal with as they were. Why not leave now? asked Vanellith. We can find other lands and easier prey before the enclave ever hears of us. She gave him a sideways glance. A few reasons. The first is that I wish to gather the remaining undead. There should be far more roaming about the cradle than a hundred some that you gathered originally. Vanellith conceded that point. There had been many undead who had wandered about the villages chasing fleeing humans. It would have been difficult to sweep the entire valley in a day. But give it weeks, it should be possible to round up all of those rogue ghouls. I could summon them more quickly with a ritual, she explained, but the components used in such a thing are difficult to replace. And besides, there is another ritual I'll be performing. And what is that? The ritual that will raise all the fine hunters, of course, she laughed. The sooner that is performed, the better. Look at how this one turned out. As she spoke, she gestured to one of the ghouls. This particular one was the hunter whom she had reanimated before the battle the night before. The man killed by Kalakai. He had evolved in the fight and now wielded a short blade, with a bow strung to his back. Ghouls were just capable of using weapons as humans, but very few villages that made up the majority of the forces were experienced in such things, even if they were alive. Since that was the case, when they evolved, they often resorted to the bare hands. Vanellith certainly saw the value in adding more capable fighters to their numbers. Excellent. I see our home, the necromancer said. Say, would you be so kind as to help me arrange the ritual, Vanellith? I need your help with a crucial element. End of chapter. Chapter 26. Autonomous Action Rejected While the undead prepared for the upcoming ritual, Vanellith inspected some of the spell-preserved bodies outside of his mistress's cottage. Since he had woken up from the evolution, he was bothered by his hunger, but he hadn't yet had a chance to eat. The fallen ghouls they had left behind in the northeastern past weren't to his taste, and the hunter's corpses here were off-limits, 
However, the humans he brought back from the prison on the day before remained fresh thanks to the necromancer's efforts, even if they were no longer warm. As the necromancer left for her hut, and as an armful of surprise, she caught sight of Vanilleth carving into the torso with a sword like it was his roast. She spoke chidingly. We have ghouls set aside for food. You don't need to eat our future soldiers. Vanilleth met her gaze, his words laced with disdain. I am aware. I simply do not share Anamu's love of carrion. The ghoul in question was currently chewing on a piece of mysterious gristle. He looked up at the mention of his name, but returned to his indulgence when he saw that he wasn't being called. Hmm. That was a short reply that the woman left. Once everything was completed half an hour later, Vanilith sat at the center of a clearing outside the cottage. The ghouls had cleared the disk of ground by stamping down the grass, and the bodies were carefully arranged in concentric circles around him. His mistress had driven twelve black wooden stakes into the earth around the perimeter of the clearing. Next to Vanilith in the center was Gorimo's corpse. The necromancer had taken the body inside her home and brought it back out, whole again, though the stitches around the neck made a cause of death clear. That seemed all preparation she required, as she now stood behind Vanilith, hand on his back murmuring so softly that he couldn't make out the words. He had been told to remain still. He was a vital component to this ritual due to the death stone within him, but he himself did not have anything to do. After a minute of her chanting, Vanilith began to feel something stirring within him. Closing his eyes, he focused inwards, imitating the meditation that he'd first attempted the day before. He could tell that the cyclone within him was churning as always, but it currently appeared that something else had disturbed it. It was rapidly expanding and contracting like a heartbeat. As he watched, it began to notice a trend. Each time it expanded, it appeared a little lighter, almost as if it were thinning. At the moment he recognized this, Vanilith felt something leaving his body. It took some moments to realize that it was his energy, seeping into the circle around him. He had become a sieve, of miasma dripping out without cease. He attempted to open his eyes, but found himself unable. He tried to remove his arms, his legs. His body was no longer under his command. It was at this moment he realized that the trap had been sprung. His hand on his back had felt like a dagger hovering over his heart. The necromancer was trying to destroy him. Perhaps the ritual did exactly as she described. Was he a mere sacrifice to raise a few dozen ghouls? Forced to watch as his reserves of miasma dwindled away, something became gradually apparent. As the twisting fog thinned and expanded, he would occasionally see something in the heart of the storm, something that wasn't a part of the storm itself, but that moved in concert with it. A round shape of foggy edges lay there, smaller yet greater than the entirety of the storm that once surrounded it. The shape seethed, growing more chaotic as the protective shroud of miasma dwindled, even as he strained against the paralyzing force of the loss of his energy, the last of it drained away. All at once, everything dimmed like a cloud passing over the sun. Energy spent, Vanilleth couldn't even stop the voices within him from fighting their way free. But they weren't voices, were they? Yes, yes, he realized what they were in this moment, on the brink of nothingness. Perhaps it was because he himself was nearly one of them now. It made so much sense that he wondered if what he hadn't known already. The voices, the hunters he'd been in the grey world, they were collected spirits of those he had killed. They had been absorbed through the strange magnetic pull of the Deathstone, and now they were emerging from within that prison. 
their movements were not gentle, feeling more like shards of glass digging their way out of his brain. After the final realization, a moment where it seemed that everything would go dark and he would be embraced once more by eternity, he heard a familiar sound. A voice that was not a voice. It was oddly familiar. But despite this, the words were unintelligible to him. Whatever it was, it wasn't talking to him. Once the voice stopped speaking, he felt the pulse of some strange power fly outwards from within him. The power was like nothing he ever felt before. Or submission. This was the emotions inspired in him from the tangential encounter with this force. Though he quickly fought off the invasive feeling, their lingering presence left him shaken. The devouring force that absorbed his miasma suddenly stopped, his world no longer dissolved. And then the presence vanished, and the sensation of worship went with it. The shards of glass were free, rather than fading into the black. Everything began to brighten once more, as if the appearance of the voice had totally overpowered whatever the threatened to consume Vanilith. The dimness receded, and trickles of his energy began to return, filling the empty aching of his soul. The miasma reappeared, and then the indistinct, seething mass at the center stilled, once more the shrouded protectively by the dark storm. The stifling pressure on him vanished. He could move once more. Immediately, Vanilith acted. Before he even opened his eyes, he had sprung to his feet, as well that he had prepared, as the first glimpse of his surroundings showed the wave of ghouls closing in on him. The ritual apparently succeeded. He whipped around, cleaving an arc in the air with his blade, but the place that the necromancer had stood was empty. I'm sorry. She was backpedaling through the ranks of ghouls. A glimpse in her eyes peeking through the disheveled hair showed him that they were white and wild, staring at nothing. He darted forward, weaving through the slow bodies, but he wasn't able to dodge all of them. One grabbed his leg, and then he moved an offending hand with a quick swipe. Another tackled him, but he sidestepped quickly enough that the undead had hit to the side, sending him spinning. He regained his footing by kicking another ghoul he would have otherwise collided with. The smaller undead went flying and Vanilith was propelled forward. He was going to kill her. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Another swipe sent two undead to the ground. The hunters, though capable warriors in life, were still lesser ghouls, but he was now past their encirclement. The other enemies were awaiting him, the evolved ghouls. He hurtled past them, decapitating one and cleaving another skull. In the throes of his rage, Vanilith didn't realize that the undead he struck bore no weapons. Their attacks didn't aim to wound him, but rather to grip his limbs and bring him to ground. They fell like the wheat before the reaper's scythe. Duelist level increased. Strength plus one, agility plus one. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he reached her, completely panicked. She stumbled backwards, clutching her face. The necromancer acted as if she didn't even see him, even as she tried to widen the distance between them. Vanilith stepped on the hem of her robe, and she lost her balance, falling to the ground. Her ghouls closed in, but at that moment, Anamu and Kalakai arrived, intercepting them. The two peons held off the small horde, giving their master the time he needed. He roared at her. Why? Seeing her try and stand without answering him, he placed a foot on her arm, pinning her and lowering his sword to her throat. But even with that, she couldn't even see him. The woman kept muttering her incomprehensible apologies and attempting to rise. There was a surprising amount of strength in her body, and she almost succeeded in freeing herself. Her eyes, once serene and beautiful, 
now looked like those of a frightened cat. Her pupils had shrunken to dots as her whites had bloodshot. I'm sorry. He had enough of this. He wanted to understand why, why she wanted to kill him. But something was pushing him on, making him inarticulate with rage. No, even if she were inclined to explain, at this stage there was no reasoning with Vanilith. A stray thought fitted through his rampaging mind as he thrust down. What if her apology wasn't directed at him? The blade punctured her neck, and he wondered at the sensation that the floor had suddenly dropped out from underneath his feet. He pulled the sword free, and a spurt of warm blood painted his face. He wondered. He wondered why his hands trembled. He wondered why an abrupt chill turned the marrow of his bones to ice. He wondered why the necromancer disappeared, and why she was once lay there was now a massive prismatic eye. And he wondered at the blood seeping from its pupil, as if Vanilla's sword had struck it rather than its intended target. Status effect, unknown, has fissured, producing two new status effects. As the red liquid welled forth, pooling around the ankles, Vanilith dropped the sword on the nervous fingers. You have received a status effect, Vessel of Death. You have received status effect, Oculus of Dread Sovereign. You have received status effect, Terror Temporary. The blood on his feet began to rise, but Vanilith could tear himself away from the image of the eye. The liquid reached his knees. In his mind, there was only the eye. The eye. He fought it. Ability obtained, fear resistance, level zero. The status, terror, temp, has evolved to panic, temp. Ability increased, fear resistance becomes level one. Ability increased, fear resistance becomes level two. Since his birth, Vanilith had known to fright, but the threat of dying meant little to him. Even when Orimo had nearly killed him, twice, there was no fear of death in him. Somehow, the side defied the part of his nature, inspiring in him a long-forgotten emotion of terror. There could only be one reason for that, a promise of something worse. Yet, he still fought it. Status effect panic temporary has evolved into hysteria temporary. Ability increased, fear resistance becomes level 3. Ability increased, fear resistance becomes level 4. Ability increased, fear resistance becomes level 5. Ability increased, fear resistance becomes level 6. Had he lost... The status effect hysteria temporary has evolved into psychosis temporary. Unknown entity detected within realm of Aegon. Measuring entity. Warning. Specification match. 97% certainty. Entity label. Dread Sovereign. Retrieving file. Last update on EN E6C1087Y6094D198-10-28. Entity. Dread Sovereign. Classification. Threat level. Red 72. Interloper, negative. Fragment of infinity, feasible, unconfirmed. Connection to stated, negative. Multiversal, positive. Known rounds, more than a thousand and two. Key possession, feasible, unconfirmed. Connection to the unspoken, feasible, unconfirmed. Threat level upgraded to black 99. Tentative. Recommendation, immediate sterilization of Aegon. Request received. Aegon quarantine measure is in effect as of date EN E6 C1087 Y6094 D198 1028. Autonomous action rejected. Kaipo had just finished wiping down the floor of the cottage with a rag as the chaos began. A cacophony erupted outside, and he ran to the only window that had functioning shutters to see what was going on. Vanlith, the monster he considered to be amongst the most frightening of their number, 
was going berserk. The witch appeared to be running from him, and dozens of ghouls swarmed him, who was trying to reach her. The sheer violence of the sword astounded him. The undead that came too close were simply cacked apart, not even slowing Vanilith down. It didn't take too long for him to break free, and, with Anibu and Kalakai backing him up, he pinned the witch, the blade hovering over her throat. For some reason, Kaipo felt fear for her. For her! It was a ridiculous thing for him to empathize with the witch. It wouldn't be until much later that he realized why that was. And then Vanilith struck. What followed was a confusing mess. She died. She must have died, yet when the sword had been pulled free, the blood began to spill forth. Something odd happened. Vanilith lifted his piece of weapon, took a few stumbling steps back and dropped the blade. At first glance, he appeared to be experiencing regret, but Kaipo watched as the white began to claw at the air, then clutched his head and began to howl. It was a broken sound, one would set the teeth on edge. What stopped Kaipo from immediately retreating to hide as he normally might have done was the sight of the witch's body. She began to shudder. Her head twitched, and her arms splayed out and the sides of her fingers dug into the dirt. These movements might be considered a death throes, but they slowly became more exaggerated, and unlike the actions the corpse might have normally taken the part while expending the remaining energy, the witch's motions didn't stop. They just didn't stop. Her back arched unnaturally, the gout of blood flying from the wound on her throat, but for some reason, it didn't fall back to the earth. The blood thinned in the air, turning into a red mist and remaining suspended over her body. As if a dam had broken, all of the blood left in her body spewed forth at once, joining the cloud of crimson mist. At that moment, she stopped. Then her mouth wrenched open and something emerged from within that wasn't blood. It was pitch black and roughly the size of a forearm, too dark to make out any indefinite shape. Kaipo, straining his eyes, thought that it looked something like a black beetle. It oozed forth, crawling down her body until it found a pocket on her robes. Then it crawled inside the pocket that should have been too small for it, vanishing completely. At that moment, a cloud of mist hovering over the desiccated witch plunged down, enveloping her body. It condensed, growing smaller and smaller, until the shape was once again made out, bound by cords of congealed blood. All of the other undead had stopped fighting after Vanilith dealt the death blow. Now they stood wide circle around their mistress, as if enthralled, all of them except the white himself, who Kaipo had somehow lost sight of in the confusion. The bands of red constricted audibly, and he could hear the creaking of her bones as her own blood bound her. Then creakingly the corpse rose to its feet, and began to approach the house. It didn't move like anything Kaibo had ever seen. The movements were sudden, jerky ones that gave the appearance of a puppet on strings. Kaipo had just enough time to duck behind the table when the door opened and the witch entered. From where he was hidden, he could see her feet dragging across the floor, coming to a stop before a wooden chest. Her hands fumbled with the clasp, opening it up after a few moments, and she kneeled down. Kaipo could see the constrictive red bands pulsing. The tight wrappings would have looked like those of a mummy if it weren't for the fact that they were pulsing, appearing far more alive and desiccated corpse that they bowed. From inside the chest a bundle was withdrawn, which was unfurled and revealed a multitude of silver needles and some other tools. Sorry came a croaking voice, which Kaipo only belatedly realized came from the witch's mouth. She continued haltingly, in a voice that sounded like it had crawled free of the crypt. 
Master, forgive me. He is your vessel. And with one hand she picked up the needles, and with another she lifted a small hammer, and then the first needle was lifted into her heart. With the hammer she drove it into her body. Forgive me, forgive me. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you wish to support the author, the link to the original is down below. If you wish to support this channel, however, and you enjoy my work, please consider becoming a Patreon or a channel member. It would be very much appreciated, and every little bit helps this channel carry on. I will see you all in the next video, and until then, have a good one. Cheers.